This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 500. Happy birthday. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 500, Happy Birthday. Why is it called Happy Birthday? Well, that's a good question. Amazing Spider-Man issue number 500 was part of the Happy Birthday arc, and uh, this is the 500th episode, so I thought, well, why not creep from that? And not only that, this episode is actually going up on August the 12th, which is the uh, five-year anniversary of the podcast's first episode going up. So, in fact, it is the fifth birthday of the podcast, as well as the 500th episode, all at the same time. Uh, now, this episode isn't quite as long as episode 400, which I think clocked in at almost six hours long, which is ridiculously long, but it still has some good stuff in it. We have um, a, uh, a listener from the Marvel Masterworks Forum coming on to talk about one of his favorite comics. Uh, we have another listener of the show, Tim Riley, coming on to talk about one of his favorite comics, and he's actually going to be on a future episode as well, talking about uh, the Heroes Return version of Iron Man, which was re- not recently, but not that long ago, put into omnibus format. It's by Kurt Busiek and Sean Chen. Uh, he's going to be on the show in a, in a month or so, talking about that. But in the meantime, we also had a chance to sit down and talk about uh, one of his favorite comics. We talked with uh, A.J. Reese about some of his uh, personal favorites. He's been a, a guest of the show and a friend of the show for a long time now. And uh, we also have Todd McKay, who's uh, my neighbor and has been on previous episodes, particularly the um, episodes where we've looked at movie releases, uh, selected releases in the past couple of years. Uh, he started coming out more and more to those podcasts, and he just likes being part of it, even if he hasn't seen the movie, because I did have him once, and he's like, I just want to be part of it. I just want to be there. Um, so he uh, he's actually going to be the first segment in the because we actually sat down and it was almost like an interview where he just kind of interviewed me, which is something I've never been able to do because I'm always the one in the interviewing seat. Uh, so that's kind of fun. And I talked about the, kind of the origins of the podcast, where it came from, uh, some of my earliest origins with comics. Now, I apologize because some of this stuff might have been talked about in the past on previous episodes, uh, either well, in a conversation with someone else and I bring up a little tidbit or whatever. But this is a little bit more comprehensive. It's not the full story because I've talked about some of my favorite comics or, or some of my first comics as a kid in prior episodes. So so those who've listened to everything and remember it all uh, might be like, eh, I've heard this. But for the most part, I think it'll be new content. Uh, so that's my conversation with Todd, which will be our first segment today. Uh, we also have a segment with uh, Dan Gavazdan, who uh, it's basically a uh, rite of passage to have him on my anniversary shows at this point. Uh, he first appeared on episode 298 uh, and then was on episode 300. He's the... Um, host and uh, founder of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast, which is an amazing podcast. Um, and yeah, it's well worth listening to. It's a great show that they run over there, and he's got a great website, and he's got a really great mind for Spider-Man. He's been on episodes of mine of 298, 300, 400, so I like, of course I have to have him on for 500 uh, to talk about um, some books as well. Uh, so that is basically episode... Uh, 500 at least as I uh, as I record this intro that is what the episode uh, entails uh, if there's anything else that gets uh, kind of made after the right at the right at the deadline right before the 12th uh, that'll be uh, snuck snuck into the back anyways thank you for joining uh, comic shenanigans for this great episode I, I hope it's great you can email us at comic shenanigans at gmail.com like us on facebook rate and review us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and also listen to us on stitcher without further ado let's jump into our first segment with tom mckay Welcome to episode 500. 
Congratulations. I have done so many of these over the years. It is insane. I, uh, years ago, I decided uh, that I would do a podcast because me and my buddy Nate had said for years, we could do that. And I was like, well, you know, either share it off the pot, right? You can't say you're going to do something and just never do it. So I'm like, why don't I actually do that? Uh, so I bought a very cheaply made microphone and hooked it up to my laptop and was like, Kelly, let's, let's record a pilot. And then she's like, well, are you going to post it? I'm like, no, I'm never going to post it. Like, I'm just, just, just tootling around, right? So we record it, and then I post it within like a day or two. And she's like, you weren't going to post that. And I'm like, yeah, well, I thought it was the pilot. It'd be fun. And she's like, I said cunt on the air. And I'm like, yeah, you did. Because on the show, she's like, can I say that? I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's just, you know, it's the pilot. It's just you two. Yeah. And then um, <laughs> our friend messed with her being like that that they had told that one of her friends had told like his parents about it and they'd listened to it and they heard her say content they're all like oh my god i can't believe we did that it was just totally messing with her though um and that's kind of and so like yeah because i'd listened to i started listening to comic book podcasts probably around 2011 or so uh, which is not that early because podcasts have been around what over a decade or so now even longer uh, so that in some was, shape or form, yeah. In some shape or form, yeah. And uh, yeah, because I used to listen to one, which was one of the first comic book ones called Comic Geek Speak, uh, and I was like, "That's so cool." Uh, so yeah, so then for the first little while, uh, my buddy Nate and I, and then Paul, who you've met, mm-hmm. uh, would come, and the three of us would do episodes, and uh, we do two episodes a week, which is an insane schedule. I don't know why I ever decided to do that. Uh, I always wanted to do reviews because I used to write comic reviews for years on uh, websites, and I kind of missed that muscle because uh, the site I worked for had changed, and I didn't didn't really like the new format, and so I just stopped working for them. It was all free anyway. I used to do in my heyday. I wrote like twenty five reviews a week, like it was insane. Wow. Now I was like single. I didn't. I wasn't married. Didn't have like a wife. Didn't. And have you a life. wrote these. You didn't talk yeah. to these. No, no. I these. I mean, they weren't that long, but like you know, they're still like putting thoughts on paper I got to the point where I could write a, a good review in about 15 minutes so I'd spend a couple hours a week uh, just putting together reviews and actually the highlight for me was that I remember in 2006 I was checking a news report on an upcoming comic and I was blurbed in it I was actually they actually quoted me in this press release from Marvel and I'm like that's so cool so over the years I amassed this this file which I must have somewhere of all of these press releases that I'd that I was uh, quoted in. And there's actually hardcover collections of comics where I'm actually quoted on them as well. Um, so I, I missed the reviewing part. So that's part of what the podcast was. And uh, we used to talk about Heroclix, which I don't do anymore, which is a nerdy miniatures game uh, with comic book characters. And we would talk about uh, top five, you know, top five X-Men stories, top five Spider-Man stories, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually, about two or three years into the podcast, I, I uh, reached out to a comic book uh, professional and tried to review him, for, uh, interview him for the show, and he said yes for some reason. And then I just kept doing it. And I kept uh, asking more and more people, and now I've probably interviewed 50 to 70 people uh, for the podcast, and that's been why I keep doing it. And there's it. a couple in this number 500 too, right? Uh, not a professionals. Okay. Uh, I've had some listeners on this episode, and I've had uh, assorted previous guests um, but yeah, I didn't want to. Usually for the interview episodes, I want them to be their kind of their own thing. Um, as we speak, I already have a few in the can, uh, which are going to come out in the next couple of weeks, and that's the part that I love the most: being able to talk to a creator who I grew up reading his stuff, and it had a huge impact on why I'm a comic book fan. Being able to talk to that person and be like, "I loved your work. It's why I'm a fan," is everything. And uh, yeah, it's so cool to be able to say like, "Why did you do this?" or "How did you do that?" and being able to talk to those people because you can't talk to actors, right? Like you. you don't usually have an opportunity to talk to an actor and be like I really liked you in that movie you know what were you thinking like that opportunity is never going to happen uh, or like a musical artist or like 
in what medium are you in any way able to reach out and talk to that person and actually have them respond? Comic books are a very small little thing. Like I think of them as rock stars, like these writers and creators, but they're not. They're just people. Uh, just like other people are, obviously, in entertainment, but they're just held up to a higher degree and they seem more untouchable. Like, think about an actor you love. Can you imagine sitting down with that person and being like, I really like your work? Well, I get that when I see sports people I okay. meet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little nerve-wracking, but For again, sure. they're just regular people. They're and then you find out how down-to-earth they are. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to make a living. And For sure. In, in their world, uh, it's in the, the limelight. Like, thousands of people get to see That's what true. they do. Did I ever tell you I got to sit down with Brett Laurie once? Uh, no, you didn't. Oh yeah, I uh, I was uh, I for free- for a podcast. No, uh, I was freelancing for a comic book magazine, and they this is 2014. Um, so that year was the first year that uh, the MLB video game was going to be released on the PS4. Uh, so I was super excited about it because I've been buying that since 2008, basically. So every year I put down my money, like a like I'm a loyal servant of of, um, of PlayStation, and buy that game. And that year, um, Brett Laurie was the on the Canadian cover version. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the magazine I was working for, Freelance, kind of was like, "Oh, we know you review the baseball game. Um, we got an invite to an event. Um, Brett Laurie's going to be there. You can interview Brett Laurie, and we'll we'll run it for the for the magazine. And you also get to be hands on and be one of the first people to actually play the new the show for PS4, which is huge for me because I'm like, that's awesome." Uh, I'm pretty sure I was the only one there who actually cared about the video game. Everyone else was mainly there to have the interview with Lori. And that was cool for me, too, don't get me wrong. But like, I was also really excited about being able to play the, board, the, the video game. And you could tell that there was no one really there who could actually talk to me about the specs of the video game. Like It became very clear to me that what type of media were going to be there. But I got to sit down and have a conversation with Brett. And uh, I have it somewhere recorded. And I just had my iPad on the table. And we just kind of talked for a few minutes. And then I got to write it up and put it on the, on the magazine. So it was very cool kind of thing and it was the day after he'd hit a game winning home run so he was very high oh, and of course. excited it wasn't like it was the day after great timing for him oh for sure yeah <laughs> and it was, it was really interesting and kind of seeing uh, you know again they're real people just regular people but uh, he definitely had a bit of an ego but uh, it, was, it was really cool I don't think I've met any other J's have you? I thought you had like some of your uh, events that uh, you got to see them batting practice or anything. You don't like get to that. meet them though. Yeah, you don't get to say hi. Like you see them like you know twenty feet away from you, and that's pretty close. But yeah, but you don't actually get. To I say haven't hi. met any Blue Jays. The closest I came, and I do regret this. It was okay. about three four years ago. There was a sports card and memorabilia expo out in Mississauga. Okay, and um, it's a pretty big event. They have a lot of mm-hmm. former and current hockey players there because oh, wow. it's Canada, of course. Um, and actually, it was probably about, I'd say, not four or five years ago, because it was before the Blue Jays were good again. Okay. And uh, kind of lonely all by himself in a booth was Kelly Gruber. No way. And I just kind of walked by. I, I was like, I acknowledged that he was there, but yeah. I didn't say hi. I didn't do anything because... And he was my favorite Blue Jay. Oh, really? No way. <laughs> yeah. And oh. uh, and I, in retrospect, I, it was just, it dawned on me. It's just like, wow, when the current team sucks, um, it doesn't matter how, maybe Roberto Alomar would be a different story, but yeah. like a lot of... Joe Carter the, and Alomar are kind of the everything. Yeah, those, those guys, you know, they were, remember, but everybody else, like Pat Borders, mm-hmm. Kelly Gruber, like a lot of those yeah. guys, uh, you just kind of, now it'd be cool to see them because oh, Jays sure. are cool again. Oh, yeah, but yeah. then it was like, uh, what is well, this team? Last year when we got to go to um, a batting practice for the Jays, so we're sitting, we're, we're waiting to go down an elevator down to the field level, right? 
and this this guy, uh, gray-haired gentleman or white hair maybe actually, kind of walks in front of us, and I hear the voice. It's Jerry Howarth from the who does all the radio broadcasts. The minute I hear his voice, I'm just like, oh my god, like I wish I could say something. And he just kind of walks right by, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm so close to Jerry, but like I'm I'm, I'm such a shy person, which. It isn't always evident because, like, I've interviewed a lot of people. I'm, I'm used to talking to people in my job. I'm always talking to new people. But for some reason in my personal life, I clam up and I'm just like, ah, I wish I could say something because I love Jerry. Yeah. Jerry is my childhood. Like, my childhood. Um, He's been doing it for his job for a very long time. Since, like, the early 80s. So, <laughs> like, when I was a kid, uh, so I would go to, you know, bed. My parents are very militant on bedtime. So it was probably between 7.30 and 8, which is exactly when the Jays play, right? They play 7 to 10, typically, on a weekday evening in the summer. So I would always go to bed, and I'd put my radio on, on a sleep timer, and I would always be listening to the Jays as I went to bed. So my childhood is listening to Jerry Howarth and Tom Cheek at the time before he passed away uh, call the games. So whenever I hear him, it just brings me back to my childhood, because I remember that vividly, and I also remember being up at the cottage with my parents they had rented a cottage and we'd always listen to the games on the weekend and then during the work uh, weekday evenings and this is back when you know not everyone had satellite tvs and all that kind of stuff and so we had like a black and white tv with like bunny ears to try and get the games but usually we just put on the radio it was the best way to do it and that was entertainment at the cottage just listening to the jays games in the evening before we went to bed so i was so excited to be so close to him but also like i no words are coming out of my mouth. Like, I can't say hi, which sucks, but I regret that. But Well, that, that may happen with somebody, uh, a creator of comic books, if there was, like, a comic mm-hmm. book expo in Toronto. And, there uh, is. And you met a lot of these folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, so I uh, years ago, uh, so when I first started writing reviews for the comic book website, I did get a chance to get press passes to go to Fan Expo when it was a much smaller event and wasn't as huge as it is now. And I got to go and actually uh, had a very rinky-dink MP3 player, but it did have a recorder function on it. So I was able to do a few interviews there, which is really cool. Uh, that was the first time actually interviewing anyone in public. Um, and that was very hard for me to be able to kind of get out from under my skin. I remember we talked to one creator, um, people who follow comics know him. He's Brian Michael Bendis, who's a very prolific creator. And at the time, he was doing an acclaimed run on the character of Daredevil. And I remember I, I, I had been writing reviews uh, for the Daredevil book and with someone else and then I go to this interview and I'm like oh I'm from Comic Stream he's like oh yeah you guys are pretty nice to me and I'm like oh yeah you know, I I review uh, Daredevil and he looks at me and says you're Adam Chapman I'm like holy fuck you know my name like, <laughs> like that just floored me and I can't find the audio anymore because for a long time I kept that because I'm like that meant something to me that this creator who I read a lot of his stuff and was really enjoying it actually knew who I was and that just absolutely blew me away he reads your words it was crazy because I didn't just introduce myself as Adam but I hadn't said my last name and he just kind of knew it right because I guess he'd been getting a lot of good press but that was one of the reviews that he liked who knows but uh, that was really cool alright so a couple questions I have for you sure uh, we've been neighbors for about uh, over four years now or just, yeah, just under a, four just years just about yeah, yeah Zach's almost four so yeah, yeah it's and, much. Uh, yeah and I really appreciate you uh, sharing me with some of your, your, your passion and love for mm-hmm. comic books and mainly the movies we, we love for those sure. reviews yeah a couple more coming up this fall uh, but uh, do you remember your very first comic book <sighs> or a series, that one that you gravitated to? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there's multiple answers. So, And I have, I've talked about parts of this before. Um, one of the first comics I remember, so my dad had a couple comics. Now, my dad does not really like comics. Uh, in fact, he always wished I would grow out of them. Uh, but there's this one comic that was very... That's not going to happen, is no, it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm always going to read them in some format. I may not buy as many, but I'm always going to like reading them, and I'm never going to stop liking the format. 
Um, I remember there was this one comic that I used to bring with me to my babysitter's cottage, and it went everywhere, and I think I tore it into pieces. It was Superman 220. It's from 1969. Um, I know that specifically because it always, years later when I realized what year it was from, I was always curious because my dad's always been like, oh, I stopped, I stopped reading comics when I was young. He was 19 years old when this comic came out. He bought it, kept it, and still had it in the 80s when I was you know, a kid. So, bullshit that. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's a silly comic. It's not great. Um, but it has art by an iconic Superman artist named Kurt Swan. And it's, uh, it's very of the time. So to give you some historical context, in the 60s, um, Marvel Comics as we know it now was born. So we had Spider-Man, the Avengers, Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man. Like all these characters came out of this boom at the early 60s. Transformed comics. And the biggest thing is that these were all heroes with problems. Uh, the typical superheroes up until that point were generally, uh, you know, fun adventures, but the characters were kind of perfect. They didn't really have dilemmas uh, where they, where you had Spider-Man was always worried about, you know, getting money for Aunt May and uh, girls didn't like him and really, you know, had a lot of personal problems. Uh, Tony Stark, uh, he had to wear a pacemaker, otherwise he was going to die, but he was also Iron Man. So he would go into adventures and then his pace, pacemaker would start to fail and he was going to die and he had to make these kind of decisions. So all these characters um, dealt with a lot of senses of responsibility that mainstream superheroes at that point didn't. Batman, although he has a tragic backstory, they never played that up. They played up the more fun, adventurous parts of these characters. So, to give you some context, so in the late 60s, DC is still making the same books they've been doing for years, whereas Marvel's getting edgy. They're, um, they're, you know, Spider-Man's um, best friend uh, has a drug addiction. Like, all this shit's going down. And the DC, it's much different. So, this DC comic, this cover as uh, Bat- uh, Superman and the Flash fighting each other, thinking that you're not actually Superman, I'm Superman. And Basically, they're wearing each other's costumes, and then they forget who they are. So they go up against this this this, this alien menace. For some reason, they decide to switch their costumes. I can't remember exactly why. They get then get rocketed down to Earth. They wake up. They have amnesia. They're wearing these other costumes. They think they're those people. So Flash is thinks he's Superman, and this is what I love about how stupid Silver Age comics are. So he realizes he's super fast, just like Superman. He's wearing Superman's costume. He looks at Superman's cape. There's a there's a pocket in it. And there's all the clothes for Clark Kent. So he tries to put on his clothes, but he realizes that the ID that he has doesn't match the way he looks. So he goes to a makeup makeup store and gets this is the makeup. All in this comic book. Yeah, he goes to a makeup <laughs> store and is able to apply it so he looks exactly like Clark Kent and no one notices that he's not Clark Kent. Where, um, so that's Barry Allen, who's a blonde, so he also has a wig. So he's got like a wig and but he looks exactly like uh, the proper Clark Kent. And then uh, Superman wakes up and thinks that he's the Flash and he's super fast. And they keep trying to find the other hero, but they can't find them. They end up on a park bench together and they realize um, that something might be wrong. And then they, uh, one of them confronts the other and tries to punch him. I guess <laughs> Superman tries to punch him. And um, Flash vibrates out of the way and... Again, Superman's wearing Flash's costume when he punches a wall, and they're like, see, I'm actually Superman. You're actually the Flash. It's so dumb. <laughs> but I love it. Like, it's not a great comic. I love it because um, my dad, who's someone who doesn't love comics, gave it to me and let me read it. Years later, for a Father's Day present, I was able to track down a really nice copy of this book because I'd ruined it over in my childhood. And I gave it to him, and I'm like, I know this probably doesn't mean anything to you, but this means a lot to me because this is one of the first comics I ever read. And the, one of the ones that sticks out of my memory, and you gave it to me. And I'm sorry I ruined it. And here you go. And I'm sure he doesn't care. but uh, Or maybe he does. Who knows? Maybe he's got a, a heart deep down inside there. Uh, <laughs> but for me, that will always be something that stands out to yeah, me. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and, and there's... So uh, there's actually a bunch of Superman stories. Because then a couple years later, um, for Christmas, I got this Adventures of Superman comic. 
and I loved it as a kid. And I had these, uh, this, this big character named Dreadnought, and Superman was losing his powers throughout it because this guy was like absorbing his powers. And it was, I always liked the comic. And then two years later for Christmas, I get another issue of the same book, but it's, again, it's two years later, so it's many issues later. It's the second time the same characters show up, totally by happenstance. Like, it was, my dad couldn't have designed this. No one would have known this was going to happen. Exactly two years later, both of my Christmas stockings, um, I get the next comic, which is 20 issues later. The exact same villain shows up again, the only time that character ever showed up, ever. And I had those two appearances. And I'm like, what are the chances? So I remember enjoying those as a kid. About the same probability of two walk-off Grand Slams yes, being hit the same by the same player? Yeah. Uh, that, that was probably more likely. I don't know. Which is, <laughs> like, it's so random, right? Um, now, the one sad part is that that comic, the first one, um, years later, I was in grade three or something, and this kid had a, a Spider-Man comic, and I thought it looked you so You did cool. a trade? I, I traded it, but before I did, my dad had a, <laughs> uh, had a printing company at the time. Uh, early 90s, he went self-employed, and he had a small printing press company where he'd do stuff for comp- smaller companies, business cards, that kind of stuff. So I told him I was going to trade away this comic. So he took a photocopy, like a black and white photocopy of the entire issue, and I stapled it together, and I had it. So for years, I don't know where it is anymore, and I probably threw it out, unfortunately. But I, I have this comic somewhere, as the, the photocopy version of this. That this I, is the second one, like the... The, the, for, uh, the first of the two that I got yeah, yeah, yeah. at Christmas. Okay. Um, so I traded it away for the Spider-Man comic. Now, this Spider-Man comic probably started my love of Spider-Man. Um, it was in the middle of a 14-part storyline. This is 1993, so I was like nine years old, uh, which is a ludicrously long storyline. Like, And everyone agrees it's one of the low points of Spider-Man comics in the 90s. But that's my entry point, right? So this is... This is chapter four, and I remember that summer, I loved this comic so much that I was trying to find more chapters of this storyline, and I could only find chapters, I'm trying to remember, uh, seven, uh, oh, it's going to bother me. I could find chapter seven, and I think chapter 11 and 12, and that was it, or no, 12 and 13, and then I could never find the remaining chapters, but as a kid, you don't, you don't care about that stuff. You fill it in, in your head. Uh, years later, I would eventually finish this storyline, but that storyline got me into Spider-Man comics. It's not good. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, it was made into a very well-known um, Super Nintendo video game called Spider-Man Maximum Carnage. It had a red cartridge. It was really cool. And it's a brutal game. It's super hard, but I love that game. I love the music from that game. Was that on SNES? SNES, which okay. I never even owned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just had friends who had it. And uh, But yeah, this storyline... So from there, I became a fan of Spider-Man. But again, I didn't start reading Spider-Man right away. Like, I got into comics in a lot of ways a lot later than most people. Uh, a lot of people get into it when they're really young. This is still, like, I'm nine, and I'm not buying on my own yet. Like, I'm not buying my own regular comics. And I get a few issues here and there, and again, they stick out because I didn't have very many. I got a few Iron Man issues for my birthday, and I thought that was so cool. And for years, I'd only ever read this one chapter of an Iron Man story. It was uh, chapter three of six or something and every time I would go to a convention and try to finish it I was always missing a chapter and so I was like well I'm not going to bother buying them if I can't complete it so eventually I never thought the storyline would ever be collected it's kind of reviled again something about the 90s is not a good time for comic books uh, and they had this trade sports card memorabilia yeah yeah <laughs> for sure uh, then they had this this trade paperback came out and it was this storyline and I'm like I finally get to read this and it wasn't good uh, but I had an emotional attachment to it uh, I'll fast forward, and then I apologize for the long answer. Uh, 1995, oh, 1995 is where it really changes. Um, I got a, I, I've gotten a couple X Men comics from um, 
from family over for some Christmas holidays, and I've been watching the X-Men TV series and the uh, Spider-Man TV series. Love those. Um, so finally, one day, I don't know what it was that prompted me to do it, but I picked up a, an X-Men comic. It was Uncanny X-Men 332, and that was it. But something about that comic I loved. I even sought out. It was continued in like a Wolverine issue, and I bought that off the stands as well. And I was kind of in from there. Like I again, I had bought smatterings of issues. This is the first time I would follow the title, and I didn't stop. Now, eventually, I learned the sad lesson that most comic book fans do, which is there comes a time when you can't blindly follow a book anymore. You can't just buy every issue because you've been buying them. You have to start saying, is it still good or is it not? And there came a time when I had to say, this book is shit. I can't buy this anymore. The stories aren't good. The art's not good. I have to stop. But that was the first one that I like held on to. It was Uncanny X-Men. That was 1996, and a major crossover happened that year. And those comics mean a lot to me because I remember them. Now, 997, no, no, 96, I got a birthday present, Amazing Spider-Man 419, I didn't know it at the time, they had just wrapped up a years-long storyline involving Spider-Man and his clone, it was very convoluted, very crazy, and a lot of people say it kind of damaged the Spider-Man character at that time, at that time. It started out selling really well, and then didn't go so well. So my friend gave me this issue for my birthday, and I loved it. And then I was in the hospital with a concussion a month later, and my mom was able to buy me the next issue. So again, sequential numbering is important. Um, so now I have issue 419 and 420, and then I made the decision I'm going to buy this. And I never stopped buying Spider-Man. So... I continued buying Amazing Spider-Man from issue 419 to 700, wow. and then uh, they renamed it something else, and I kept reading that, and then they relaunched Amazing Spider-Man a couple times, and I keep buying it, and now they're going back to the old numbering, which is a thing they do in comics, and it's coming up to issue 800 soon, and yeah, I have this huge stretch of Amazing Spider-Man that's probably my longest stretch, because that's the book that so I So you have decided. these paper I have the copies. original issues, yeah. Wow. From all the and, and that goes... Uh, from around 1997 yeah to present day yeah wow now now, now, there's people who have many more than that obviously I know uh, one to 800 (laughs) yes I know two guys uh, in particular that run another podcast called the Amazing Spider Talk podcast of which one of them I've had on the show before I bet they talk about Spider-Man there a lot Um, (laughs) but uh, they both one of them originally had a blog called uh, Chasing Amazing and its whole premise was he was going to chase down every issue of Amazing Spider-Man until he owned them all. He didn't care if they were in good condition or not. He just wanted to own every issue. And he did it. Uh, he was able to get his hands on every single issue. He spent wow. a lot of money. Um, yeah. You know, but although he'd been doing it over the years, and so some of it he got at lower prices. And the other guy who does the podcast, I believe he's also now achieved it as well. So they both have complete runs of Amazing Spider-Man. Wow. So I can't attest to doing that. Um, what I will have someday is a complete volume of all, all of those issues in collected format. So not the original singles, but a larger collections that will have maybe 10 to 20 issues per volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in the middle of doing something called the Epic Collections, where, at least for now, they're collecting everything from 1963 to like 94, 95, which is still 30 years of comics. Um, of which I've started buying them and I have like six or seven of those volumes. So eventually I'll have a complete run. So if I want to read Amazing Spider-Man from one to whatever is current at that time I'll be able to do that yeah that's incredible so yeah that was a long winded answer to those are some of my first comics and how I got in I know you invite me to all of these podcasts and I don't say too much about comics Uh, I enjoy them I I didn't actually uh, I don't have a cool answer like you did part of that I believe is because as a child I really gravitated towards sports cards Uh, so it was around 10 or 11 and I got my first pack of Mm -hmm. 
hockey cards. Did you ever have like comic book cards though? Because those were big in the early nineties. I'll, I'll get to that in a oh, sec. Sorry. Yeah. So so uh, actually, before hockey cards or baseball cards, yeah. I, I collected stickers. Okay. And um, you just kind of triggered it, like trying to collect sets. It's mm-hmm. very addictive to try to do all these things. For sure. And. Um, the one thing, like, uh, my parents never bought me a comic book, so I no. never really got into it. Well, okay. I'll put an asterisk there, okay? because I don't know if this counts or not. But I have a very large collection still okay. at my parents' house. Yeah. I'd say, like, 150 to 200 okay. issues of Archie. <laughs> okay, that still counts. Still counts. So that was the one that every Christmas I would get, two yeah. or three, and then New Year's, like, birthday, no, everything. Like digest or actual, like, full the size little, The little... Uh, the ones you see at the supermarket? Yeah, yeah, yeah those ones. Yeah, so... Hey, those little, are good value. Little short stories. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I still have them, uh, yeah. but uh, I read a ton of those, so I know everything about Reggie, Archie, yeah, yeah. Jughead, awesome. Moose, all those guys. And I will say... Yeah, um, as I transitioned to more traditional comics, um, Archie Comics did, uh, uh, they relaunched Archie books uh, a few years ago yeah. uh, with a more modern context. Yeah. It's so good. Is it? Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. Um, I, the art is, it pertains to the spirit of the original, but in a modern context, but it doesn't try to go too far. Hmm. So it doesn't, doesn't feel like they made them hipsters or like, if you looked at the characters and read it, you'd be like, those are the characters. Uh, they feel like Archie and Veronica and, and Betty and, and Jughead, but uh, with a slightly more modern kind of coat of paint. But again, it still feels like them. Is that what I haven't watched it? Is that what Riverdale that is kind of modeled after, or is that no, more of a darker? That's its own thing. Okay, um, definitely darker, but phenomenally interesting. People like it. Oh yeah, I, I loved it. <laughs> okay. um, I wasn't sure about it, and then I started watching it, and then Kelly would not watch it. She's like, I don't need another show. I'm like, oh, it's so good. Though. <laughs> um, it it's it's very deliberate there to it feels a little strange at times because it's it's very hyper aware like if the color palette of the show is unlike most shows like it's very yeah muted i guess yeah, yeah almost noirish at yeah, times yeah. Like, but yeah it's different like it's not it it has a sen- it doesn't have the same sense of it's whimsy. highly uh, you know contra- contradictory to the actual yes. little Archie comic books, oh. which are very bright, very colorful. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and again, it, it's trying to be edgier, and uh, you know, like uh, they recast Ms. Grundy as like a younger teacher having sex with Archie. Ah, like you're like, I didn't know that <laughs> first episode, so it's not a big it's not a big spoiler. It's one of the first things you find out. <laughs> Um, and like the first season is basically a murder mystery like someone's died mm. and they have to figure out who did it and, and why and again so it's kind of framed in this kind of noir context it's like a Veronica mars type kind of, of uh, show in some ways yeah <laughs> um, and uh, yeah no, but it's uh, honestly it's very entertaining but so Archie Comics were your, your game yeah yeah that was my thing like you know I was, cool. I was trying to see how I could contribute in some way to no, this no no that counts but yeah uh, that's how I did that like I was always aware of Spider-Man Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I had lots of t-shirts and stuff. For sure. But I, yeah, I just, I think uh, besides Archie, the only uh, sports kind yeah, yeah. of things kind of took consumed more of my time. That's fair. I, yeah. Unfortunately, as kids, it feels like it's either one thing or the other. Like, yeah. I, I didn't find many people really into sports and into comics. That wasn't really a cross-section. And, like, I was into baseball, but not until, like, a lot of other sports. So, like, I never felt like I was one of the sports guys. And uh, I wasn't good at sports. I wanted to be. I loved baseball. Neither was I. 
<laughs> but uh, but comic books again. I, my comic book real fandom didn't really start till like grade seven or eight. So like a lot later than most people when I talk to them, especially like a lot of these creators, they were introduced to comics like really early. Oh, actually, one thing I did forget to mention is that uh, I remember my barber shop, um, which I've been going to for thirty seven years now. Uh, they used to have comics, and they were really beaten up. Didn't wow. have covers or anything, but you could just read them while you're waiting to get your haircut. And one of them was a, a seminal storyline that now I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I got to read that. Basically, when it was coming out, when Spider-Man got his black costume, which was a big deal when it happened in the '80s, and I remember reading that first issue of when, when that happened. It was in a, this combo called Secret Wars, and it was just at my barber shop. Just another thing I picked up. Like I had no idea what the significance of. As a kid, you, you don't care. Um, and I know in another tangent, in the '90s, at some point, very early '90s. Uh, there was a lot of Disney comics that were produced, so I had a few Goofy comics or like mm. or Donald Duck comics. I don't know if they're really mine or my sister's. It's kind of been lost to the annals of time as to who who's they actually are. Uh, but when uh, this company called IDW got the license to start doing these uh, these Disney comics a few years ago, I decided I wanted these for Zach. So I started getting Donald Duck comics. So I would pick up Donald Duck in the actual um, individual issues, and Uncle Scrooge I would get in collected format. And I've been stockpiling them. So I just have tons of Uncle Scrooge comics and Dr. Donald Duck comics. And Zach knows them as the Duck comics. And uh, sometimes like they're in my behind him where I sleep. And he'll come up and jump into the bed. And he'll grab some of these and start looking through and he's reading Uncle Scrooge. That's awesome. So it's, and that's something I used to do. And I remember this comic book historian um, that, I, that I have talked to in the past, um, Peter Sanderson, had said that, you know, you start with the funny animal comics and you graduate to superheroes. Uh, whether or not you mean to or not, that's what a lot of kids, especially of his generation, did um, in the like, 50s and 60s. And that's kind of what I'm doing with Zach now. That being said, he's also seen superheroes in uh, many different formats. So it's he will probably reject superheroes at some point, and that's okay. I have to be okay with that. Possibly, but then you get into figurines or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, like my, my dad it was always like big into cars, big, in, big into um, home improvement and like uh, being handy. But his dad wasn't really handy, but his dad's dad was like a blacksmith, created his own tools and stuff. So it's almost like the handy gene skips a generation each time, okay. which means it would be Zach's turn uh, to kind of be the handy one and to be more interested in cars, which me and my grandfather did not. Um, so I, I joke that maybe uh, my son will be the son that my dad always wanted because <laughs> oh. he did not get that with me. Um, yeah, because I was not really into cars, not into tools and stuff, and I was into comics and other stuff. Yeah, well, everybody's got to have their own path. True, but as a parent, you want to be able to share things you love. And yeah. it's hard when you can't. Yeah. So I can respect that more now as a parent because I'm like, if Zach was like, fuck comics, I don't ever want to talk about them, that hurt me a little. Um, that being said, like, because a big, a big part of anything for me is, and this is why I do the podcast about the movies, is that I like to share. I, I want to see things. I want to experience things. But then I want to talk about them. I want to understand what other people thought about them and be able to share love of something is huge for me. So, like, uh, one of my favorite movies is Citizen Kane. Kelly will not watch mm-hmm. Citizen Kane. I try to get her to watch half of it. She's like, I hate this. Why would you make me watch this? And I'm like, oh, my God, I love this. I just want to talk about it. Like, it kills me. Um, in fact, like, Thursday... Uh, I was trying to um, trying to go see a movie with a friend of mine, but if he's not able to go, I might see Transformers alone. And I'm like, 
but then I have no one to talk to. Like, I, like I almost don't even want to go because, like, is it fun to go to a movie alone and not being able to talk about it? Because a huge part of that kind of experience for me is is the chat. It's the it's the dissecting. It's talking about it. Like when we saw Planet of the Apes. Yeah. There's more interesting to me because I got to talk about it with someone. It was just me alone. Yeah, it was a good same. movie. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> oh my god, it was amazing. I still think about it, but uh, but yeah, for me. I guess that's why I have a podcast more than anything is being able to talk about things I love uh, and being able to talk about it with people is always better. So a uh, couple questions. I'll ask both of them. Sure. You can pick which one you like. So one, uh, do you think that there will, there's still room for new comics to be created or we've, we're just going to keep rehashing a lot of the good old stuff? That's question number okay. one. Yeah. And question number two is, uh, did you ever have an idea for a comic yourself? Okay. Uh, I'll answer the second one first. Okay. I did. Horribly derivative. Terrible. <laughs> um, uh, summer of 2000, I was... 2000, doing, wow. I was, I was in summer school because I had failed a, a grade 11 math class. Which is funny because I'm a finance guy. <laughs> um, but I had failed Oh, math. this is about a math professor? <laughs> no. Oh. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, but I failed this math class. So a buddy of mine, uh, we're both in summer school for different reasons, different classes. Um, but uh, we started talking about like a comic book idea. Um, so it was called like, Changelings or something. It was supposed to be about... And I, I, I probably stole a lot of concepts without meaning to, like things that I read. And it was supposed to be about someone from like a... Uh, a, um, uh, basically, like a, a type of people that could change, like change into different animals, kind of like okay. an anamorphs type of thing. But that there would be like a, a totem that people could morph into. Which again, as I'm saying, I'm thinking of different comics it rips off from. Um, and that there would be like so, this one guy, the main protagonist, would be able to morph into like a wolf or have abilities from a wolf. Oh, Twilight. Well, <laughs> but, <laughs> but different people, different animals, and different yeah. totems, different kind of clans. And I think it was based from that premise. And then we would very lightly touch on plot and I think we plotted out like hundreds of issues of like what we would do very scant plant this is all over summer school all over summer school so like every day on the bus how much math was done well, in math class, I did my math, but, okay. then, but then we'd have reset, or not yeah, reset yeah. but like a break, uh, or on our way to and from school, I would just have a notebook out, and I was just jotting down ideas, and I'd type them all up, and for years, I had them all kind of wrapped up, and I don't know where they are anymore. They're terrible. Um, again, like, you don't realize when you're first doing this stuff how derivative it is, and how it's not original at all, but, uh, but for a long time, like, I really thought about doing this. And I had, again, I had tons of ideas, and then my buddy would sketch out some of the characters because he was. Do you draw? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Not so it's more of you're there, you'd be presenting the story, yeah, I, working I, with somebody. So I don't know if you know how comics are created. Um, I assume it's the same person that does most of the stuff, but no. Uh, no, maybe not, not anymore. No, no, never really. Um, so, I mean, the typical, I'll go back to the, the quote-unquote Marvel style of the 60s that became popular at Marvel Comics, is that Stan Lee was writing a lot of different books at once, so he couldn't do everything, uh, or, as the story goes, so he would write out a quick plot. So he'd say, now, accounts differ in just how, how detailed they were. Um, be like, Spider-Man fights a villain called blah, blah, blah. That might just be the plot. And then he'd give it to the artist, and the artist would go and actually devise the entire story. So he would actually come up with it. So he would illustrate everything and all the panel work based on a very generic plot. And so he's basically directing the scene. Like, he's doing everything that you see on the page in terms of the action. And then Stan Lee would come over, and he would script the dialogue. 
So there's no dialogue when he gets it. He just gets a page of artwork showing action mm-hmm. happening. And now he, it's his job to kind of determine what's going on, write uh, narration boxes, dialogue boxes, thought boxes, everything. And he scripts the issue. So he does the plot. You have the artist doing the actual breakdowns in the pencils. And then you have uh, him doing the script, the final scripting. Mm. Then you have an inker come along who actually cleans up the pencils and then adds definition with the blacks. Then you have a colorist, and then the co- they put on the colors. And then you have a letterer who would then, in the original days, actually letter everything. And that's your comic. So those are all different jobs. So the letterers... They, sorry, what, uh, letter everything. Is that, so they like, got, reinforce what the... So when Stanley writes a script, he's yeah. not putting it on the page yet. He's just indicating uh, that this is his, these are the dialogue boxes, etc., that are going to be in this So pen. the last person's like... The has, letterer has, actually... Has a nice way of writing calligraphy yes. or something. Originally, yes. Now okay. it's obviously all typed, and it's yeah. all like computers, right? Um, so you would have... So you have a penciler, an inker, a colorer, a letterer, and the actual writer. So you have five people working on the book. And you have the editor, who's actually editing the book. So there's actually a lot going on. And so back in the day, like a lot of them would be kind of around New York. New York is... All the Marvel heroes are based in New York because that's what Stanley knew. He lived in New York, and the major comic companies were centered in New York. So all the stories took place in New York. Uh, the artists knew how to draw New York because that's where they were from. So they would be, have uh, historical landmarks, and that was a big thing that set apart the Marvel comics as well because DC was set in Metropolis, Gotham City, Coast City. Isn't Central Gotham City. based off of New York? Uh, half that and half Chicago. Okay, uh, and especially the movies is outright Chicago. Uh, but they always took place in fictional locales, where suddenly Spider-Man swinging around in actual landmarks in New York. Yeah. Um, so it meant a lot for people. In fact, the, I don't know if you ever got these. There was a, a short run of uh, Canadian uh, Marvel comics. It was a, I think it was like a, I don't know if it was some, some branch of our government partnered with Marvel to make special comics uh, that were kind of learning aids or PSAs. Um, and they had one called Double Trouble. No, that's wrong. Hidden Run. And it was Spider-Man and Ghost Rider, and it took place in Toronto. No, uh, I didn't know and, and, and so the first issue, uh, you open up the first page, and it was just one issue, actually, sorry. But there was like five one-shots that were in Canada. And you have Spider-Man swinging uh, by the CN Tower. He's on the CN Tower, swinging off of it, <laughs> above the Sky Dome. And then he, he was on photo assignment, and he had to go take pictures of the players at Sky Dome. And uh, BJ Birdie, who was the uh, mascot oh, yeah, back yeah. then, he's in the book. And yeah, it's all set in Toronto. Um, so like they always grounded Spider-Man's world. They always felt like he was in a real place, which made it different. I don't know why I went on this tangent. Oh, so creating a comic. So yeah. those are the main jobs in a comic. So Stanley doesn't do art. Stanley was the plot guy and the scripter. Uh, so that's why people are very not always loving of Stan Lee because they wonder well how much did he really contribute sometimes to the creation of some of these characters uh, the joke I like how you're tying this into an earlier question I had yeah what's <laughs> um, interesting is that there's an issue for example I remember this was I believe on the Daredevil Director's Cut DVD uh, or maybe the regular DVD and there was this conversation with a few of the different artists I think it was that one I could be wrong anyways this guy named John Romita Jr. Uh, Senior was an amazing and very influential Spider-Man artist in the 60s and he introduced a character called the Kingpin, um, who was in the Daredevil movie and the Daredevil TV series played by Vincent D'Onofrio. And in the comics, he's this big, kind of bulbous, fat guy. Uh, but with a lot of strength, and he would just slam into you, and like, he, you think it's all fat, but it's really muscle. And he's, a, and he's the Kingpin of crime, so he's the, the head crime boss. Mm-hmm. So apparently, the, in the description for the next issue, so like the plot, he was just, uh, next month, Kingpin. That was it. 
there was no other dialogue, there was no other direction given this guy about <laughs> who this character even was. So that's why people sometimes wonder on how much Stanley really created these characters. And Stanley kind of thinks that, well, the character who thought up with it, the person who thought up the character is the creator. But a lot of people would say, well, what about the person who creates the visual aesthetic? Um, Spider-Man's costume is a huge part of what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's very distinctive. It's a full costume. You can't even see who's under the mask. It could be anyone. Um, that wasn't necessarily Stanley's idea. That was Steve Ditko's idea. So there's a lot of questions about the Marvel method may have uh, brought up a lot more problems than it than it crewed, than it solved. Obviously, for him, it made sh- that he could write a lot more comics if he was just doing basic plots, giving it out to the artists. They brought him full pages, and then right. he just scripted in, right? So there's a lot of controversy over that. I see. So he could really do more. He could. Uh, he was doing tons of books. He was doing tons of books and getting his name out there. Yeah. And why so, you probably see him more than he, anyone else. Well, he did a lot of good things, and I think some people like to discount the things he did that were good. Um, he was the number one marketing machine for comics. Like You could not... So at DC... Uh, for years, they didn't actually put the names on of who was actually working Who's on the issues. Who's the Stanley equivalent at DC? There isn't one. Okay. DC is a whole other thing. We can do it. Maybe that would be its own yeah. podcast. Because sure. uh, do you know what DC stands for? Uh, comics. Detective Comics. So technically, Detective. the name of the company is Detective Comics Comics. De- oh. Mm. Technically, it's dumb. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, there is no real like Stanley equivalent per se. Um, what Stanley was really good at is that he engaged the reader, readers at the time, very directly in his narration. So he'd be like, uh, you'd open up the book and something crazy would be happening. And he'd be like, are you, are, you, are you confused by this? Don't worry. Just flip the page and you'll see what's going on. And like, he's talking to the reader. Their narration talked to the reader. His letters pages talked to the reader. His, he had a, something called a soapbox bulletin or so stand soapbox, sorry, where he would directly talk to the reader. He would create fan clubs called the Merry Marvel Merchant Society. Yeah, and I've heard of that. Yeah. Uh, so he was really engaging this this readership in a way that had never been engaged before, uh, and talking so directly he grew to the them. brand almost mm-hmm. in a big way. Like, cause he yeah. and I'm pretty sure it. most comics still say Stanley presents. Like, so and he still gets paid by them, even though he hasn't been really involved in day to day operations for like years. Like, he was only editor in chief. Well, only he was editor in chief from the '40s to the late '60s, and then he left. Uh, but the big success that Marvel had wasn't until the 60s. So he had like 20 years in the industry with not a lot of success. There's a lot of infamous stories about the inciting incident that led him to finally kind of create the characters he wanted. Um, anyway, uh, you were asked a question about will comics continue? The answer is yes, because they're, they're still making new issues, they're still making new stories, still trying to push things in new directions. What about new characters? You don't really see... Nope, you do. All see time. the movies. Uh, the movies, no. The yeah. movies are slower, but you got to think about it that it's hard because... Like, who's the last, in your mind, mm-hmm. who's the last, most recent, yeah. uh, big-name comic book to get developed? Like, Into rapidly. Well, not just movie, but, like, you can already see, oh, wow, this guy's going to be huge, or this guy's already huge. That's hard or to girl. tell. Yeah, <laughs> that's hard to tell. And part of it's because the industry's changing, because superheroes used to be the norm, and they still are. They're still the bread and butter of the comic industry. But more and more, you're getting creator-owned comics, where creators are going to other publishers who... Uh, instead of working on established IP, they create their own stuff. 
and then they work on their own material. So you're seeing those comics are starting to hit it big. Like there's those two kick-ass movies. Yeah, those okay. those were independent technically. I mean, they were actually published through a line at Marvel called Icon, which was them trying to say, "Hey, we can do creator own stuff too." But they only really allowed like the two two of their top creators actually were able to kind of use that imprint. So it was owned by those two creators who created the product. Happened to be published and distributed by Marvel, but it was still Southern Book. So Kick-Ass was its own thing, and that obviously became a huge deal. Kingsman, another Kingsman, one. Yeah. So there are. There are uh, IPs getting out there that are becoming movies. Walking Dead is a huge behemoth, right? That was yeah. a, a little comic that you know they thought might run, run six issues. Very Sin limited. City was a comic book too. Yes, it was. It? Yeah, yeah. That, that's or a, a graphic a, novel. Yeah, that's a little bit older. I think that's closer to twenty years now. Walking Dead, I guess, is like more like 10, 15 years now. Okay. Which is crazy that it's been that long. Um, one so that Walking I only, Dead is a comic book that started just ten years ago and has blown up. I might be wrong. Huge, might might no. be fifteen, but yeah. But it's 2,000-plus almost? Yeah. Wow. Started, yeah, it started after the year 2000. And uh, it was, a, again, a creator-owned book at Image Comics, which does a lot of um, publishing of these creator-owned books, and it just happened to hmm. light a spark, and uh, it's become a, a behemoth. Oh, it's, it's still, massive. It still continues. I think it's in, like, issue 160 or 170 or something, so it's been running for a long time. I guess uh, I don't, like, I... I haven't watched too much of The Walking Dead. I know of mm-hmm. its fame and a lot of good things. Like people yeah. uh, love that that type of genre. For sure. I just didn't realize it was a comic book. Yeah. Well, sometimes yeah, sometimes you don't know. If it's not superheroes, you probably wouldn't necessarily draw exactly. that connection, right? Because so I think that's where maybe my point is. I guess Kick Ass is kind of a superhero, and Absolutely. Kingsman is kind it's of a type superhero. Of yeah. Like they have some type of special power. Yeah. Um, well, I think. So I think it's next year. Uh, Sony's doing Ant Man. He seems pretty novel, new. No, no. He's well, a- Ant Man. The original Ant Man is from 1962. Wow, or okay. three or 63. Okay, so, so he was one of the founding Avengers in the comics, actually. Yeah. Um, now the version of Ant Man we got in the movie, I think, is from the 70s. Uh, he was the second Ant Man. Um, they wanted to take the Ant Man character in a different direction, so they created a new version of the character. So yeah, it's not Black new at all. Panther's been around for yeah, mid, fifty years. Mid mid sixties, yeah. yeah. He actually Doctor pre- Strange, uh, early sixties. Yeah, Stanley. Yeah, like he created a lot of those. Uh, Deadpool is relatively new. I say relatively. He was yeah, cool. like ninety one. <laughs> like, no, that, that's good because I was going to say, is there anything from the nineties or two thousands that yeah, I mean, seen? there was that a, sounds like we found. You've named a couple. Yeah, so. there was Deadpool. Uh, there's Cable, who's going to be in the next Deadpool movie. Uh, Spawn had a movie in like ninety seven. Yeah, he was created in the early nineties. Never heard much about that lately. No, uh, Hellboy uh, is relative. It was, I believe, in the nineties. Um, he's had two movies and I yeah. think he's getting a TV series now um, a comic that I always wished would have been a, uh, a TV series which probably got screwed in some ways by Once Upon a Time uh, oh yeah is a, my wife loves that show I am a season behind but I'm slowly <laughs> getting through it again because I used to I used to be very on top of it um, sorry I just want to say like I don't watch it I just yeah. see bits and pieces yeah but it I feel like they're throwing every fairy tale, every... So, (laughs) Joy should read a a book called Fables. Fables, okay. Uh, Fables is basically, when it starts, it's about this place in New York called Fable Town. And uh, regular non-magic people, or non-fairy tale people can't see it or don't don't realize what it is. But in, in, um, in this town, Fable Town, you have all the characters of a lot of different fairy tales you get this idea that a major war happened in their original lands. They were basically scared off their land and they escaped into our world. 
and now that that's where they live. So uh, sounds like Once Upon a Time. Yes, but it's very different. Okay. Uh, and the characters they use are a lot more obscure at times. Um, yeah, I mean, you have. I won't spoil stuff in yeah. case you ever read it. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I don't own it all, unfortunately. Um, but uh, the main characters at the beginning are like Snow White. She's running the administrative office for this small town. Uh, you have a Bigby Wolf, who's the big bad wolf. Uh, he's the sheriff. Um, it, or the first like chapters of it is actually a, uh, a murder mystery of who, like one person they think someone's dead, so they have to find who killed them. And then it goes a lot crazier from there. There's a place called the farm where the fairy tale characters who are not as can't pass for human they're all on the farm up north uh and so there's like the the three little pigs are there like every fairy tale you can think of every kind of character like that you can ever imagine is in this book and it predates once upon a time and i think it's a lot it's very superior to once upon a time uh as much as i like once upon a time don't get me wrong this is very different and i think that as much as they're different uh on the on the face they sound so similar that's probably what killed the fables show is that they got Once Upon a Time off the ground first. Show or book? Or, oh, uh, that, no, the show never got made. The show never got made, yeah, no. Okay. Uh, the comic ended at issue 150, um, but it, it ran for over 10 years. Um, Once Upon a Time must have like the support and backing of like Disney or something. Oh, it's, it's owned and created by ABC. Okay. And ABC is owned by Disney. Okay. So that's why they're able to use all the Disney characters. That's why they were able to bring in characters from Frozen. Yeah, uh, I was from, like, from I was Brave. shocked that Frozen was in there so and quick. And Brave. They brought in a yeah. character from Brave yep. from Pixar. Um, yeah, so they dabble in all sorts of that kind of stuff uh, because, and they're able to use the Disney versions of those characters uh, in ways that other people can't. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a big hit. It's it's waning because it's it, it's getting into a seventh season, which I didn't even realize. Seven, wow! So it starts seven, and I didn't realize that most of the main cast is gone, um, and that it's got a new protagonist. Um, but yeah, I didn't know because again, I'm a season behind, so yeah. I saw the trailer for season yeah. seven. And I'm like, holy crap! What the hell? Like I had no idea. Was it Rumpelstiltskin? Was uh... He's still in it? Yeah, he's got short hair now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you know he was the the uh, he was a, a villain in a Bond movie? No, I didn't know he was the villain. Yeah, he was, well, he was one of the two main villains, and I believe it was the world is not enough. Never enough. Is not enough. Okay, I don't know. Yeah, I could be wrong. Any other questions? <laughs> We've rambled a long time. Yeah, we have. Uh, no, I, I think uh, no. Uh, thanks for diving in on that whole uh, Stan Lee. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a, I mean, he was in the news lately and everything. So well, his wife kinda, passed away, right? Yeah, um, and she. Like she, she was actually the voice on uh, the Spider-Man animated series. There was a, a character named Madame Web, and apparently uh, they wanted to use her. The creator wanted to use her of the show, um, John Semper Jr., and so he really wanted to bring in this character, and they, he was told no. And one of the reasons he was told no was because he was told that they, the point of the show of this uh, was to create action figures. That was what they were told. And he's like, you can't make someone that I... How am I going to make an action figure out of this? So apparently they use this character. They actually did create an action figure of this woman. Her name is Madame Webb. She is paralyzed, and she sits in a chair. And he's like, how do I make an action figure out of this? Anyways, she was voiced by Stanley. In the last episode of the series, this character traverses dimensions with Spider-Man. A little bit crazy for a Spider-Man thing. And uh, she brings him to this reality where Stanley exists. And in, he's the creator of, of Spider-Man. So it's kind of our world, but it's animated. And, uh, and they have a brief point where Madam Web and Stanley meet each other. And that's Stanley and his wife actually yes. on screen together. And uh, that's kind of... And so he always said that was really cool. 
that, that he was able to cast Stanley's wife and actually have them meet on screen, yeah. which was cool. But yeah, she, she recently passed away, and at some point, Stan's going to pass away. And Do you think that'll have an impact on the comic book world, or he's not really a... You know, no, doing much these days. <laughs> he, no, he, I mean, realistically, like he hasn't actively been writing comics since like the early seventies. If even that, wow. if it actually might have been the late sixties. So like active day to day actual writing, like that doesn't mean he hasn't written stuff because he wrote some one shots here and there. He wrote a story here and there, but he wasn't writing like a. Uh, although I'll take it back, he I don't know if he's still writing it because we don't get it in Canada. But there's a Spider Man newspaper strip that he wrote. For, mm. since it started I think it started in the 70s uh, and I think he's still writing it now but I don't t- take my word on that because again we don't know we're in Canada we've never, never even seen this Spider-Man t- uh, newspaper strip but it does exist uh, so I guess that's what he's doing but, and he makes a lot of convention appearances and he's in every movie and he's oh, yeah. doing cameos everywhere except Logan he wasn't in Logan no and, <laughs> he, and he's been in some movies where technically he, had, he didn't create the character yeah, uh, I mean, he was in uh, Deadpool. Deadpool. He had nothing to do yeah. with that. Uh, in fact, the I think act- he just liked it. <laughs> yes, well, he got to be in a strip club. Um, that's exciting as, a, as the DJ, right? So, yeah, oh, very cool. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Uh, I don't. Yeah, it, the industry is very. As the years have gone on, there's a, it's very polarizing whether or not you love him or you hate him. There's the there's almost like the mythology of Stanley. Uh, there's a lot of stories that people aren't even sure that how true they are, but like the creation of the Fantastic Four, that kind of stuff. And then again, how much he really had, had involvement in the creation of some characters. Um, Spider-Man is kind of one of the most contentious ones that exists because him and the creator, Steve Ditko, were very much at loggerheads. Um, and to the point where it sounds like Stan, uh, Steve would bring in his, his, his pencils and wouldn't even see Stan. Like they wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't talk to each other. Wow. They were working on a book and the first 38 issues of Amazing Spider-Man are considered to be the Amazing Spider-Man issues to read. But the creative team didn't talk to each other. Like, and, uh, and, and, and disagreed with each other, didn't really get along with each other. Uh, Steve Ditko uh, was a, a, fo- a follower of the principles of Ayn Rand, uh, who was big in the 60s period. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that he is very much kind of an authoritarian in his beliefs, but he was creating a, a seminal teenage character who was not authoritarian at all. Uh, so it's very interesting kind of outlook. Contrast. Yeah, and the more you read about it, the more you don't understand how those two men ever got along. Um, and Stan that's in a lot of relationships business partnerships well and I guess the problem that Steve Ditko has been on record as saying now Steve Ditko a lot of people don't know who he is Um, part of that is that uh, there are no pictures of Stan of Steve Ditko. Um, the only pictures you can, anyone has ever found is from the 60s. Uh, he will not be photographed. He will not be put on, on uh-huh. video. He won't talk to people. Um, he used to, um, people used to send him correspondence and he would take it like it's original still artwork. Alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Wow. He still has a studio. He's still doing art. Uh, wow. You know, and he must be like, I think it's late 80s. And uh, there was a whole documentary in the BBC called uh, In Search of Steve Ditko. And they finally kind of found him and they begged him <laughs> to be able to do an interview with him. They said no. Uh, but they let him go in. He actually got to meet him and talk to him. There was no cameras included. Uh, and him and another comic creator actually went uh, there. And uh, yeah, like he'd be great for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, sure. He doesn't do anything. But it's fascinating because. So you have one on the on the one hand you have Stanley who's extremely busy, everywhere yeah. wants to be in the public limelight yeah. he always wanted to be 
He wanted to be a star. He wanted to be as big as his creations were. In a lot of ways, he is. And then you have a guy who never wanted that and is very private and to the point where almost, like there's no pictures that exist of the man. Like You could not find two polar opposites of people. Yeah. Um, it's very rare in today's world. Yeah. To well, have but somebody time, as... Not. No. You know, like for the guys who are in their 80s and 90s, like, I mean, the thing about comics is they, oh, they always assumed that the industry was going to implode within a year. You know, like they never thought it was going to continue. Still going. It's still going. It's different. It's gone through many changes, but it still exists. And now the problem is that a lot of people think that the Marvel, especially, is basically just an IP house kind of just churning out stuff that will eventually be adapted for movies and that they're not trying as hard to really lead the industry in the same way as they used to. Um, there's varying degrees of thought on that, um, but it's hard to argue with some of the points. But uh, obviously, they are an IP factory. They're creating movies. Let's see how long those continue for. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting with the movies that you're seeing movies ad- ad- adapting material that's relatively recent. So, Civil War is based on a storyline from 2006, so it's actually pretty recent stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Logan movie, very. It's not really based loosely on... Loosely old. It's very loosely based on Old Man Logan, which yeah. is, what, seven years old, maybe? Um, there was parts of um, the upcoming Thor movie that's based on a storyline called Planet Hulk, uh, which is maybe ten years old now, uh, maybe a little bit more. So, like, you're getting modern things are being kind of wedged into that's these cool. movies. Yeah. Which is cool, yeah, for sure. Uh, so you're getting more modern ideas are being included. Uh, there was a character in Spider-Man Homecoming that every time I saw him on screen, I was like, how is this not that other character? So... In the Spider-Man universe, it was very complicated and then with continuities and stuff. So Marvel said in 2000, let's create a version of our comics that are more reader-friendly. We're going to call it the Ultimate Spider-Man Universe. And we're going to go back to the beginning. Spider-Man's 15 years old, but he's living in our world, our modern world. The internet exists, phones exist. It's not in the 60s anymore, it's modern. And we're going to start it from scratch and have this character become Spider-Man, and we're going to do it all, all new. So the writer is Brian Michael Bendis, the guy I mentioned earlier, who knew who I was. And so he comes up with this six-issue kind of arc, um, which is... So the original story that Spider-Man appeared in, that was his origin, was, I believe, 12 pages long. That's it. And in that original story, Spider-Man gets his powers, becomes a wrestler, is able to defeat a wrestler to win money. Um, then, while he's getting his gets money... A camera? And, hmm? Well, <laughs> yeah, it goes on TV. I actually think he goes on TV... And then um, it gets, gets the outfit, builds the web shooters, lets a, a, a criminal go by him, then he goes home, finds his uncle's dead, captures his uncle's killer, realizes it's the burglar, Spider-Man's born. Twelve pages. That's it. Like, that's concise. Like, it's one yeah. of the best comic book origins that exist, and the fact that they did it in twelve pages, I think it was twelve, uh, in, in the last issue of a book that was being cancelled, um, and so it was just kind of being thrown in there, because the publisher of Marvel Comics said, no one's going to read this. No one's going to want a character named Spider-Man. No one wants a teenager to be a superhero. Superheroes are like adults. Uh, teenagers are sidekicks, not heroes on their own. And no one likes spiders. Spiders are yucky. No one's going to want that. Mm-hmm. And it became one of the biggest characters in comic history. Um, so no one expected it to do anything. So 12 pages. Ultimate Spider-Man takes six issues to basically get him in the costume. So like it takes that long. So you go from... So to put that in context, that's approximately... I can't remember if they're regular size issues or not, but that's at least 120 pages. Wow. <laughs> to do what Stanley did in 12. But in this six-issue storyline, he's able to go and really flesh out these characters in a way we never saw before. Um, Uncle Ben, in the original, is dead within you know eight pages of being introduced. We barely see him. 
we never really get a sense of who Uncle Ben is. In this, we have issue, like issues of issues. He's kind of a hippie Uncle Ben, like he's got like a ponytail and he's got like white hair. But um, you actually get a sense of who this person is before he dies. You actually care more when he dies. So they it's have more this, of a backstory. Yeah, and so, anyways, it catches on. They they didn't really expect this to sell well. It sold extremely well, and ended up, it ended up running. What, like 130 issues or something and the same creative team actually did 111 issues together within a and they were doing like 18 issues a year like the guy who was the illustrator uh, was a machine like he's one of my favorite pencilers and he's just so fast most guys are slow he, he's one of the fastest guys in the business and it keeps a high level of quality so they do this book anyways at some point they relaunch, they relaunch one of the titles I could stop reading it I wasn't really liking the new direction. Anyways, they decided to kill off Peter Parker in this universe because they can do whatever they want in this universe. They've done a lot of crazy things up until that point. So they decided to kill him off and then the idea is that he dies, everyone finds out it was Peter Parker, this kid who became Spider-Man and was fighting for, for everyone else. So this this kid uh, becomes um, gets bitten by a spider, just like Spider-Man, the same type of spider, and decides he's going to honor Peter Parker's legacy and become Spider-Man too. So he's this, uh, I guess, Latino, half Latino, half African-American character named Miles Morales, who I think I might have mentioned on our Homecoming podcast. Yeah. Um, so he... Oh no, we didn't do a homecoming podcast. No, I, I did. Yeah. I did it in the car with a buddy of mine. Yeah. So I did talk about it though. So he becomes the, all the this new version of Spider Man. Anyways, his best friend he goes to a science academy, and his best friend is this guy named Genki. And Genki finds out his identity, and anyways, he shares with him everything, and it's you get to see Spider Man actually having a confidant who loves superheroes, thinks superheroes are the coolest, and now knows that his best friend Spider Man. Does that sound like the character Ned Lee from Home? Have you seen Homecoming? I haven't yet. Oh my god! That's okay. okay. I haven't really spoiled a lot because if you've seen no, any no. trailers, you'll see that. But he has. I a... know the character, like when you said Hispanic or Spanish well, no. or something. Well, he did. So there's Gank, a friend. There and, is a friend who's yeah. kind of uh, of uh, and ethnicity. I don't even know what he is yeah. in the comics. Anyways, this character in Homecoming is clearly derived from that version of the character. Like he doesn't have that name, but the way he acts, the way he kind of kind of looks looks like that character but they didn't change but they changed his name so I guess maybe they didn't have to pay the guy who created the character <laughs> I don't know but it just seems so bizarre to me but but that's an influence from Ultimate. for sure so that that universe has created this version and of the character that's relatively new too very new in the yeah. last five years wow. and that's been that adapted uh, and then next year Sony's putting out an animated movie with Miles Morales as Spider-Man oh. so I don't know how that's going to work um, but again that character is less than seven years old and he's already going to be like in a movie and people are going to see him he's been in a, in a cartoon already so like you talk about like are some of these characters getting to be in new media they are uh, there's a character called Nova we saw the Nova Corps in Guardians of the Galaxy yes. 1 very different in the comics they actually all have powers um, and they have uh, they, they have the helmets and then they have they basically turn into human rockets those rock- are the gold people right yes they turn into human rockets yeah. uh, and one of them is human anyways or at least was human uh, they created a new version of the Nova character in God, I think it was like six years ago. And it was that character was or, is already shown up in, in cartoons, and they've speculated that maybe he'll eventually show up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Will probably be that version of the character. So these characters are showing up. Uh, a character that I would love to see in the movies, but I don't know how they pull it off, is a character called uh, Miss Marvel. There's been many Miss Marvels over the years, but this one in particular is really interesting. Um, she's a Muslim uh, who's inspired by another character called Miss Marvel, who's no longer going by that name. She gets superpowers, and she can get super big or super small, basically. Mm. She can just kind of shapeshift. 
Um, and that's her shtick, and she's Miss Marvel. And hmm. she, her comic is amazing. I've never read anything like it. Um, so that's a character that's kind of blown up, and uh, the, uh, there's a lot of cross-generational appeal on that character. So there are some of these characters that are, yeah, no, you know, that. are showing up and are doing well, and uh, you know, and they're creating fan bases, and um, you know, they are trying to generate maybe just new IP. Uh, there's a, a TV series coming to Hulu, I believe, this year called Runaways, which looks amazing, um, and it's based on a comic from 2004. Or three, so again, relatively new, and it's about these these kids who their parents get together once, like a, I don't know how often it's supposed to be, but a couple times per year. So all these kids get together, and they know each other, but they don't necessarily like each other. But their parents are all friends, and I think we can all kind of speak to that yeah. in some way, right? But uh, so one of the times they get together, they accidentally find out that their parents are super villains, and, <laughs> and they're like, "Well, we we, we got to go on the run," which is why they're called runaways because they run away from home and they become a kind of a tier, team of superheroes, basically fighting their parents, parents. Uh, and trying to stop their parents from doing their their evil deeds. Um, the first eighteen issues of the book is probably the best that book ever was, and I have it in three big hardcovers. I think it's eighteen issues, uh, but it's so good. And uh, that's going to be a TV series. So, like, that's mm-hmm. relatively new IP and uh, a very kind of strong, engaging story. It doesn't need to take place in the universe of superheroes. It just needs to take place in its own particular universe. And uh, the characters, like, one of them is two of them. I think two of the parents are magicians. Uh, um, two of the parents are aliens. So they're evil magicians. Yes. Um, <laughs> One of them, and then uh, one of them has like a, a dinosaur, like a little pet dinosaur. Anyways, very different characters, and so the kids are kind of like that. There's one of the kids is a mutant. She's like ten years old, but super strong. But if she uses her super strength, she gets really tired and falls asleep. Like she's just a little girl, but she gets like super strong. Um, they have one girl who, uh, if she if she bleeds, um, she can activate the staff, and the staff she can do any spell, but she can only ever use every spell once. Um, anyways, it kind of goes from there. And, but they're a really interesting cast of characters, and they're getting their own TV series, which is really cool. There's an upcoming TV series called The New Warriors. Um, no, they're not new characters in any way. And I don't know why they're called The New Warriors, because almost no one on the team is actually a new warrior from the comic. Um, instead, the marquee character is a character called Squirrel Girl, which was a character who showed up, I think, in the late 80s, actually created by Steve Ditko. Well, I heard about this. You heard of a squirrel girl? Well, uh, Anna Kendrick is supposed to be playing her, or was... Uh, she had wanted to. Wanted to, but yeah. now it's a TV series, and I believe someone else has the Okay. Role. Yeah. Uh, but Squirrel Girl is a character who talks to squirrels. Like, it's yeah. ludicrous. And, but they let the character get away with, like, some crazy feats in the comics. Hey, Spider-Man, Squirrel Girl. Why not, right? <laughs> and, but she's become, become, kind of become a cult character. Uh, that people love so I mean there's crazy stuff well it sounds like you have lots of content to think about for your next 500 episodes god yes I don't know if we're going to go 500 more <laughs> uh, at some point uh, at some point it'll stop but uh, it's a fun ride and again as long as I'm uh, having a good time with it and I'll keep doing it and I the fact that we keep getting so many comic book movies every year means I have a ton of content for that uh, we're going to do a few more this year we have Kingsman that you're, you and I are going to see I guess yes and I haven't seen the first one, so I got to get on that. Um, there's the Thor movie, there's the Justice League, and then there's Star Wars. And then in February, there's uh, Black Panther. Like, it's just, it just never stops. It's hard to believe there was ever a time when you barely had any comic book movies. Uh, what's the first comic book movie you ever saw? Comic book movie? Um, probably Batman or Superman. 
I'm guessing. I was gonna say, oh yeah, I, w- I was gonna say X Men, but then I was like, no, I, s- I definitely saw yeah. the Riddler and, yeah, okay. and uh, Mr. Freeze. Okay. <laughs> so Batman, I say Batman. Okay. Yeah. Which, do you know which ones? Uh, so let's give you context. The one I remember the most yeah. is uh, the one with I guess Clooney as Batman. That was the fourth one of that that era. Uh, that's I believe in '97. Yeah. Uh, so that's George Clooney, Chris O'Donnell, Dick Rob against Mr. Spree- Mr. Freeze, and Poison Ivy. Uh, two years before that was Batman Forever. Wait, I did see that one. That with, was uh, with uh, the Riddler, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was with um, Val Kilmer. No, or he, he was, was in Mr. Freeze. Yeah. Val Kilmer was Batman. Okay. And then you had uh, before that in '92, you had Batman Returns. So it was Michael Keaton as Batman with Michelle Pfeiffer. As I have seen that one since, but I don't know if I saw it okay. in theaters at the time. Uh, that would then, have been 11. Yeah, <laughs> the first Batman came out in '89, and I feel like I saw it in '89 or '90, which I don't know how my parents thought that was a good idea. <laughs> Is there like helicopter parents who are like super like sensitive about you know certain things? Like yeah. they wouldn't let me watch like Fresh Prince because they some of the language and ex- oh dear. Well, and, and even Simpsons, they wouldn't let me watch Simpsons because the the par- the kids were disrespectful to the adults, all this stuff, right? So at some point, they gave me. Um, I guess they bought a used copy at a, at a video store, a Batman one, and I must have been six or seven years old, maybe. Like, if this, if this was late 90, I'd be just about seven. And I love that movie. I loved it then, I love it now. I love the music in that movie by Danny Elfman, but I got in so much trouble because of that movie, because there was a swear word in that movie. And I would repeat it, not realizing it was a swear. So there's a part where Batman is, is flying towards uh, the Joker in his uh, bat plane, or bat wing, whatever you want to call it. So he's flying towards him, and he's you know he's got his target locked on him. Which, if you ever watch it, it doesn't make any sense, and I will rip that part of the movie apart. But Joker just looks at him, and he's like, "Come and get me! Come and get me, you son of a bitch!" So I repeated that to my mom. Come and get me, you son and of a I bitch. was in so much trouble. She was like, you do not say that. And I was like, it's from the movie. She's like, that is a bad word. I am so much trouble because of that movie. Come and get me, you son of a bitch. Do not say that to your parents. So maybe that, that was why there were shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Fantastic movie, though. Like, that's, uh, that's, all right, well, that's, uh, that's it for our segment. Well, thank uh, you. Move on to uh, the next segment. I feel like um, in between segments, I should almost have like a, a chime. Like, remember those books on tape when you were a kid? And you'd have that chime, and would be like, now you have to flip the page. Shenanigans. There's your chime. There you go. All right. <laughs> I well, give you permission to use it. <laughs> thank you. One more time. Can you play us out? Shenanigans. segment we have uh, listener uh, David Lotempio joining us uh, as we talk about his uh, his favorite comic Captain America 175 uh, in the background to this audio unfortunately in the last five minutes or so you're going to hear a three and a half year old crying out for daddy daddy don't worry I'm not a neglectful parent I'm just trying to not let him win when he needs to be going to bed and it's nine o'clock at night so I apologize for the audio as in the background you're going to hear a little bit of this daddy 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 anyways my sincerest apologies there was also a few different uh, audio issues that uh, cropped up just with regards to the Skype call with David it wasn't anyone's fault but uh, there will be at times where it goes really really quiet and then we'll go back to regular volume so we try to account for it as much as possible it shouldn't interrupt the flow too much just only a little bit that kind of drops off a little, but you can kind of figure out what's going on. Anyways, uh, let's get right into the conversation with uh, listener David Lotempio. Okay. 
I'm uh, I'm Dave Lutempio. I go by the ID of Dilo Tempio on the Marvel Masterworks forum, and I've been a reader of comic books since I uh, since the '70s, since I was a kid. And um, and my favorite comic book is Captain America and the Falcon, number one seventy five, uh, which has a cover date of July. 1974, and uh, and so Kevin, uh, Adam, this is uh, your usual question for a professional: is how did you get first get into comics, or what was your first exposure? And this book is quite possibly the first comic book I ever owned, definitely one of the earliest. And um, it's important to me, uh, and it remains important to me after all these years um, for, all, for actually quite a few reasons. Um, one, uh, very personal. Two, um, also, uh, it, it kind of epitomizes um, comic book storytelling in the last half of the 20th century, and um, particularly Marvel comics. And also, <laughs> you can't escape it, the political underpinnings in this book. And this book, this comic book, was, had a really important impact on me. And, uh, and anyway, I've, it stayed with me for many, many years, and I still have the original here in my, uh, in my, in, in my hands right now. So Wow. A great, great book. So it had a huge impact on you. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally, totally. Um, I mean, so first off, like, personally, this was, uh, this was important to me because uh, it was also a gift. When I was um, when growing up, my uh, I, my grandparents lived around the corner from where my school was, my grammar school. And sometimes my grandfather would pick me up and walk me, uh, take me back to their house, and I would stay with them until my parents could, uh, you know, get done with work. Coincidentally, along the way back to their house, there was a comic book shop, and so sometimes he would stop and he would uh, and he would buy me a comic book of course at that point which was a quarter and um, and so that started me on my love of comics but the other interesting thing for me personally is that these comics were actually this act this generosity was one of the few um, touchstones I had with my my grandfather he what came off the boat he was an immigrant from Italy and he still had an accent after, I don't know, 50-odd years in the States. <laughs> and, um, and you know, we didn't... I mean, he's an older man. I'm a young kid. You don't naturally have anything in common to talk about. Um, but, you know, we, had, we were also separated by, you know, a vast amount of time and cultural experiences. And so, you know, it was just interesting to have this shared experience with him. Now, he didn't really like the comic books. I mean, or I should say he didn't dislike them. But he didn't, he didn't, you know, it wasn't a matter of him, like, really having affinity for them. But it was this this thing where we shared um, this experience as I was growing up as a, as a young you know, as a young boy. And so it's, um, you know, it's one of those things where this book and some other books that uh, he bought for me, I still hold on to. Uh, and, and have a lot of emotional investment in because of this this tie. Mm-hmm. 
and actually th- this experience also happened with a couple other couple other books and with different people so um, anyway this is one that's this is the first reason why this is important to me because hmm. so uh, I re- whenever I look at this story or this book I remember my grandfather and just uh, the kindness mm-hmm. and generosity uh, and nurturing that he, he you know he gave to me so it's interesting. I mean, my I, I have a. It's very different than yours because mine wasn't a grandfather. Mine was my father. But my father and I never had a lot of common interests. Um, he was very much like into, you know, cars, do-it-yourself kind of stuff. And I just never gravitated in that area. And uh, but I I ended up being a big comic book fan. But the first few comics I ever read were from him. And uh, and there's one in particular which is uh, I think it's Adventure Comics. I know the exact number, but right now I'm blanking on it for some reason. And anyways, it's this Adventure Comics issue with, um, I believe, Superman and The Flash. And I don't know how he even had it in his possession when I was a kid because it's from 1972. And he always says he didn't really like comics. He stopped reading them when he was a kid. But he was 22 years old, so I don't explain that. But um, he gave it to me, and I wore the crap out of that thing. And eventually, uh, for me, it's a touchstone because it was something that he gave to me. And it's even though he doesn't like comics at all or never really talks about them and always wishes I would kind of give up the hobby, it always meant something that this comic book came from my dad. So I remember years ago on Father's Day, I, you know, I, I found a, a good copy of this comic and gave it to him, and I'm pretty sure he didn't care. But for me, it, but for me, it meant something. Sorry, I was wrong. It was Superman 222 from 69, so I was wrong about the year as well. But um, you know that that meant a lot to me, and I wish it meant more to my dad. And maybe it does deep down in his uh, black heart. But uh, unfortunately, like, but for me, it will always mean something because whenever I see that comic, I just think of my dad, and I think of one of the first times I ever read a comic. At least in your instance, though, yours is a great comic. Mine is not. <laughs> well, I. <laughs> This comic is a particularly lucky, uh, just because of, of, of its other significance to it. But you know, there trust uh, trust me, Adam. I, I, there are a bunch of other clunkers that I still hold on to that are important. Um, I mean, and not to go too far off on this tangent, but you know, it's I am actually touched to hear that story because uh, I also had a similar experience with my father. My father was a uh, was a plumber, uh, to, uh, a, a skilled trade. To which I had absolutely no interest in <laughs> whatsoever, um, and and so and he also he was also very big in sports, which I was not uh, very big in sports at all, and so we we again we didn't have much in common, but there were a few touchstones for us, um, which to this day always strike me as odd, and we we both enjoyed Doctor Who. Okay. <laughs> we, both, we both watched Star Trek for some reason, and he liked Conan the comics, uh, Conan the Barbarian by Marvel Comics, and so I had amassed as as uh, he bequeathed to me uh, this huge collection of Conan comics um, through the years. Um, now he doesn't really have much interest in them at all. The same thing where I've I've gotten some of the later day collections to show him. Uh, because our the original comics have all gotten tattered, and he was he's amused, but he has no interest in reading them anymore. So, <laughs> but you know that's irregardless. There there's still time. We now we enjoy our our company in other ways, and he coaches me through plumbing. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk <laughs> about comics. So for sure. Um, uh, wow. So the, as I said, Captain America one seventy five. A lot of significance to that issue. A good issue. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, that, it's, I mean, wh- what about the comic that really strikes you? Or, I mean, obviously it's a legendary comic and a lot of people like that run, but what is it about it in particular that really always stands out to you besides just the emotional connections? Sure. Well, there's actually, there's there's the other, the two and three, the other uh, things. So the first one, or the second one, is the experience of reading a comic, especially one and um, typifying, I think there, there are things, there are, Aspects of this book that typify modern comics in the last half of the 20th century. So, for in, what do I mean by that? Well, for instance, this isn't just when you read this. This is not just the end of uh, the Secret Empire story. I, uh, sorry, I should should explain that to any of the readers. So, in Captain America 175, it is the um, climax of a long serial that ran for about five or six issues. Uh, in fact, actually extends before that if you follow some of the subplots. And it's all about Captain America fighting a secret conspiracy called the Secret Empire in the Marvel Universe. The Secret Empire has tarnished his reputation and that of the Falcon. Uh, they have been um, they have been working to install a replacement hero called Moonstone and they have also um, basically captured and enslaved mutants throughout the Marvel Universe, including the X-Men at this point by 175. And so anyway, you get to this issue, and you start – and if you can imagine – I would like the reader to – or listeners to think about this. So you're picking – imagine this is your first book that you're, you're picking up, and suddenly there are at least six months' worth of continuity that you don't know. Furthermore, there's about almost a half dozen other characters, including the X-Men, who you might not know. It's not even their book. Um, and then you've got Gabe Jones and Peggy Carter who show up from, uh, from S.H.I.E.L.D. And, um, and, and then about, well, about three or four pages in, oh, sorry, on page six, you have this huge two-page or page-and-a-half info dump about Gabe Jones's experience fighting the Secret Empire back in the 1960s um, in Tales to Astonish. Uh, and by the way, they explain here at the end, they said, oh, and at last, old-time true believers, we've provided an actual representation of Gabe Jones's brilliant defeat of the Secret Empire, advertised but never shown in 1966. And so when I, and I, I remember reading this thinking, what the heck? <laughs> it's like you suddenly, I, I, you know, I don't know any of this stuff. I have no experience with any of this stuff. And uh, there are, there are, they're referencing adventures with the Hulk and the Submariner, uh, two characters who I didn't care a whit about at the time. And uh, and, and you know, and uh, and and so I, you kind of need to know this to really enjoy those that page and a half of this this you know whatever uh let's see 1966 so 74 that would be eight years this a climax to a story that occurred eight years before (laughs) right and then the the whole abduction the the subplot about abducting the the mutants is something that steve inglehart had been building up through a bunch of other comics um the hulk um i the beast and amazing adventures bunch of other places oh even the avengers align and so yeah you suddenly you need you 
if you really wanted to have the maximum enjoyment for the story, you needed to know that. That said, somehow, this book still works. As a, you know, when I was a kid, and I still was able to follow it and understand it, and, um, and, and it piqued my curiosity for those experience, those stories in the past. And it, I suddenly, you know, it told you, it clued you in, you know, there's other things going on in this, in this universe. We'll take care of you with this story. We'll tell you everything that you need to know and make it sure that this is a Captain America comic. But if, <laughs> by, by the grace of God, if you happen to have a comic book shop in your neighborhood, you might be able to go back and find these things. But there's no guarantee. Because, of course, back in the 70s, which was way before the Golden Anyway, you know, so that was one of those, that was an experience where, you know, this book didn't, was very forgiving, but it, this was the type of thing that we still see today where your enjoyment of a book, of a title, may be greater or enhanced if you happen to know the other things that have gone on that have occurred to it. You know, there's a, there's this accretion of, of stories and subplots, and, and, and a good writer uh, somehow knows how to tie all that stuff together without losing you. Um, so anyway, that was one of the things. And also, um, the art by Sal Bushima was, um, and, 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 and actually a decent art job by Vince Galetta. I'm, uh, sorry guys, Vince Galetta fans. I'm, not a, I'm on the opposite side of that fence. Uh, but this was a good job by Vince. Um, anyway, um, you know, in, in Sale was, I, I know, I realized today that he, my exposure to his art and his solid storytelling, maybe, you know, he's never been hailed as one of the great artists, but he has always, he's always been sort of a journeyman, but he mm. tells the story. He's always, his, 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 uh, panel layouts, and his drafting is always focused on telling the story and, and, and grounding it and serving it. And so that was all, these were all things that, uh, you know, years later I realized I had digested or I had just, uh, experienced and then they digested uh, as an adult. And, and sort of, um, and this was, this was it. This was like, uh, this was a book that really kind of bit me for my love of comics and instilled this love of comics in me that, that there is a history to delve into. That there is um, that there is this craft, mm-hmm. to, so you don't lose the reader. If you want to, you can play with all of these other subplots and these ideas. But for whatever you do, you've got to deliver a story, uh, an enjoyment. And so that so um, so you know, this is one of those books that 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 hit me and, and instilled that love. And so that's one of the other things uh, that I like about it. Mm-hmm. Then this. I'll, I'll actually quickly. Oh no, go ahead, Adam. I well, don't want to be. I was just going to say it's, it's interesting as as I have said this on the podcast before, but it's interesting that a lot of people these days talk about comics being impenetrable and difficult for younger readers. And I think 
I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think as a kid, you kind of fill in the blanks, and that's why I always liked to put editor's notes growing up, is that it gave me the sense that there was a greater world, that there was a, a giant tapestry, and that I could slowly start to put these pieces together and understand this world. And I always found that to be an exciting challenge and something I wanted to do and something I wanted to fill in the blanks in. And I, you know, I started reading comics during a very confusing time. I mean, I... I got in a little bit later than a lot of people. I was, you know, already 10 or 11 before I really got into comics. And, uh, you know, I was getting into X-Men comics in the mid-90s, which are very <laughs> difficult to get into. But as a, as a kid, you fill in the blanks and you read the editor's notes. And you're like, okay, something happened. Something's going on here. And then eventually you fill in the blanks and you go back if you have an interest and you read those stories. But you, you got enough of a sense and you got those editor's boxes that you felt like, even if I don't know what happened, now I have a sense of it. Whereas I feel like in modern comics, unfortunately, they take out the editor's boxes, which I think it provided context. But still, I mean, kids will pick it up if they want to. Uh, kids will are smarter than we give them credit for. They'll just fill in the blanks. Whereas adult readers are like what's going on <laughs> yeah well, absolutely um and i've i've had that experience a few times with some with some comics on the other hand i've had i've had just this weekend i had another i had a different experience or similar experience uh i happened to pick up some issues of tom strong which was the um a title written by uh alan moore uh about a um an adventurer hero kind of like doc savage and I had somehow missed these two issues, and it told this alternate universe experience involving um, this alternate Tom Strong. Now, to really fully enjoy it, to have the full full experience, you really needed to know, have read some of the previous issues, like about a dozen years' worth of com- Tom Strong comics. But um, as I was reading it, I realized... I didn't need to know that to really to get the whole story. That a writer, a good writer, and a good good creator will deliver you a strong story and enjoyment just based on what they're presenting to you. And if you happen to know the other stuff, great. But um, yeah, it's really it's kind of a, we live in a fascinating time. Um, sometimes I think. The lack of the editor's box is maybe an indication that the publishers are have an eye towards the trade, that they think they're not worried about people going back and finding the back issues, that they're they're just gonna they think, all right, well, they're gonna somebody's gonna get a chunk of this and they'll be fine. But that's just suspicion. Hmm. But it's it's a, we do live in it is an interesting time and my kids now read comics as well. And they haven't um, you know they've gotten into it. They have some, they, my son, uh, I can say strangely, but at one point my son got into reading Sonic the Hedgehog, which was published by uh, Archie County. And it was fortunately it was the first part of a two-part story. <laughs> but if have you ever read Sonic the Hedgehog, Adam? I've actually never read it. No. Okay. Well, it is a huge, elaborate universe. I mean, and again, there were there were all of these characters running around. I, I mean, I knew who Sonic was by the video games. I knew who a few other characters were by the video games. But I, we had no idea of the history. Yet, um, when I finally got around to reading the book, I was surprised by how enjoyable it was. It was, a, and actually, to this day, I'll tell people, um, Sonic the Hedgehog. Is probably one of the the best superhero comic books that you're not reading because it was just it was just straight ahead, 
superhero fun. It just happened to be a video game. So and my son picked it up, and he he and he and he really really enjoyed it. And it didn't matter that there was a whole you know bunch of stuff that he had missed on you know 193 issues. So <laughs> so God bless. So some people can do it. Some 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 writers and artists uh, can do it, and, and I think some I don't know some some just miss it. So all right. The other thing, the other important thing, this is the last one that I'll mention here. Okay. And that is the uh, the politics. You, This title, <laughs> this title was published, let's see, again, the cover date is July 1974. And it is steeped in that time frame. You cannot escape the, uh, it is, uh, you cannot escape the, the taint of Richard Milhouse Nixon from in this <laughs> yeah uh, it is um, now I'm, I'm gonna I'll try to avoid some spoilers here I'll, I'll, I'll hint at some stuff if you haven't read this story um, but it, um, it is heavily implied at the end of the secret Empire that number one is a powerful political figure who was dissatisfied with the limitations and placed upon him by the United States government and he sought a coup to uh, to achieve the full power and control that he wanted. Now, Richard Milhouse Nixon <laughs> was somehow involved uh, I should say somehow, was involved in um, perhaps not, in dire- not directly uh, um, he, his, some of his people were involved in uh, breaking into the Watergate Hotel to uh, get the dirt on his uh, Democratic opponent during the, uh, was it 1972 election? And of course they were caught. And the cover-up and Nixon's direct involvement in the cover-up eventually led to his uh, downfall and resignation, which occurred in August 1974. So only a few months later than this. So, you know, clearly, Steve Englehart, uh, and Steve Englehart, who is the writer of the story, has acknowledged this several times, that the strife occurring in America over the, you know, the, um, you know, the actions of Richard Milhouse Nixon and his administration, these were this, this broken trust with the American people. Uh, these were the things that these are the, this is the subtext that he is exploring here, Captain America. And so, as a young man, I'm reading this, and, and even though I'm I'm really really young, and you know, I not even voting age, you couldn't escape it. I, I was aware of who Nixon was and what was and, and vaguely what was going on at that young age, and some of it was thanks to this this book because you it it, it doesn't shy away from the idea that you may, you know, what is your, you know, what does it mean to be an American? That is one of the central questions that Captain America is asking himself throughout this serial. He was a man who believes in this country, um, or the United States here, my country, and um, he believes in the ideals, and he knows that he stands as a symbol of it. And now suddenly the president, the man or the position rather 
that is the that is supposed to hold that trust is holding the trust of everybody is acting in ways that are duplicitous and working again you know is frankly selfish and what do you do now and what does it mean to be again what does it mean to be an American do I is is America does America come first or does the <laughs> pardon my I'm paraphrasing uh, there uh, or does does the president come first is the president America is the is America whatever the president says is it um you know, there's also an interesting sequence here. Excuse me while I drink some tea. And then, let me see if I can find it. I was just looking at it earlier. Um, one of the other fascinating pieces in this in this serial is how Captain America is um, his reputation is undermined, and there is a um, there is a, a committee um, of American values. That's actually I'm, now I know I'm paraphrasing. That's not the name that they actually use in the book, but it's very close. Sorry, I don't have it in front, that in front of me. But they, this committee, orchestrates a public relations campaign against America. And at one point, there uh, during in, in this issue one seventy five, they're actually in Washington, and they have um, they have brought their um, um, their superhero Moonstone with them, and they're in a congressional hearing, and um, and anyway, they come out of it, and Moonstone uh, says to um, Quentin, who is the head of this uh, this group, goes, "Man, I think to think I'd be the star of a congressional hearing. Yes, it went smoothly, Moonstone. Your position as public hero number one is secure, thanks to my genius at manipulating the truth." And thanks to Captain America's blundering defense of his name. And then Moonstone says, he goes, quote, lies are neat. Truth is messy. Isn't that what you always say? He never had a chance. To which I will say, gosh darn, that seems awfully similar to some certain sentiments that we're hearing today in America. I yeah. mean, it, <laughs> it's um, so, but which just goes to show you that this, um, you know, you know, here I am as a, you know, excuse me, I'll, I'll, I'll get my original point out, which just goes to show you that these questions about, you know, does the government serve us or do we serve the government? Mm-hmm. Those are things that, that those, these questions have been with us for, for as long as we've, we've bothered to elect people. Uh, and that they were, that in our own human nature, um, our aspirations for a fair democratic process is constantly undermined by our own <laughs> by our own foibles as human beings to look for ways around that and to to, to finagle the rules and in this case to finagle the story of the truth. What is the you know was you know and by this point in the story, Captain America is considered a crook. In uh, in the eyes of the uh, American people, he, at one point in the serial, he actually uh, before this issue, he commits a crime. Uh, he and the Vulcan raid this corporation, a big business, the Brand Corporation, to steal something. Um, and and that for that's the reference to their blundering. And you know you have a you have a bit there where Captain America is wondering, like, geez, you know, what do I, you know, who am I becoming? 
when I've to win, I've actually got to sort of break some trust here. Now, behind the scenes, he left a note to the the corporation saying, "I just want to borrow this." <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, by the way, this is Captain America. I know, you know, I didn't leave, I didn't, I didn't leave any fingerprints uh, or any ID. I, and I'm wearing a mask, and you know, I may really not be me, Captain America, but just trust me, I'm Captain America, and trust me, I'll get this back to you <laughs> if, I, if I don't die, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, again, the the whole uh, getting back to it, it's this book was very important and very powerful because you know, here again, you know, I'm reading this as a young man, and it is it is uh, it's uh, some adults pondering an existential crisis about what it means to be an American where do you what do you, you know what is more what's the most what's more important here is truth important is our fellow man important um, and is it possible that there are people who will use our aspirations? For democracy, for their own personal benefit, and and the answers are mostly well, well, particularly that last one is well, yes, and and so you have to be ever vigilant, and um, and anyway, and so that was very powerful for me um, as a young man to read that, and and, and one last thing I'll just add, I, I think one of the other fascinating things about this book is a subtext. And this is something I, I will admit I've, I've read into it. I haven't heard Steve Englehart say this was his point. But I read into it that this idea that um, the sub-characters are... <laughs> the sub-characters all represent um, um, an ostracized... Or I shouldn't say ostracized, but a marginalized group. Uh, Peggy Carter is an older woman field agent. Gabe Jones... Is an African American. Oh, as as well as uh, the Falcon, and then the X Men have been a stand-in for marginalized and persecuted groups um, for you know since their creation, and that the Secret Empire is you know has been using them and enslaving them. Um, it's um, you know again the subtext is to to me was inescapable that this is what. Secret empires do. This is this is a calling sign of groups who are self-interested and may say that they usher, want to usher in something good or that we'll all enjoy. But it means that they're really what they're really saying is, well, you know what, you got to get on our good side, and you'll depending on how important, you, useful you are, you may enjoy a lot of it. Or you may get stuck on top of our flying saucer, and we'll suck out the mutant energies from you and use you as a power. <laughs> you know. So, anyway, so I think you, so. Those three things: the personal, the the experience in comics, and and the whole politics and political questioning, and uh, it was all it's all very it's a it's a powerful mix, and and so it's a very special comic book for me, and um, and, it, and it remains a an important piece of my collection. I do love any comic that uh, has X-waves being uh, absorbed from mutants. <laughs> I know. I mean, well, you know, so which just goes to show you, take all of this too seriously. I mean, it's, it's 
patently absurd. You know, and they, they, I love that there's a sequence where they have them. Have you ever read this, Adam? I have it in front of me right now. Okay. There's a great sequence where they've got all the mutants on a platter and they're lifting them up and putting them on top of the flying saucer. Don't tip them too far, they'll fall. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and then it goes flying off into the air, and I'm thinking, whoa, do they have, you know, do they have like oxygen masks on those guys? <laughs> I mean,. Are they, are, they, are they afraid somebody's gonna like just like go whoosh, fly off? But you know, it's not. The, I guess it wasn't that important, or you know, whatever. There's one mutant. It's okay. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, yeah. Um. Anyway, it was. Uh, yeah. There's there's definitely some absurd stuff in here, and um. But uh, yeah, that the whole absorbing the X waves thing. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you. first of all, thank you for being on episode 500. But um, So uh, you've listened to the show before. What would you say is, is your, your favorite interview you've heard on the show? Oh, my favorite interview? That is a good one. I'm sorry, that was the phone in the background. Uh, I will – there's actually two podcasts that I really, really enjoyed. One was um, the Bill Willingham one. Oh, yeah. Uh, because um, – he, I really loved a lot of the all the background that he gave um, between from his time starting out in the um, in the military up into his you know his first few his first publishing um, uh, his few, first few comics with the the Comico or Comico sorry mm-hmm. um, and that was that was great and also of course he answered several of my questions <laughs> but um, I think. My actually, my favorite one has got has to be the Doug Mensch one. Hmm. Um, that was uh, because I, I'm currently reading the Masters of Kung Fu series in the omnibus format. Uh, I had missed most of that stuff when it came out, and so now that I'm reading it, um, I'm having you know I'm really kind of enjoying uh, going back and enjoying Doug Mensch, and I thought that was just fascinating. Fascinating. Paul Galacy, and just as a shout out, the Paul Galacy interview was also that was really interesting. He's a character, so he, but, he was yeah, he was a total character. And Doug Mensch, I feel like, I mean, if I hadn't had to leave, I feel like we kind of could have kept talking. Like he almost forgot that we've been talking two hours. Yeah, no, you could, absolutely you could because Doug Mensch has such a wide and varied career. Um, I mean, just the just the fact that he worked, you know, he did things like Godzilla. At the same time as doing um, Masters of Kung Fu, and the Masters of Kung Fu at that period, he was, he was working with Mike Zeck, and it was just it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the Godzilla uh, was let's let's you know it's absurd fun with Herb Trimpey, but uh, or Trimp, um, but it's crazy. And then Munch, of course, would go on many years later and work on the some of the Piranha Press book. Piranha, Piranha Press book from DC, mm-hmm. where he wrote, you know, things like the Big Book of the Unexplained and uh, stuff like the Big Book of Conspiracies. And he's really, he's a really knowledgeable guy with a wide, um, just a wide, uh, you know, uh, amount of work. So yeah, you really you go pretty far with him. Uh, um, yeah, I can't wait to eventually have him on the show again because I feel like we could talk for another couple of hours without running out of material. Sure. <laughs> I've got a I've got a few more questions for him in my back pocket, so you know if you ever publicize it, uh, I've got I can throw a few more at you because you just worked on so much stuff. But yeah, those were those were really really good, um, 
And it's been really been a. It's, I, Adam, thank you very much for all the work that you put into this. Um, those interviews, the John Ostrander interview, uh, gosh, those have been so fascinating. Um, just really, you know, it's just, um, it's so, it's really lovely and, 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 and uh, enjoyable to, to hear some of these creators speak and, and, and tell of their experiences, even when they were rough, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, uh, it's, it's been fascinating. Excellent. Well, th- again, thank you for being part of episode 500. Absolutely, Adam. Anytime. And if you need any space filled, give me a call back because I can talk about <laughs> I can talk about a bunch of more comics. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for indulging me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Anytime, Adam. Welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast as part of our 500th episode extravaganza. It's a 500 celebration, Adam. Congrats, bud, on all the episodes. I uh, I really can't believe it's been five years and 500 episodes. That seems ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, who are you telling? <laughs> that's uh, that's a lot of hours. It's been a lot of listening hours on the uh, on our end as far as uh, your viewing, well, listening audience goes as well. <laughs> and you're still here. Man, what is going on? <laughs> Keep coming back for more. Now, I'm going to dive into part of what I've been having listeners come on to talk about. But before I do, I want to ask a question that I'm also asking people, which is, um, do you have a favorite episode of the podcast? Off the top Uh of your head, it it could be an interview that was on the podcast. It could be a random conversation that was had at some point that you thought was particularly good for some reason. Uh, Anything that jumps to mind, or you can even let it kind of percolate in your mind as we talk about other things and then come back to it. No, no, no. I've, I've got a specific memory. Um, I don't know exactly what episode number it is. I'm sure you can go back in the archives and find it. But it was one of the, uh, let's see, what was it, three or four years ago now? I don't remember when exactly when I started listening. But probably about three years ago where you had Nate on to talk about Hero Clicks. Okay. And something come out and Nate was livid about it. And he's like, this is, this is garbage. This is absolutely terrible. And Nate Grant is what hooked me on the show, to uh, believe it or not. Oh, yeah? So, yeah, Nate's Nate's just pure seething anger about something in Hero Clicks. I don't even remember exactly what is still to this day one of my favorite comic shenanigans moments. And it's why I always go, "Where you at, Nate? What happened, buddy? Where'd you go?" <laughs> yeah, we miss it. We miss him on the show. He, uh, we don't see him as often anymore, so it just uh, isn't as possible. Actually, we were going to record an episode, uh, I think, four months ago, which was going to be just about an, an X Men storyline or something, and it just kind of got postponed. And then one of these days, uh, me, Nate, and uh, and Paul will be able to podcast again, but uh, I don't know when it's going to happen. I'm just saying, I only come around about every seventy-five or so these days. It's not that hard, Nate. Jump on one episode, buddy. <laughs> Calling them out. I called him out. I called him out last time I was on, I think. Still yeah, pay. that sounds about right. Actually, I don't even remember how long it's been. Has it's it been not, that long? It's been a minute, yeah. Wow. That uh, just seems very sad. <laughs> Let's see. Actually, uh, this is actually kind of funny. Uh, I've checked uh, the uh, the archives, uh, and it looks like uh, you're... Well, we're recording this in May, I should say, so in advance of the actual episode 500 coming out. But if nothing else changes uh, between the time we record this and the episode dropping on August 12th, uh, it'll actually have been 100 episodes. 
Sounds about right. Yep, my last one was 400, correct? Yes, it was. We talked about Superior Foes of Spider-Man. Yep, good stuff. That's, but here, click set. That yep. feels like so long ago. Well, it's because it was. I, I, I know. Well, you know what? Time goes by so quickly. I still love that thug. Oh, generic thug. <laughs> Anywho. So we're going to talk about some of your favorite comics. Okay. So Let's do it. What, what, what do you got for us? What, uh, what jumped to mind? All right. So we'll fire through these. I've got four individual issues and six series that I wanted to touch on. And some of these are just sentimental. Some of these, you know, specific imagery, things like that. But uh, so you and I, well, you can see me. And so I'm going to hold them up for you. But for the viewing audience, we'll just have to kind of describe them. Uh, straight out of the gate is Sonic the Hedgehog number 35. Uh, this comic to me is excellent and will always hold a special place because this was my first serialized comic. Really? Uh, this was my, and sorry, listening audience, if you hear the tape opening for the little uh, packet or what do you call these things we keep them in? Bags and boards. Bags and boards. <laughs> yep. But this is from uh, June of 1996. At the time, I was 10 and got this issue out of a Publix grocery store, which is a grocery store here in the southeast of the United States, and uh, with my grandfather, and was the first issue where I was like, man, what is going on in this comic? And when we went back to the grocery store uh, a couple of weeks later, caught the next issue, and kind of kept following the adventure. And this episode of, of Archie Sonic the Hedgehog got me into serialized comics to begin with. Wow. I still have this issue. So always always a fan favorite. Uh, it was the uh, story where Sonic the Hedgehog finds his one billionth ring and gets transported to a different dimension to meet these ancient figures who talk to him about this, basically give him a vision quest. And then the follow-up story was part two of Knuckles the Echidna uh, solo story. And so I had to go back and uh, find up issue 34 at our local Walmart, which is a different – well, already the Walmart is, I guess. Um, but uh, I had to go back and find issue 34 to get the first part of the uh, backstory or the you know, secondary second story um, just to know what was going on. But from that point on, I knew serialized storytelling was fantastic. And every week we'd go, every month we'd go, and I'd look for the next issue at the, uh, at the grocery store. And eventually you, you'd transition over to the comic book shop. But, man, having comics in a grocery store, having comics at a library, anywhere like that where you can get just general populist exposure, I think is always critical to getting new readers in and a new fan base. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you bring up Sonic because now I can't even remember if it was actually part of what we recorded or just part of a conversation afterwards. But um, actually earlier today, uh, one of the other segments that is on episode 500 with uh, David Latempio, uh, he talked about his son uh, reading a, a, a Sonic the Hedgehog comic and then kind of uh, getting him into serialized storytelling. So it's kind of interesting that you now bring it up as well. So apparently there's something in the air. Uh, people should read Sonic. <laughs> The, well, I mean, I know they still do. I think they do the digest form now a lot more than they do the actual, uh, you know, full-size comic issue. But the Archie digest, the Sonic digest, the, you know, Veronica and Betty digest, things like those. I always hate to see when grocery stores kind of phase those out because I think there's a uh, impromptu impulse buy there that gets kids into comics and gets kids into reading. And if you take that out of there and just have more, you know, I guess – tabloids and things like that then those kids miss out on that and you kind of miss 
lifelong readers. Mm-hmm. So I was to see those things when I'm at the grocery store checking out and, you know, just glance up and see a few issues sitting there. Now, actually, um, we're recording this in May, so by the time this issue comes out, it'll already have come out. But have you heard about the fact that Archie Comics is putting together uh, Marvel Digest coming up soon? I haven't heard too much about that. Like, I've caught wind of it, but I haven't really investigated it much. I, I don't really know what, what's going to be in them in terms of the actual content, but it's supposed to be like 200 pages in each issue of the most memorable classic and modern stories. I don't even know what that, what that means exactly, but... Uh, it's pretty unique, and it's you know it's printed just by Archie. It's not even distributed by Marvel at all. I don't know how great that would be for me. There's something I haven't really reread too much of the old Sonic the Hedgehog Adventures. It's it's one of those things I like keeping it in pristine memory condition. And by that I mean if I reread it, I don't think ten year old me and thirty one year old me would have the same experience. And I might kind of <laughs> look back and go, man, this really wasn't all that great. So I just I leave those bag and boarded and locked away and just. You know, enjoy to look back on them sometimes. Fair enough. But, All right, what's up next? Uh, next up, I have uh, Green Lantern by Jeff Johns, number 43, from September of 09. Okay. Uh, this was the origin story of uh, Black Hand. Oh, yeah. This was where he became Black Hand as the prologue to Blackest Night. Reading uh, comics as a kid, like Sonic... You know, you kind of read from, I think I read from about 10 to 13 or 14 or something like that, and then high school comes along, and I dropped off for a while, and it wasn't until the back end of my college days that I actually found my way back into a comic book shop and saw this issue sitting on the wall of Black Hand draped over Bruce Wayne's tombstone and thought, you know, hey, let's let's check that out. It looks neat cover. Uh, I've always enjoyed Green Lantern kind of, you know, from the side, but never really investigated too much into their actual mainline series. And this is the issue where you'll see a trend over these next three favorite solo issues because all three of them, I don't know what this means, and I didn't realize it before I started pulling these issues after we talked about the topic, but next three issues are big-time death issues. And so <laughs> I guess it's a, a common trend in my favorites. And I even put back Requiem for Silver Surfer because I thought, I'm getting real heavy on these death issues. Let me uh, put this one. But that's now. a good one. That's so that's good. A good one. It's such a great series. Um, so that's a... That's, uh, uh, Special mention right there. We'll throw that one in. But, uh, but yeah, we, we get to see Jeff Johns, I think, in the glory of his Green Lantern days, telling the story of how Black Hand comes to be. And it's just this kind of guy wandering around lost, not really feeling like he's part of anything. And he, you know, he hears the voice, and the next thing you know, he goes in and just aces his whole family. And yet death wants more, and so he kills himself. And in a very graphically, like... Complete no no camera turn away from watching William Hand shoot himself with his own laser in the head. Uh, quite an interesting splash panel there. Um, and then you see him come back to life, and now he's the avatar of death. And I read this issue and just thought, what in the world are they setting up? This is madness and something big, and I want to jump on and be a part of it. Um, so this kind of got me back into, I guess what you call my adult phase of reading. Um, and so for the past eight years now, I've been a regular collector and going to comic book shop each week and all that. But it started with Jeff Johns and his Blackest Night intro. Hmm. So this issue always means a lot to me, too, because it kind of got me back into reading. Absolutely. Um, let's see. One of my all-time favorites um, in, the, in the back issue kind of collection. I didn't get this one off the newsstands when it first came out. But it's kind of one of the... 
for me, it's kind of like the epitome of the character issues. Um, and that would be the giant size 200th issue of Spectacular Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. That's an ex- uh, excellent one. We've got the uh, number 200 from uh, May of 1993. Uh, and so this was the uh, Harry Osborn Spider-Man kind of duel to end all their duels. Um, and I can't say that I know a lot of the intro of what was going on prior or anything like that, but I know going back and picking up this issue early on in my adult reading to see to see where Marvel was at in 93 was a very different time. Um, <laughs> of course, you've got Peter married to Mary Jane. Mary Jane seems stressed and she's running around smoking, which we haven't seen in comics for ages now. Um, and Peter Sellner put her cigarette out and things like that. Uh, Peter's at the end of his emotional rope because... Harry's just kind of taunting him all the time. He's been released. He's just showing up everywhere. Harry looks like he's about to break. And this is also a Harry Osborn who had Normie, which any modern, you know, any reader for the past few years wouldn't even have any clue that, you know, A, Peter was married, B, Normie had kids, or Norman had Normie. We don't even, you know, these are all relics of the past. But to see, to see them banter back and forth as not only Spider-Man and Green Goblin, but as Peter and Harry, as best friends, kind of, you know, torn between two sides here of their personalities, their, their costume identities, but also the best friends who grew up together. And to see that kind of personal warfare for Spider-Man really cements uh, Green Goblin, in my mind, as Spider-Man's greatest nemesis. Because not only did you have Norman, but then you had the turmoil of Harry, and it, you know, just seems to rock Peter to his core that it was almost a second father in Norman who he felt betrayed him, killed Gwen, and then you had Harry coming after him and was more or less kind of threatening to ruin his life just as much, blaming him for his father's death. It was very adult, I think, for comics. I know it was the 90s, and the 90s were kind of a quote-unquote rougher time, but man, looking back on it, just seeing... Seeing Harry, you know, trying to pour back some scotch or whatever he's drinking here and shattering the glass in his own hands and his hands, you know, bleeding and dripping in the floor. And, of course, the end of it, spoiler alert for a 1993 comic, is Harry rigs this uh, fundraiser building, a building in which he's having a fundraiser to blow up. And he's going to leave Spider-Man tranquilized and kind of passed out in the building, only to realize that Mary Jane and Normie are also in the building. So... While he hates Peter, he still holds Mary Jane to always be his friend, and so he and also his son's obviously there. And so he goes down to save them, only to have Mary Jane plead to go in and save his best friend, her husband Peter. And he actually does. He he turns around and kind of realizes who he is, goes back in, brings Peter out, only for his own serum to kill him. And so the end of this issue, I think, is just quintessential Spider-Man. Uh, he's been begging Harry the whole time. You know, you've got to stop this. And Spider-Man comes to the conclusion, Peter realizes, to save Mary Jane, to not lose her like I lost Gwen, I'll have to push past my own limitations. I'll have to take him out. That's the only way I keep my family safe. And, and there's, there's a whole different level in this comic, I think, where you've got essentially two different men fighting for what they think is their family's safety. And we don't get a lot of that these days either, I don't, I don't find. Nope, um, where nope. the stakes are that high and that personal. I do have to say that you should uh, you should really go back and uh, if you can find a storyline called the Child Within, 
which, yeah. is, which is in Spectacular Spider-Man, in the, I guess two years before this, and it was part of J.M. DeMatteis's kind of uh, Harry Osborn saga, which unfortunately has never been reprinted in any format, and which is a, which is a serious crime. And uh, even actually, I don't know if you listened to the episode, but I had an episode with J.M. actually on the show to talk about his work, and that was one of the things we talked about. That you know, yeah. he thinks it's his his best story or his best series of stories, and he's like, I appreciate that people love Craven's Last Hunt, but I think this is better. Uh, I totally agree. And, yeah, the uh, relationships here are amazing. Extreme, like yeah, a, a lot of depth, uh, a lot of emotional turmoil. Uh, I remember, I think like I remember reading comics that came out that summer, the same summer that Harry Osborn died, not having known that he died. So I was literally because right. like this is the weird part. So that's issue two hundred, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So issue two hundred and one is like I think part three or four of maximum carnage like it's completely different like you go from this emotional death to well i think i i'm trying to think of the exact numbering but i think it was like yeah the second or third chapter of this massive crossover uh which doesn't doesn't in any way fit with where they left this character <laughs> like you get this emotional this an amazing emotional issue which has got so much high stakes and then you go to what everyone remembers of the 90s of being this overblown 14 part storyline that achieved nothing it's just it's such an interesting dichotomy within months well, I love the last the last two pages um, where you've got really the last two pages in the panel before that where you've got Harry dying and he looks up at Peter and he says, "Hey, what else could I do?" Implying, "What else could I do but save you?" And he says, "You're my best friend." And you see the and there's no more text in the rest of the issue. Um, and we've got six, uh, I think uh, about fourteen more panels, and it's just the ambulance coming and Spider Man kneeling down next to an unmasked Harry. And he's looking all sad, you know, kind of sick and like he's kind of fading away on the stretcher. And you see them holding hands. And then Harry just, you know, head turns to the side and Peter holds his hands. And they take him away limp on the stretcher and he goes over to MJ, who then you can assume he's telling her. And you see her break down and kind of walk off with Normie. And Peter's just left holding his uh, hand across his face. And the last image is Peter and Harry as kids, you know, best friends together. And so he's just left heartbroken that even though... He didn't push himself to the limit. In the end, his best friend died. Even though it was a guy who was trying to kill him and ruin his life, it was still his best friend. And it's just such a such a great issue, such a great kind of Spider-Man issue, I think, where, yes, he always is going to be the quote-unquote good guy. He's going to do what's right. He's going to try and always stay to a moral, you know, boundary and limitation. And even when he gets pushed to it, you know, he still... He finds a way to not only win the day, but somehow lose at the same time. The, the curse of Spider-Man, as so many people have called it, the, the Parker luck and everything, where he just can't, literally cannot win for losing something. And mm-hmm. in this case, he beats the Green Goblin for a second time, but he loses another person he was close to because of it. So, just a great issue. Absolutely. That's fantastic. That. What what led you to find that? Like, was, did you Were you looking for it in the back issue bin? So, did you come across I'm a back accident? It was the sparkly cover <laughs> because of the hollow cover. It was in a 25 cent bit. And I said, man, 200 pay or whatever it is, extra double sized issue for like 25, 50 cents. And so I picked it up because I like the sparkly cover. That's amazing. I, I can't, I can't lie. There's no, you know, it just is what it is. I was, I enjoyed all the things from the nineties, the hollow foil covers, the, you know, serious tone, <laughs> everything else. I I won't shy away from it. Okay, I love that it worked. <laughs> it did for this for this yeah for this kid. 
All right, what else we got? So my last single issue, and of course, there's tons and tons of great single issues. We could go on for hours and hours by ourselves about this great moment or that great moment. But I pulled a more recent one, and that is uh, the Flashpoint issue three of three of Batman Night of Vengeance. Mm. Uh, This was the Batman, uh, well, three of three, the three-part miniseries where we find the story of Thomas Wayne um, and the, the, the father who lost his son in this, in this alternate world. Um, and I know Flashpoint doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was already six years ago. Wow. Um, which is, yeah, which is just unreal to believe. But I really, really enjoyed where this story went because when I first saw Thomas Wayne, and he's kind of the crime, you know, boss, do anything, the, the hard line Batman. The, I'm going to clean this city up through whatever means possible and clean the streets myself. I didn't see where it was going to go with Martha. And again, full spoiler, if you haven't read this series, it isn't, well, I'm pretty much going to spoil the end of it, but still go back and read it. It's, it's hands down excellent to me as far as the mythos of Batman. And not only that, but it plays a lot into... Uh, the series that just came out a few weeks ago uh, with the Flash and Batman and the Button. Um, that one I won't spoil, but we see Flashpoint Batman show up again. I mean, it is a spoiler because he's on the cover of one of the issues. Yeah, I think you're okay there. <laughs> but the the revelations that this series brought are come full circle six years later in, in the Button miniseries. Um, but it was just... It was a different take on Batman to me, and maybe there has been through the history of Batman, but I had never experienced something where you see the parents and what the death of the child can do to them. And so you push the father to be, a, you know, a, almost a warrior of vengeance, but you push the mother to lose her mind. Um, and she and Martha becomes the Joker in this world and kidnaps, I believe it was uh, Commissioner Gordon's children, and is threatening to kill them. And you see... Uh, Thomas try and go to help her and even though in this world she's the Joker and they fought you know I guess countless times he still in some way is trying to bring her back and especially with the revelation that uh, Bruce in another world is alive it gives him hope that maybe they can kind of be revitalized again and I know we've all seen the story of you know Crime Alley and Bruce Wayne's parents shot and Lord knows every time they make a Batman movie they've got to refilm that sequence but to see it in this light, where things happen a little bit differently, almost as a you know a what if and else worlds, and what the different ramifications of that mean, really, I thought brought a whole new twist to the kind of that classic iconic scene. Oh, absolutely! Um, but you, you got a Martha who is striking Thomas in the back of the head with a with a hammer um, while he's trying to protect the children and get the kids out of there. Um, while it's back set to everything that's happened between them, uh, the hunt that Thomas had for Joe Chill, you get a present, alter, you know, conflict with the present, with the past of what exactly transpired post-Crime Alley and how we got to this point. And I thought it was a well-done issue as far as artistically. You get a lot of black and whites, mostly the red is Martha's Joker-esque smile. But the ending, man, the ending, where we have... Thomas confronting Martha and he keeps talking to her about everything that happened and how you can't run from the past and you see that he says our son is alive he's not alive in this world but there's a version of our son that's alive and we can change this world to where it never happened 
and he'll be okay. And so you get you get a Martha who, even though she's been crazy for years and has almost tried to murder these children and has just been past the point of no return, you would think, you start to see her come back around. And she starts to wonder if it'll be okay. And you start to see them come back together as a family. And then she goes, tell me about Bruce. What does he do after we're dead? And Thomas, for better or for worse, goes, he's, he follows in his father's footsteps. And she asks, he's a doctor? And you see her turn and look at him in the rain. And he just says, no. And he freak out. And she goes, oh, God. Oh, no, no. And she starts to scream and wail and runs away from him as fast as she can. And he chases her, and she yells and screams, stay away from me. And what happens next? But she falls into a pit. She falls into, guessing by all the bats that fly out of the cave, the entrance to a would-be bat cave in this Flashpoint world. And at the bottom of the pit, she dies. And so she was so close. He was so close to bringing her back around. But the news that finally pushed her over the edge was that even in the other world, no matter what happens, her son becomes the exact same thing that her husband became, which is, you know, just infinitely sad for this mother to go, even if we save him, he's he's destined to do the exact same thing you do. Just be alone and be in the, you know, a vengeance, a, a night of vengeance and it just breaks her heart that even though they save him, they save him for what future? And so it's just it's just unfreaking real to me that that's just how it ends. It ends with, with a Batman looking down into the cavern and Martha's dead. And that's it. The end. <laughs> There's yep. no yep. happy ending. No happy ending there. So I thought it was amazingly well done for three issues to build that much of an alternate world mythos and to be that emotionally now granted it builds on the mythos that is batman as we know it it certainly borrows a lot of aspects but just to see that terror on her face and how well it was articulated and how well it was conveyed and now of course in in the future we have the two batmans meeting and you have a father who you know gets to talk to his son for the first time as an adult and the ramifications of that for a Batman who, presumably by what he says, experienced this miniseries and and had to live with the consequences and repercussions of telling her what he becomes. Um, it was it was a very very well done short story in my mind for something that could have just been a throwaway, you know, hey, it's a little Batman side story, write something up. So always a great miniseries and issue in particular to, to me. Well, and obviously the, the concept of Thomas Wayne as Batman has definitely uh, been something that stuck out to people as sure, well. Like, sure, and, yeah, and as he's showed back up recently. It's a, it's a testament to how the storyline worked and that, you know, as you said, it could have just been a throwaway. There was a lot of Flashpoint books and, you know, some of them were good, but they weren't, you know, necessarily that memorable. But I think definitely the whole concept of uh, Thomas being Batman and, uh, and Martha being the Joker definitely has made that miniseries more popular to kind of go back to because it's a nice kind of done in one gives you a complete story and uh, it's dark as hell well and I just love how I, I don't know that there had been this story told before in the Batman mythos uh, but it makes complete sense You, if with the loss and again I can only surmise or you know uh, uh, you make assumptions here but with the loss of a child there's 
only two things I can think would happen would be anger and sadness. And you have essentially the epitome of that. You have one parent who sought vengeance and you have another parent who basically went crazy with, with sorrow and grief. And so it speaks to that duality of, well, what would have happened if that had played out? This seems pretty legit. You would have a Batman and you would create a Joker from a situation like this for two characters in our world that seemingly have, it goes back and forth, but rather unrelated origins of the Joker was created out of these you know, circumstances and the Batman was created out of other separate tragedy and circumstances. Mm-hmm. To put them in this world and to go, no, we can make both of them out of one event was something new to me and just always stuck with me as a great a great tale hmm. a lot of death yep a lot of death <laughs> oh I could have gone more and we'll get into that as we go along but anyway and then you but, had some series you wanted to mention like favorite all time series yeah yeah just wanted to high point a few things um, I loved uh, the weekly 52 man okay. my favorite weekly series um I know a lot of people have talked about 52. There's been entire podcasts delving into each issue and the series as a whole. So we won't go real deep, but uh, I think it was my first big foray into the DCU and learning about not the big three. I thought it was a bold move and a great choice to take the Trinity out for a year and say, hey, what about all these other characters? And so you learn the stories of Booster Gold. You learn the stories of Renee Montoya is the question. You learn about a lot of secondary people. Um, I didn't know about Ralph Dibney before this series and became a huge fan of that character, you know, post-52, although there wasn't a lot of post-52, but, you know, anyway. Um, so always always a huge fan of 52 and all that they did in it. I know that uh, some. I know people have online what they've uh, they pirated it, but they've spliced it so that you could just read one character's kind of thorough uh, their their story. Because obviously, some characters you only get like a page here and there, and then sometimes they get much of an issue. So I know people online have actually kind of cut uh, cut it out in such a way that you're only kind of reading the question story, and that's kind of an interesting concept. I almost would wonder if. DC would ever consider doing it themselves? Probably not, but it's an interesting way to approach the story if you just wanted to kind of have a laser focus on a particular character. Well, you figure we're looking at uh, 10 years ago this month. May, wow. Uh, well, week 52 came out May 2nd, 2007. So <laughs> we're at the 10-year mark of 52. Uh, and clearly there's no plans for the 10 year, 10th anniversary, so here's hoping for maybe the 15th they'll re-release some stuff. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. It does not again. It doesn't feel that long ago, but it has. I mean, I still think about the fact that it. I I think that um, Spider-Man's One More Day just happened yesterday, but it's been ten right. years. It's it's been a minute, absolutely. Long time. Uh, let's see here. Just a few other uh, quick notes. Uh, Gail Simone's Secret Six. Oh, amazing! Excellent, excellent series. Uh, again, you and I could probably talk for hours just about Simone and this series and her other series and all the work she's done but love the characterization again you take kind of C and in some case D list characters and weave a narrative that is you know heartfelt at points terrifying at points just crazy where they go with it as far as dinosaurs to you know time travel to assassinations to everything else in the world mm-hmm. uh, a great a great story I think too that really for me at least, hinged on Scandal Savage and her pseudo-father and fit figure in Bane, and kind of the, it, it, it was a different take on Bane, I think, too, where you get, 
a character who isn't just a steroid pumped up, you know, beast of a man, but instead had other ambitions, had, you know, caring and nurturing. And yeah, you still rip somebody's arms off, but saw her as, you know, at times the daughter he didn't have. And she often trying to rebel against her father, Vandal Savage, saw him in a similar light of the father she wished she had had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a father and daughter tale, sort of, in a villain's book, I didn't expect to find or ever enjoy as much as I did. No, that was a, that was a fantastic book with some amazing character work. I mean, whoever would have thought that Catman would be, you know, uh, a favorite of people, but Gail Simone and Dale Eaglesham definitely uh, helped do that in Villains United that became Secret Six. And yeah, that, that Bane portrayal is amazing. Um, uh, I always will love the ending of the Secret Six book where they go out just fighting. I mean, yep. that's kind of the best way that book could have ended. Uh, it's Absolutely. kind of ambiguous in its own way, but... Uh, and it felt very true to Bane and all those characters, and it was one of just a, a, a fantastic series of moments. Uh, yeah, that's a great one. I love how throughout the series, I mean, they betray each other. They really do prove at times they are bad guys. I mean, they they, they hold no loyalties, and except occasionally, I mean, at the end of the day, they do hold a pseudo loyalty to each other, but they're not afraid of you know kind of taking the better deal that comes along mm-hmm. um, at points either. So there was no, I guess I'll call it the Trinity certainty, where it's like, well, Batman's always going to look out for Superman, and Superman's always going to help Wonder Woman. Like, no, 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 they they may have other subplots going on. It is a villain's book. They are technically the bad guys. It was almost the opposite. Like, I'm pretty sure Deadshot's going to do something bad to Catman. Correct. Yeah, at some point, they're going to fight and try and murder each other. (laughs) But, yeah, the other sub-stories, like Catman dealing with his father, Mm -hmm. and... Man, there's there's just some great great stuff in Secret Six. It's such an excellent story. Absolutely, uh, and Ragdoll was uh, a nice favorite Ragdoll as well. Was a super weirdo and a delight with his parademon and his well, trips to hell. And yeah, it nuts. <laughs> um, I don't think a whole lot needs to be said about it. But coming back to uh, Jeff Johns and the JSA run, mm. I mean JSA there again was a touchstone series. I think. Um, the legacy characters the passing of the torch it's still something I wish we saw more of I I love that character's age and the only reason I say that is there's always characters like Superman and you know Captain America and Batman and so on and so forth that'll kind of transcend time but I think there's something special in characters that last for as long as you do characters like for a lot of people I think Peter Parker where he started off in high school when the, the viewer, the reader, the listener was in high school. And as he aged, as, as the individual, the human aged, so did the character. And so when people found themselves in their mid to late 20s, so was Peter Parker. And he was getting married. He was having the same life experiences. And while I know they want to, you know, there's always going to be a reset. They're always going to carry the, the flagship characters at a certain, you know, locked evolutionary point. I think there's something great when you can do it with tertiary characters, when you can have characters more like Jay Garrick, when you can have characters, in this case, like, uh, you know, the, the Thunders and everything, and the fact that he passes, the Johnny Thunder passes to uh, Jakeem Thunder. That legacy torch passing, I think, is, is a key part to comics. I don't, in, in some ways, I don't think characters should live forever, because we don't. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't – there's a connection lost there, I think, if a character – now, they may die and come back and die and come back. <laughs> but there's something special about a character aging just like we do and encountering new things in life that a perpetual 18-year-old doesn't encounter. There, there are different challenges for a 60-year-old superhero. Um, we saw some of this in The Watchmen, and I think it's why it played so well, was older characters get old, and they can't do the same things. And you either keep playing it out, or, you know, you hang, the, hang up the cape. Um, speaking, so of, I, speaking of JSA, would you say you prefer the JSA proper run, or when it became just a Society of America? Because he really does have kind of two phases of that book. He does. Um, I feel like, so Justice Society kind of, I, I know at least, the, the, or I think I've read about the first 20 issues of it. Um, and if that's a tale's a tale sign, I own every issue of the JSA run, and I own, a, I guess, about the first 20 issues of Justice Society. So while I enjoyed it, I, I connected somehow with JSA more so. I, I just enjoyed, I don't really know what I enjoyed more about it. That's a hard, hard nail to, to hit. Um, I think for me, JSA felt a lot like what the animated series captured, okay. where characters would come and go, especially uh, Justice League uh, Unlimited, where you have different rosters, characters would come and go, and yeah, you kind of always had a core, but they may you know, take a small se- section of them and send them to ancient Egypt, which was a fun story. You may have a, a different tangent where it features on Hawkman and Hawkwoman, um, and it never felt exactly locked in to a central core group. Um, and so I just, I enjoyed kind of the, the range the the title took over its, I think, 78-issue run. Um, so yeah, JSA is always a, a special place for me. Okay. Anything else on this list? Oh, we got three more. Three more, okay. We'll buzz them real quick. Uh, as a tangent to Justice, uh, or JSA... We've got the 24-issue run of Justice League Generation Lost. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and the, the, the high points I've noticed in my own series are I apparently like two guys a whole lot, and it's Jeff Johns and Judd Winnick. Um, <laughs> when I was pulling issues, I, I noticed Winnick and Johns over and over again, especially in even some of the issues that I didn't quite make the final cut. But they're always up there. Anything they write, I seem to gravitate towards. But, again, kind of like with 52, you've got characters like the new Blue Beetle, uh, Booster Gold, Ice, uh, and, you know, a a small core group kind of doing the right thing when nobody believed in them. Uh, When Max Lord comes back and makes the whole world forget who he is and is trying to, you know, have various machinations under the, you know, subtle machinations that nobody sees – it's up to this team who escaped his mental control to put an end to it. And they don't get help from anybody. Nobody believes them. They think they're crazy. They get shuttled through time. They get shot. They, you know, just get abused. But at the end of the day, keep doing what is right and what is best. And at the, the I guess it's, again, no, it, it's going to be spoilers here for another six-year-old series. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I love it comes down to Booster Gold and Max Lord in a slugfest and the Booster says something to the effect of, Max, why did you do all this? And he said, because Wonder Woman killed me. And so I want to kill her. And I want to do it on, like, essentially, I want to broadcast it so that everyone sees. Because she killed me, and I don't like that. 
and I want to get back at her. This is a simple vengeance story, and it took 24 issues for it to come to, to come to light that all his little plots and schemes and various people he had involved was literally just to try and kill Wonder Woman. <laughs> and I love the simplicity of it. Like they again traveled through time. They went globe trotting. They they fought everybody under the sun. They almost died. And it was just because Max Lord had one simple goal of revenge. And he even admits to it in the end. And so there's there's just something fun about that. Uh, a comic book, if there ever was one. Absolutely. Um, we can't go without talking about your favorite, my favorite, uh, Abnett and Lanning's Nova Run. Ah. I love that book. It's a classic from the day they put it on paper. Absolutely. I completely agree. It, uh... It just I don't know why it why it worked so well, but it did. And it had one of my favorite supporting characters, which was Worldmind. Yep, yep. And especially, like, the issues where he lost co- contact with Worldmind were so radically different. And you think, you, you've been used to this dialogue the whole time, and it's still just Rich Rider, but now you don't have this other character of the Worldmind. And you realize, am I really this attached to this disembodied voice? But the, like, Rich <laughs> is having the same crisis. He goes, wait a minute, I thought this was just a computer in my head, but now I miss it like it's my friend? Hold on now. And from from the interactions with Silver Surfer and Galactus in the background to ultimately what comes down to him and uh, uh, Peter Quill kind of making the ultimate gambit and going in to save the universe. A great series in the midst of an excellent, excellent Marvel cosmic run. So I keep, uh, oh, I, I've been killing myself thinking about this, but uh, so back when Annihilation happened, I didn't pick it up in singles. I picked it up in, um, originally they had three hardcovers. Before they did the omnibus, there was just three hardcovers that made up the Annihilation collection. And then the, when Annihilation Conquest happened, I was buying the singles already, and I was buying Nova singles, so I never really bothered with any trades. So now they have the Annihilation Conquest uh, omnibus. The original Annihilation omnibus is out, way out of print and super expensive. Uh, and then they have these three other omnibuses, which comprise basically everything else of the DNA era. Um, the Realm of Kings, War of Kings, everything all in one. So it has everything in Guardians of the Galaxy, everything from Nova, uh, old Annihilation tie-ins, the Annihilators book that came afterwards. Uh, has the uh, Uncanny X-Men storyline where, where you had Vulcan take over the Shi'ar. Like, it has everything. And I, so I'm missing these four omnibuses to have the complete run in hardcovers. And I just can't pull the trigger because it's $500 to get all this. <laughs> but And, like, I can't just do it one at a time. Like, if I'm going to do it, i got to do it all at once. And so every time I look at it, I'm like... I. I just can't do this right now. Like I, I don't have five hundred dollars to just say, take my money, give me my DNA cosmic universe, but I want to so bad. So badly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I probably should have saved that for the last because you and I could probably collectively agree that that is probably the best the best thing on my list, just hands down. It's such a such a good series, such a good character. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything I'm a fan of of kind of two things I'm a fan of Green Lantern and I'm a fan of Nova go figure yeah. both are the various DC and Marvel police space you know force space cops so, space cops yeah um, but there was something better to me about Richard Ryder than I found in Hal Jordan John Stewart Kyle Rayner or Guy Gardner I don't I can't put a you know exact pen on it but just the evolution of the character from the new warriors and kind of reckless wild just kind of throwaway teen like 
kind of a goof up to the character he became in this series where everything he knew was destroyed in front of him and he all of a sudden gets this uh, burden in some ways of carrying on the legacy of Xandar hmm. and the only Nova that's left and especially in the early episode, the early issues where he is pushing as hard as he can to respond to every distress call post-annihilation wave and he just shows up on a ship and finds a crew of you know 100, 200, I forget exactly what the number was but a lot of dead folks and the world mind says yeah they ran out of food about four days ago and Rich is like why didn't you tell me we can't why couldn't we save them and he's just like there's only there's only us Rich like we can't save everybody bud nope. uh, and the pressure he put himself under to try and save everybody and the, the evolution of that character to from I guess kid to adult and in the midst hero was such a great story, such a great tale. Well, I mean, it's interesting too because uh, the way that Annihilation was was written, which is obviously you know sets up Nova for his own book, but you know he goes through the horrors of war. He's a wartime general. Uh, you know, he was just a foot soldier who suddenly was the only one left in this in this force. Ended up teaming up with these tremendously powerful people, but he was the one kind of calling the shots. He was the one leading this you know this rebel force against this seemingly insurmountable fleet. Uh, so you get to see what does war do to someone, and I, I thought it was really telling where. Uh, I think it's in issue two or three of his book where he comes to Earth and Tony's there and Tony's telling him what's going on with the the civil war and Rich is like what like I've I've seen I've seen real war like I've seen civilizations destroyed uh, this is what you guys are dealing with like it's almost it was interesting to see just how inconsequential it all seemed in the grand scheme of things when someone had been through interstellar war and it was it definitely made the character seem like he was existing on a plane that dwarfed Iron Man like Iron Man was somehow lesser than him because he was worried about such small creature comforts more or less whereas uh, Richard was worried about saving the universe I think so 100% I mean and the the characters that you see him interact with throughout his story of you know the Super Scroll Silver Surfer uh, the uh, Ronan the Accuser and things like that and then to see each interaction with them, and then once he and Peter make their sacrifice, to see them come together as the Annihilators, almost in his memory and what he would have wanted. You have these super powerful characters all teaming together because of the example he set and you know what he sacrificed to save everything else. Um, and yeah, it really, I think it's the greatness that is Marvel Cosmic, where... You can have wars on Earth, you can have squabbles, you can have you know the rise of this, the fall of that. But to see entire planets raised, to see you know just destruction sweeping across galaxies, to see the Cancerverse breaking open towards the Thanos Imperative and things like that, it was just on a whole different level and was truly, truly amazing. I'm hoping that's where we lean for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 a little bit. I mean, we've seen Xandar... I can't imagine we don't get a Richard Ryder. I, I hope and I beg and I plead give us a Richard Ryder. That would be cool. MCU. But I just if we ever get him, he he won't be the Richard Ryder we want. I just I'm curious if they give us a Richard Ryder or just give us a Sam Alexander at this point, and I don't I don't know the answer to that. But it's interesting because I actually, as much as I was ready to hate Sam Alexander, I love the character. I haven't read a ton of him. I'm not. I'm not going to be one of those guys where it's like, that's not Nova. Richard Ryder's my only Nova. You know, that's, <laughs> I, again, I can't say things about passing torches for JSA 
and then hate on Sam Alexander. I'm sure he's a cool Nova and everything like that. But you're right. There is a difference between passing a torch and replacing with a different helmet that we've never seen before, a different power source, not connected to the world mind, completely different. And also Correct. when you leave Richard Ryder in such an amazing send-off, and then we don't really get to go back to it for years, and then when we do, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, like, and then Brian Michael Bendis, and it just all gets goofed up. A little yeah. bit. Like, it, it's so interesting that we have a cosmic universe now, which is, you know, definitely hewing with what the movies have given us, but it's like, that's... I, I, I'll just go back and read my DNA cosmic universe, because that's the cosmic universe I love. Well, it's very interesting now. So as we record this, I got the most recent issue of the you know current Nova book, and of course Rich is back, and he's been kind of palling around with Sam Alexander, and clearly something's wrong with him. Um, and I'm assuming the Cancerverse has kind of come with him, um, even though he's back in the normal 616, well, whatever it is these days, because I guess the 616 isn't the 616 anymore. But, uh, but yeah, they, uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be an old issue, so I'm just going to go ahead and say what's happening. But he, he finds the world mind, and you realize that when he escaped the Cancerverse, he left the world mind behind. And so the world mind did, as it, in his own words, what it had to do. It adapted and it survived. And so you see minions of the Cancerverse that have been taken over by the world mind. And now the world mind's angry that Richard left it. And so that really puts a whole... I've got to see where this story goes because it puts a whole different spin on the Nova, the Abnett and Lanning run and the bond that Rich and the World Mind had together to now see the World Mind basically feel like it got betrayed and left behind. Hmm. So I'm curious to see where the story goes for, for these two, in, in my own personal history, long-running characters. And I really hope they just don't crap all over it. I hope so. So what was, what was your last run? The last one, uh, we'll just hit it real quick. I, I am not going to go into the depth of I, that I did it from Nova, but it would be uh, Judd Winnick and then passing the torch to Tony Bedard's uh, Exiles run. Oh, yeah. That's Man, a great I, book. I love the Exiles. Uh, from just a wonky, what-if, time-hopping, dimension-hopping, you know, excursion into the crazy. Uh, it, to me, was always the most fun of comics, because there were no rules, there were no boundaries. Any character could die at any point in time. You could put him in with a different character from a different universe, a different reality, a different whatever. Um, you could go to a world and end up with seven Wolverines. Um, you could go to a world and, you know, Namor's king and everyone's Atlanteans. And it was it's so much fun because there were no possibilities, but there were no limitations either. But it still took place kind of, sort of-ish in mainline continuity. Um, you had characters like Age of Apocalypse Sabretooth pop up for a lot of the back half of the run. Um, and these are characters that you can read in other books. They exist. They're in continuity. But it doesn't really have any effect on the mainstream books. And so they're free to do what they want to do. Um, it's it's not one of those stories where there's you know like a, an issue that just rocked my perception of comics or anything like that. But it was just a quintessential fun story to me. Um, from beginning to end, I think it went 100 issues. And I've got, I'm missing one issue right now. I think it's like issue 27 or something. <laughs> it's just an entire run of single, you know, single comic issues um, for the whole set. And so that'll, that'll be complete soon. But just a fun, fun book, a fun story. To 
takes twists, takes turns. You meet some characters. Some of the characters shuttled off into other side stories. Um, and I don't think any of the follow-up books, the New Exiles or anything like that, ever really managed to capture the same magic um, that they did in, in this single uh, run. So no, they didn't. Not quite, not quite the the hallmark that was Nova, but a favorite to be sure. Yeah. So Exiles. I mean, I started buying it actually when it launched. So I was buying the the single issues when they first came out, and uh, I absolutely loved it. And I. I actually could pick a few issues that definitely challenged my perceptions of what you could do in a comic because it hit me in ways I didn't expect. Like the, uh, I think it's in the what the first nine or ten issues where they have the three I think issue arc uh, where they're on that world where they I think end up going up against Galactus and they uh, they lose Thunderbird. But uh, when you find out that you know that they're going to have a ba- uh, him and Nocturne are going to have a baby, that's that's a you know that was, that was that really hit me when that first came out. And then uh, they end up losing the baby, and I think that's what. Eight, yeah. eight issues later, it's just a kind of a one issue uh, where she, you know, just says talks. You finally get to see the flashbacks to what led to her relationship with with uh, John, and then how he dies. And uh, right. it's tremendously emotional, and it's tragic, and it's like she 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 thinks that she wasn't strong enough, and so there was some really heavy stuff in and around some super fun storylines with one with what like a Danish uh, that was all. I think there was an issue about a Danish or a donut that they yes. had to save. So like you have you have the, right. I forgot about Nocturne and that and that twist yeah that's true and then she goes on to New Excalibur uh, afterwards I believe yeah. uh, because she drops off about three fourths of the way through or halfway through I think they just take her back home I believe something and, like uh, that yeah she ends up with New Excalibur where she ends up having a stroke um, that's and right. they're like you're way too young to have a stroke and they go into this whole like couple of issues saga where she's recovering from her stroke. And it's like how someone young can have a stroke. It's just like this whole tangent of dealing with medical crisis in younger adults, I guess, is kind of what they were aiming for and how it can hit anybody. Um, and just took a real kind of left turn. But even that to me was an interesting arc um, because of the attachment I had to the character from Exiles proper. Yeah, I forgot about that. Like there, there was some – unfortunately, Exiles kind of veered off near the end. Uh, there's a lot of reasons yeah. why. Um, but it just it kind of lost itself, and then you know the, when it relaunched as New Exiles, it never really got that magic back. But initially, what was so exciting about it is that you wouldn't really have arcs longer than three issues. Like uh, for the most part, things were kept pretty contained. And then it was later on in the run where you'd have stuff where um, the World Tour Saga, for example, which was a little bit longer. But again, even then, it was you know you got. In, they were still going through many different worlds. You got like two issues per world, so it really felt like they were really mining the depths of what you could do in a multiverse, which is exciting. And you got to see all these different versions of characters and see it was always Sliders meets Quantum Leap meets X Men, and that Absolutely. was a great description. Such, yep. such an amazing like it's it's both high concept and simple at the same time. We're just gonna take a, a weird hodgepodge of characters at different realities, and they're gonna have to learn how to work together and also fix time and it was you know it's again a simple yet complex concept and it was so good and whenever I hear about it it makes me sad that it ended or that it kind of veered away from what was core to the book um, and that sense of adventure and excitement and really having as many fun adventures as possible I think I only have the first ultimate collection I still have all 100 issues but um, I would I wish that I could go back in time and make myself buy them before they started going out of print because now they're really hard to find uh, but those Ultimate Collections are fantastic. I think the first one has like 18 issues in it. Like it's huge. 
and wow. uh, you got a, a, an amazing series of stories. Well, if anybody's sitting through the eight hours that this episode 500 is going to be and takes one thing away from it, go buy that. Read those for 18 issues, check it out, and I don't know how you can not enjoy it if you're a fan of just comics in general. And I'll, I'll, I'll say something a little controversial, but uh, some of the best writing I've ever read from Chuck Austin was in an Exiles book. Yeah. Because he, he created the character of King Hyperion. Like, people forget because, you know, he was used to great effect later on in the run, but... You know, he used him first. He developed it first. So, you know, people like to rag on Chuck Austin for not being a great writer. And he definitely has stories that weren't very good. But his Exiles was actually good. I didn't realize he was the one who created Hyperion. So that's news to me. Well, um, the King Hyperion version, I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong, but yeah. I don't know. I want to believe that I'm right. So, Well, we'll look it up later and you can correct it in a different segment if it's wrong. But we'll assume it's right for now. Ironically, just to keep in one last note of theme, I pulled issue 73. Issue 73 was the death of Mimic. So, again, mm. I worked death back into it, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I, I absolutely love the character of Mimic. I love the trials and tribulations he went through from getting transported to the Brood planet. And you thought, oh, everybody else was, you know, they, the team got split into different time and dimensions. And they went and found each other. And everybody, you know, had little time in other worlds or whatever. And you think he was only on this brood planet for a little time, and you find out later on that he had been trapped there for years, and, you know, it was basically like a living nightmare for him. And there's other fallout and things like that, but the character, you know, at, at a different point in time meets an uh, alternate version of himself on a different world, and you see what happens if he made one different decision. And the evil part, the evil half of him who, you know, feels like the world's been against him and everything... Uh, for, for those out there that don't know Mimic, what he could do was pull in other uh, mutants' powers and use them for a short time. I think he had a, a selection of five at a time, and he had to drop one to pick up another one. Yep. But the evil, the evil quote-unquote version of him had Professor X's telepathy. And so he read the good version's mind, and he went through all his memories and all his history. And he goes, it's all the same. Everything is the same about us. Why are you different? And it came down to Professor X, and he said, would you like to join me? And the good mimic said, I think I would. And the bad mimic spit in his face. And he said, that's the only difference. That's what changed our lives completely. That's why you're a hero, and that's why I'm sitting in jail. It was one decision different. That's all I had to change. And so it was, it was something very interesting in that where it kind of pointed out that just the simplest decisions do matter. They really can set your life on a, a completely different path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that mimic, the, the evil quote-unquote mimic, ended up staying in his world and, you know, becoming a Professor X-type figure to the other mutants in his own world. Um, because he saw that we weren't that different. It was only one decision different, so I could become a better person. It's not some long road, some path that I missed. It was one simple choice. And so he knew he could, he could be a better person, having seen all the trials and tribulations the other one had been through, survived, and still was a good man despite it. Um, and then I love, I think it was your interview actually with Tony Bedard, where he said, uh, hey, why'd you, why'd you kill Mimic? And he was like, I don't know, I just picked a character and killed it. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely broke my heart. I was just like, oh, Tony, I know, I know writing is what it is, and sometimes there's just a mandate to mix the book up. But I hope there had been some great revelation of, well, we felt that his course had run, and this had happened, and through a lot of thought, and, you know, Weighing the character's, you know, experiences and value, we came to, and he just goes, "Nah, I just picked a guy and killed him." <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, thanks, 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 Tony. 
Appreciate that heart heart attack, heartbreak. <laughs> I, for, I actually forgot about that. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the many four ninety nine before this one. Exactly. Well, people should go back and listen to that one because that was a good one too. That was a good one. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There, I I gotta say, I mean, I one of my favorite things. I guess what I started doing regular interviews about two years ago, and didn't I used to say it was it was this this, this spring interview series or the summer the interview summer, series? The summer of interviews, and uh, that never stopped. <laughs> I am two uh, hundred interviews later. No, yeah. Well, I'm exceptionally lucky and happy that I've been able to talk to all those people, as I've I've said before, and I've said to my wife, you know, like. I'm glad that people have that. There's an audience, and there's some people who listen to the show. But being able to talk to some of these creators, if I'm the only one who ever gets to hear it, I still got to have that conversation. Excellent um, opportunity, but it's it's fun to hear them. It's some great, great quality radio. Some great insight into comics, the artists, the creators, the writers, the you know the whole shebang. It, it's a lot of fun. Sometimes they just have to pick someone to die. <laughs> That's apparently looking through my collection. They all have to pick somebody at some point because there's a lot of death in comics. Absolutely. Well, AJ, thank you so much for being part of episode 500. I hope there are 500 more because while I enjoy death in comics, there should never be a death to comic shenanigans. Wow, I should really let this be the last segment of the show to end on that. <laughs> that That's was the best outro I could give you, bud. <laughs> that was perfect. Well, thank you so much, and hopefully we'll have you back on before episode 600. Well, fingers crossed. I'm not going to hold my breath, but we'll see. <laughs> I've become too big time now. <laughs> Mr. Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, AJ. Thanks, Tim, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Awesome. Very glad to be here. So congrats on the 500th episode. Thank you. It's uh, and it's also the fifth anniversary. It was a nice uh, kismet that I was able to time the two to happen at the same time this year. So I'm, uh, I cannot believe it's been five years. When I started five years ago, I did not have a child. Uh, I was, in, I was a, in a different home, a uh, different job. Uh, a lot of things were different. Still married to my wife. That's the same. Uh, but other than that, most things in my life are different. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, keep it going for five years. It's especially at you know doing almost a hundred a year is pretty incredible. Yeah, I. Uh, you know, it's funny. Every year, uh, my wife says always says, you know, like if it's too much, you could always you don't have to do two episodes a week. And I'm like, yeah, but I kind of like the reviews, and I know that not as many people listen to them, but I still kind of like doing those reviews episodes. She's like, all right, well, fine then, keep doing your hundred and four episodes a year. I'm like, I will. <laughs> I think I. I mean, was- well, you've been a little lazy. You've only done about 100 a year instead of 104. So you're taking those four off. You know, <laughs> no, you're absolutely correct. In fact, this episode, uh, if I timed it correctly, um, there actually is a gap week just before it came out because I actually – I thought I had done everything perfectly and then I realized, wait a minute. There's actually a week where I'm going to have to just skip. So I think it's the last week of July or the first week of August. There's no episodes. And then we come back with uh, I think 499 and then 500 here. So – it's uh, nice. it's exciting. I should I guess say that this is one of the many segments we're doing in advance. So this is actually coming out, or we're recording this. I should say two and a half months before it will actually come out. So that's that's how far in advance I'm putting together this mammoth extravaganza because episode 400 is six hours. So I have a lot to I gotta I gotta make it longer. I think. 
You're trying to be going, going for 10? <laughs> God, I mean, I don't think anyone will ever finish it. Uh, it'll take a long time. Uh, I, I would recommend people listen to it on one and a half speed. That's how I listen to most of my podcasts these days because I listen to so many. Uh, I can't possibly fit them all in, so one and a half speed is just the way I go. So I would say if you're going to listen to episode 500, do it at one and a half speed. It'll save you some yeah. time. I want these things to last as long as possible. I use them when I run, so I'll be running for hours at a time. I'm in I'm in no hurry to, to get so it's ten hours long. It'll last me plenty of time. Be perfect. I'll listen to it at half speed. <laughs> oh God, um, I've tried. I've actually heard me on half speed before, and uh, I mean everyone when they're half speed sounds like they're super stoned. Um, <laughs> it's just it's it's or that they have some kind of disability. Unfortunately, it's just the weirdest. Uh, it takes away rhythms, and it, it was, it's it's quite something. Uh, before we jump into your kind of your comic selection in terms of your favorite or your uh, your kind of nostalgic pick, um, how did you originally find the podcast? I'm always interested how people start listening. It is the Marvel Masterworks board? That's a popular place. Yeah, so I just I saw you doing those interviews there, so that's what I started off with. You had all those interviews, so I listened to basically every interview you did, and then when I finished those, I went back and went to all the top fives and the things. I mean, of course, the review episodes that are five years old aren't so useful, but no, nope, that's true. Um, you know, everything, everything else, pretty much is you know evergreen. You know, even if the top five is five years old, it still it works pretty well. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've done one of those. I mean, uh, obviously the format of the show has changed a little because it used to be easier to have uh, my co-host show up. Um, you know, people move, people have children. Uh, it gets a lot harder to do that kind of stuff. So it's become a lot more of a one-man show over the course of the last couple of years. That being said, the interviews have really taken off over the last, I guess, two or three years. Um, it's become a huge part of the show, whereas originally I think I got Nick Pataro once and then it was maybe a year till I got someone else on the show again. And since then I've been so blessed and lucky that people have actually said yes for some reason well i mean i've been diving so deep i listened to uh one of the book of the month clubs last week i was looking for something to listen to so nice i was listening to all about aquaman volume one back from the new 52 not the new volume one um, wow that's that's a long time ago red she hulk uh, saga volume one oh. yeah, i got the whole review on that now that uh, that Red She-Hulk continues to come up all the time with my brother-in-law Paul, uh, because whenever I recommend any kind of comic, he's like, "Is this a Red She-Hulk situation?" Because he absolutely hated it. He did, and plus, if I remember, he he liked that really horrible Wolverine arc where he goes into space by Eric Larson, and he he liked that, but didn't like Red She-Hulk. So you can tell like where his standards are at. So Red She-Hulk must be basically the worst thing ever written. <laughs> But I liked it. It was great. And that's another thing that's come up um, from doing those Book of the Months with those guys is that uh, uh, I, I was usually the one suggesting the material for the Books of the Month. So obviously it was something I usually already liked. Um, so whenever we did our reviews at the end, typically I kind of always gave them eights because it was, it was something I thought was good. Uh, so they made fun of me and said that you know an, an eight was kind of devalued because of how much I used it. Um, yeah. Which I don't think was really fair, but uh, I understand the reasoning. Uh, in there, yeah, but anyway, that's uh, that's that. So, and so, if you had to pick your your favorite episode of the show uh, or a favorite moment on the show, because I asked uh, AJ Reese that, and he said one of his favorites was uh, I think when when Paul 
or, or someone, or maybe it was Nate, uh, basically, he couldn't remember exactly what we were talking about, but it was something that apparently they just attacked me for something being uh, complete garbage, and they couldn't understand why I liked something. And he was like, I don't know what this was, but it was just hilarious to hear them rip into you about this. I'm like, oh, I'm glad that you enjoy my pain. Um, but uh, if the, is there any particular interview that, that you thought was kind of your favorite, or an episode that you thought was a lot really enjoyable? So probably two moments that stuck out in my head is there was the episode where I, I think it was Paul. It's it's back to that Wolverine arc he liked where you all ripped Arnim so hard about liking that that he kind of like left the podcast for about ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I think that was one of our like but, first six episodes too. Like that was that was very early on. Yeah, it was. It was. I think it was like top five Wolverine stories or something like that. And he mentioned he liked it and immediately got viciously attacked. <laughs> All right, that's one. You said there was another. Two. It was uh, the Bill Willingham interview did recently. It was really, really good. Yeah, actually, you're not the first person to say that. Um, yeah, that was a really interesting one. I mean, after I had Mark Buckingham, I was like, okay, well, maybe I can get uh, Willingham to do the show. Uh, and he was amazing. I mean, uh, first of all, extremely generous with his time. We had a very long discussion and uh, extremely nice. He was also extremely nice to my son because my son was supposed to be napping during the interview. And he walks downstairs and I'm like, Zach, go, go, go to bed. And he's like, uh, and he's like, well, who are you talking to? And I'm like, no, just just go back to have your nap. And uh, and and Bill's like, hi Zach, how you doing? And he's like, hi. Like they had a bit of a conversation. Uh, not the not the only people to have a conversation with my son. Uh, I think Mark Buckingham and Pat Olaf both did as well. But uh, that's one thing I also remember. He was exceptionally nice considering the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I, when I got home from listening to that, I was out running when I was doing it, and um, I told my wife that whole D and D story he told in the podcast about playing it in the military and basically <laughs> playing it twenty four seven. Yeah, that was really interesting, and uh, yeah, no, that that was really fascinating, and that they thought that they were almost doing something wrong because they'd leveled up so much. <laughs> yeah, that that the critic is you can't be past level ten; it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely a good one. People should check out the Willingham interviews. Uh, a lot of fables talk, uh, a lot of everything, really. Yeah, I mean, he's just excellent storyteller. So, what uh, what comics do you have for us today? All right, I've got Onslaught X-Men, the, the one shot that got the whole event going. Now, did you buy this off newsstand? Was this later? Uh, so I, yeah, I bought this off the newsstand when I was about, I guess it would have been about 10 years old. I was visiting my, my grandpa who lived in a town called Louisville, Kentucky. It's where the Kentucky Derby is. And I remember he had something to do that morning. So he needed something to distract me for about two or three hours. So we go to, comic, we go to a newsstand, find this comic, and I basically sit in a room by myself for three hours and just continuously read Onslaught X-Men. And... <laughs> Again and again, because you know you're 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 ten, so you don't really mind. And you know this is still there's no real internet, there's no cell phones. You're just hanging out, and you have one comic book, so <laughs> that is the one you read. That is awesome. Yeah, felt, and it felt so important back then too. I mean, like you know, this is like you think you mentioned for you. This is the first big event that I'd really been fresh for like i knew about age of apocalypse i i had some fatal attraction comic books that i really liked but i wasn't really that was older stuff to me that's stuff that you know friends had showed me and things like that after the fact hmm. 
this was the first like new event that I was following that I grabbed off the newsstand. And you know, when you're 10, these things seem very, 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 very important. Absolutely. So you knew who the X Men were. You like you had an, a a sense of what was going on, or were you completely uh, lost? Like this is something we talk about on the show as well. Is what is it like when when a kid first gets into comics? I mean, I. You know, 1996, I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old. Um, I didn't know these characters besides the TV series. And the editor's boxes were enough, and I got a sense of this being a grander world. And I was able to jump right in without actually feeling lost. And that's the most convoluted period you could ever start reading comics. Oh, it is. It's it's ridiculous. Even if I try to read it today and try to use Wikipedia, it's still there's so much stuff going on and so much referencing of two decades of comics that it's hard to follow oh for sure um, yeah i knew the tv show and i'd read a bunch of the comics but just sort of spotty like you know my friend might have x-men 40 and then i have uncanny 320 so i'd read a bunch of x-men comics but never in any logical order never a continuous run just you know here's a comic read it here's another comic read it um you know there was no way for me to continuously buy any run of anything you know I, I didn't go to comic book stores very often and you're sort of dependent on what you find at you know, the grocery store at the bookstore things like that it's just such a different world eh exactly yeah i mean today i mean if, even if you're a kid like well if you have the marvel app there you don't need to go anywhere you can read everything yeah no i uh, i'm trying to think how did i first buy this book i mean i think i started reading uh, uncanny x-men with like I think issue 333, so like two months before this happened. And uh, I feel like I... I think my, my mom at the time like kind of worked near a comic book store, so I think she picked this up for me. Because uh, I don't think I was able to get it on newsstand because I was buying it at like my corner store and you, you weren't getting like the, those types of things. You were getting Uncanny, you were getting X-Men, but you weren't getting a one-shot like this. And uh, I mean... It has, to this day, like it's a good issue, but there's some a lot of artistic problems with this book. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's especially. The, I mean, some of the art looks pretty, but I mean, the way it, everything plays out, and especially looking at some of these pages, they're. I mean, they're incredibly, incredibly overwritten. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty typical of the time. No, absolutely. Yeah, very, very common. <laughs> I'm looking at this big double page spread where they, they first all show up to see Professor X and they almost every character on the page has to say something or think something or I mean and not just like a word or two you know they're thinking entire paragraphs or multi-sentence statements all on one page but I guess it also helps to uh, you know again as the new reader to actually explain what's going on mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's definitely I me mean, it's that old style of yeah everyone's first comic you have to introduce them um but today i mean you would never see a page like that in any comic they would fire you if you tried writing it i i almost miss it though now i it's interesting how expensive this was this is what 395 when what were most comics these at this point like 265 i mean i, mean, I guess in u.s they are probably still under two dollars i mean i know even back thinking back like 2001 most comics in the u.s were like 225 so thinking back to here this the average comic was probably still somewhere around a dollar dollar fifty so this is pretty hefty and i uh i'm trying to think how much is it in canadian i i actually don't have my copy in front of me so i, I don't know i think it's like i think it was like five or six bucks like this was this was not a cheap book 
Yeah, I'm checking the, the omnibus pages don't have the old price tag on them. Like I said, I'm surprised. I went through my, my actual single issues, and I don't have this one anymore. I thought I did. I still have the old Age of Apocalypse, Alpha and Omegas, and a few other things. But nice. I must have lost Onslaught X-Men at some point. Yeah, like I keep meaning to you know start kind of getting rid of a lot of my old stuff that's already been collected because comics aren't were actually worth anything realistically, and uh, especially this kind of stuff. And it, you know, it's but it's sentimental. So I'm, like I haven't actually been able to kind of get rid of some of this stuff yet because as much as I'm like I don't need this, I'm not actually going to sit down and read this. I have the trades of onslaught. I have the omnibus of onslaught. Like I'm not going to need the singles. Uh, every time I kind of pick it up, I'm like I remember buying this. <laughs> like yeah. Back back when every purchase kind of meant something, like you weren't buying forty comics a week, you were buying one. Um, so it's just it's 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 so interesting that everything I bought kind of before two thousand, it's like I have this emotional connection to it. Plus, it's back when you know if you look at covers from any book in the kind of mid two thousands, I wouldn't be able to tell you what happens inside because the covers never representative of anything that happens inside. Whereas exactly. Up until like the late '90s, you look at a cover; it'll actually tell you what's happening, and it will jog those memories. And it's again, it makes me start to feel old because, like, I'm not old, but I'm already like, man, 20 years ago, I love those comics. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean they're 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 great for for what they were, and I guess you know I'm always going to be hopelessly biased towards them because they were the ones I read when I was young. But um, you know, I used to have a you know long you know I probably had 10 or 15 long boxes of comics, but you know, sold almost. You know, ninety-five percent of them off, and just have everything in trade now. Kind of just had to, you know, kill that emotional side of, oh, I'm, this is my childhood stuff, and be like, well, but do I want to lug it from town to town, city to city, the rest of my life? I've moved a bunch, so the more I move, the less sentimental I became. <laughs> That's completely fair. In fact, I think the last time I moved, uh, my brother-in-law was like, "I'm not moving you again." <laughs> That, that's what my friend said too. That they moved a, a box of my. I, I, put, I made the mistake of taking all my my absolute editions from DC and putting them into one single box. Oh God! And I was like, "Oh, hey guys, help me move!" And then after that, they no one wanted to help me ever again. I was going to say, "Why do you hate your friends?" <laughs> I, mean, I just wasn't. Yeah, but you know, you have the box in the ground. You just build them up. You tape them closed, and you don't pick them up till it's time to move. And then you realize you're an idiot. Yeah, well, I think we've all been there, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who's, who's a comic book fan who's had to move, you've had that issue. Yeah, it's the last time I moved, it was great. I had um, you know, when I relocated, they were willing to pay for the move, so it was very nice watching someone come in and box it all up themselves, carry it all themselves. It was wonderful not having to do it. That's actually pretty awesome. I, uh, you know, it's one of those things that eventually you're you become kind of a quote unquote an adult and don't have to do things on your own. So my wife has always been like, if we ever moved again, we're getting movers next time. Or like, um, I was telling her like, if we we're gonna paint something, I don't. I'm not against just having someone paint it now. She's like, well, I like painting. I'm like, all right, fine. But like, I'm an adult now. I don't have to do everything on my own. Yeah, I, I highly recommend the movers. It's wonderful i mean if you, if you can float the cost it's just saves tons of aggravation and br- bumps and bruises and suffering but it was funny watching the movers eyes his eyes glaze over when they saw everything they were going to pack up from my office which rescue all the comic book stuff and it probably took them all it took there's three of them probably took one of them all day to pack up just the comics and the toys and <laughs> all that stuff so 
So let me ask a question. So, so you, you you get this this onslaught X Men. You read it for hours and hours and hours, like kids do. Like you can literally spend so much time. At least you had more content here. You had a very thick issue. A lot of things happening. A lot of characters. So does that immediately kind of trigger you to be like, I need to know what happens next. I'm going to buy these books. I mean, it, it, and in multiple ways it did. So I mean, even so, forced back then, I wanted to keep grabbing the next issues. Like I can remember when I went and bought. Um, Onslaught Marvel Universe. I remember where I was when I read that comic. <laughs> you know, I remember I was sitting, I was sitting in my, my dad's car picking up my brother from my cousin's house, and it's you know, 95 degrees out, and I'm sitting in the car and reading this, sweating. I don't care. just have to know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's and awesome. Then even, even more so, you know, after, you know, shortly after this stuff wrapped up, I sort of drifted away from comic books for a little while, you know, distracted by other nerdy things, video games, wrestling, just other stuff, you know, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds like. And then one day I found this, and I was like, oh, like I remember this story. This was cool. And I had this urge to, you know, go back and look. Well, I was like, well, I never really had all the issues. Let me go. I'll go to the comic book store, and all I'll do while I'm there is I'll just pick up, you know, the Onslaught stuff so I can fill in the gap of my memory so I know what happens, and I'll just move on with my life. And you know, I'm not going to keep reading comic books. I'll just do this, and that'll be it. <laughs> so I'm in there, and you know, I, I, I start doing that. I'll, you know, I don't have very much money. I'm probably like 15 or 16, so I'm just buying a little bit each week. And eventually, you know, I'm, I look at the shelves, and I'm like, oh, Ultimate Spider-Man. Well, I guess I'll try one issue. <laughs> <laughs> and so I start reading that. I love that. And then, you know, 15 years later, I, you know, obviously. <laughs> read a lot more comics than Onslaught. I was going to say, I, I like that it's a, a great entry drug for a whole generation of people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it got me, it's what I loved when I was young, and it's what got me back into it, so it always it has that special spot for me. Have you remained, like, a fan of the X-Men? Uh, I'd say in general, there's, I probably have more X-Men comics than anything else. I mean, obviously there's some, some horrible periods in there where I you know, don't really want to read the books. Um, but in general, you know, it's been good. Now, I'm, I'm liking the relaunch. That's going pretty well with blue and gold. And mm-hmm. In general, I, I, I like the stuff a lot. So, I mean, there's, other than like Chuck Austin's Uncanny X-Men, it's oh, all pretty God. good. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what kind of broke me away from Uncanny the first time, which was very difficult for me. Because, I mean, at the time, I guess, as I said, I think I started reading Uncanny with like 332, 333, and then issue 400 or so, I was like, I I don't know if I can do this. And I know that doesn't seem like a lot of issues, but at the time for me as a kid, like as a younger guy, I was like, I've been reading this for a while. And I just, it it, it was very difficult for me to kind of cut the cord. And uh, that was, I mean, that was, I guess the one that was, it was hard for me because X-Men was, again, my main foray into becoming a regular comic book reader. And then since since kind of being able to break that tie, I'll come back and I'll, I'll read it. But it's never quite been the same. Whereas Spider-Man as a character is the one that I kind of started buying regularly in, I think, 97. Um, it was like the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man after Revelations. And I have never stopped. Um, even when there were some rougher periods, it was never as rough as some of those rough X-Men periods. And so that's the one that has kind of always been for me that no matter what, I'll buy Spider-Man. If I buy nothing so else, you- I'll buy Spider-Man. 
were you a big fan of Grant Morrison's new X-Men? Because that's what got me through that period. Is, yeah, Uncanny was horrible, but I loved the Grant Morrison stuff. So no. X-Men for me was still a great book at that time. I honestly, I didn't. Um, I think at the time, you know, I've gone back and I think I appreciate it a little bit more now. Um, but at the time, it was just it was so different and I didn't appreciate that. And uh, a big thing for me at the time, because again, I guess when Grant Morrison was on it, I would have been like 17, 18, is that uh, I, I was... Definitely more interested in the art than the story necessarily, and I hated some of the art. I, d- I didn't like Quietly at the time. Um, I liked Vin Skyver when he had a few issues there, and I loved those, but then you had Igor Cordy, who, in fairness to him, he was given a rush assignment and yeah. was kind of kind of doomed to fail. Like his his stuff was always gonna was was rougher in general and maybe not the best fit for X-Men, and he was fast, and that's why he got the job. And so those issues, when I was a kid, I don't know any of this context. All I know is this book used to look good, and now it doesn't look good to my, you know, relatively untrained eyes. I can't read this anymore. Uh, and that was a kind of a big problem. Um, so throughout Morrison's run, you have, you know, one or two really great artists, and then you have art that just doesn't quite jive. And so I think that was a big part of what kind of drove me away uh, from New X-Men. Again, I would try to come back, and then it just wasn't working. And then by the time Morrison left, then you had Austin on that book. So it was like, you can't win. Yeah, that, it, you're right about the art. They definitely, I mean, it bounces around so much on New X-Men. I mean, you have Quietly and Cordy and Skyver and Bacello, and then you get... Silvestri's on there, Jimenez is on there. It's, it jumps around, and I mean, a lot of artists, but a lot of artists with very different styles from Arc to Arc. Absolutely. So, I, and again, I can say it in, in hindsight. I kind of know where I was coming from because, again, I was more concerned with art. I think in in the intervening years, I'm definitely different on art. I, there's a lot of books I read now where I know that. Younger me probably would not have appreciated or, or cared as much for it. Um, there's a lot of books that I, I read or I would quote kind of saying is that they're very charming, um, very unconventional art styles. Um, as a kid, I would not have appreciated or enjoyed them at all. Um, so thankfully with age, I've, you know, I've broadened my horizons a little and can enjoy things that may be a little bit more unconventional. Yeah, I think I've, I've had a weird experience with that too where – you know, I've I've also come to enjoy books where the writing's almost horrible, but the art is so incredible you can get over it. <laughs> um, like I picked up the the two big hardcovers um, of Todd McFarlane's Spawn Run, and of course the writing's generally horrible, but the art's so good that I just you know you kind of just don't worry about the story. You look at what Spawn's up to, you enjoy it for what it is. I mean, it's it's extreme style over substance, but the style is so good. Mm-hmm that there's still something of value there that I can enjoy. Well, to be fair, I think it's it's easier to do it that way because, it, I mean, it's a lot easier to uh, read something with beautiful art and a horrible story than I think vice versa because it's a visual medium that even if you have the best story in the world, if it's bad art, you're not going to be able to appreciate it. You're not going to be able to get invested in the same way, whereas if you have amazing art, you can see the amazing art even if there's very little context or good story to actually support what you're seeing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Cause, cause you can almost treat it as an art book more than a story. If the art's good enough, then writing's bad. Exactly, and and when you have some guys like McFarlane or Jim Lee, sometimes their storytelling isn't necessarily as good, but their posters are amazing. <laughs> yeah, so it kind <laughs> of definitely correct. It kind of further supports that idea that you know that you just said that you're basically getting an art book um, and just enjoy it for that. Whereas again, when it's vice versa, you can't. Like it's that's definitely correct. Yeah, if the story, if the <laughs> Yeah, it's you're correct. 
it's it's too bad. I mean, because there's I, I, how many amazing stories do you think have been kind of ruined by subpar artwork? Um, probably more than we like to admit. Yeah, I mean, especially when you get down to going beyond just you know the stylization of the art, but in terms of just the pure storytelling, like can you you know communicate from panel A to B to C what's going on? Even if you can draw it very pretty, if you have no ability to communicate what's happening it's going to really make it hard and the, the writer's going to look bad at instance too like man this writing's horrible but really it might not be the writing yeah or, or it might just be the i know sometimes it also comes down to fit but yeah sometimes it's just it's not about fit it's just not the right artist yeah well i realized a lot too reading like these older comics like onslaught x-men and all of them is just how valuable in the, the pre-full stripped age how valuable a storytelling artist was hmm like someone like John Romita Jr., I think, is probably underrated today because he's probably asked to do a little bit less of the storytelling load in terms of you know dictating what's on the page. You know, now he gets a full script and he might change that. But I think back when you just got a plot, your ability to lay out a story was a much more valuable skill. It's probably a skill asked a little bit less of artists today than it might have been twenty or thirty years ago. I think you're definitely right. I mean, I mean, yeah. There's, there's, they're less. They're asking them less, but in some ways, they're also asking more because now they're not able to kind of design design the scenes all on their own, but they have to kind of take what an artist or what a writer wants and figure out how to kind of use their own artistic filter to make that work so it kind of fits the storytelling that they want to do as well as you know what's on the page. Whereas just having carte blanche do it themselves, uh, it's it's also both you know constricting and also more freedom at the same time like it's just it depends on what type of artist i guess you are because if you're one who is super creative and is able to kind of you know see everything in your mind's eye and develop it that way then it's more constricting to have full script uh if you're someone who works well with direction and then laying out based on broad direction what it's going to look like in the script then i think you're better off for it i guess it just depends what type of artist you end up with I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, there's definitely it's different burdens. I think especially, I mean, if you think about today's artists, the the burden of detail and the art and things like that's much greater. And the concern just that now they know everything you do is going to be in print indefinitely. If you rush through the last issue of something, that's going to be in print forever. And people are going to look and say, "Man, you're bad at art. Like you can't draw." But mm. The world won't know for the next 10 years. If you rush through the last issue of, say, Civil War II, if Marquez rushed through that, you know, people would just say, see a bad last issue forever. They wouldn't, you know, it's not going to say it at the front of the issue, like, oh, by the way, he did it in two weeks. No, you're right. And, well, yeah, and unfortunately in our culture today, if there's one bad thing, that's what someone will focus on. Mm-hmm. They'll just say, yeah, look at Civil War Eight. I mean, just, I mean, this is an example. Civil War Eight looks fine, but <laughs> um, it was just the example. I'm staring at my shelves. I was looking for an example. That's what I saw. That's funny. Um, actually, this uh, reminds me. I uh, there's someone on my Facebook had put up something that actually I I I literally I don't usually actually laugh out loud, but I absolutely did to this. Um, and he said all of the uh, about Wonder Woman the movie. He said all of the positive buzz is encouraging. Yes. But I won't know for sure if Wonder Woman is a good movie until Comic Book Resources posts a list of 15 reasons why it sucks. <laughs> and I just, I just thought that was hilarious because I'm like, it's absolutely correct. <laughs> I just. Uh, and yeah, by the time this episode, <laughs> by the time this episode comes out, that this list may have already happened. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm certain it will. I mean, it's. 
I thought CBR used to be one of the top sites, and now that's I mean, that's all this. I mean, when you have 15 reasons for something, you probably have about two good ones. Yeah, and they do it over and over again. Yeah, it's it's not the same. But yeah, hopefully they come. I mean, especially if something is unequivocally good and everyone likes it, they will come up with the 15 reasons why it sucks. Yeah. It's um, just going to happen. Yeah. So hopefully in the next two months, this will have come true, and then it will be sad, but also a state of the world that we live in. Because uh, yeah, if, if it's generally acknowledged as bad, then you have to do 15 reasons it's good. And they do that too. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they did. They cheat, and sometimes they'll do like eight reasons it's good and seven reasons it sucks to get to their 15. <laughs> Um, all right, let's. Uh, any, any final thoughts you'd like to regale us with? Uh, let's see. Um, Putting all the pressure on you. I guess uh, let's say about the you know just onslaught in general. I, you know, I've, I've read through it a couple times. I'll flip again today. I just sort of I enjoy. You know, there, there's pros and cons to the way that the whole thing is run, the whole event is run versus how it runs today. And, you know, sometimes I kind of enjoy this older style crossover where you sort of have a launch book, you have all the individual books doing their stuff, and you come back at the end as opposed to what everything is today, which is always the, you know, you have the big spine book, and then you have the other things off to the side. You yeah. know, it's fun to read an older thing where it's more diffuse. Mm-hmm. What was nice about Onslaught as well is that, um, you know, you, you had... And I don't think they've ever really gone back to something like this, but I always liked it was you had the, the phase books and the impact books. Um, so not, not every book necessarily was part – like not every book crossed over, but of the books that did, uh, they were either kind of part of the kind of main overarching storyline, which would be part of the phases. Uh, or if yep. it was just impacted by what Onslaught was doing, you had an impact. So uh, what impact books were there? Like Green Goblin, Punisher. You know, They weren't involved in the actual main storyline, but they were dealing with what was going on in New York. And then you had books. Yep, Sentinels walking around. Yeah, and there were some great stories that came out of that. Um, I mean, Green Goblin's swan song was part of you know Onslaught, basically. Like, yep. he, you know, he, and he has a great moment. Like, there's a lot of great moments that happen throughout the crossover. Um, the main one shot, the first one, it definitely made you feel like this was going to be something big. As you said, it made it feel important. It made it feel like this was a turning point. Um, you get the idea that you know that there's there's history involved. Uh, everything with um, Jean Grey recording the uh, the the message for the future. Like, there's a lot going on. Yeah, that that was great continuity. And I guess in the very opening of the omnibus, they actually reprint those couple of pages showing the original thing you see. I guess probably five years before this book, and then you know you jump to the onslaught expedition, and you can see the whole thing play out. Yeah, and again, as a kid, I hadn't read that old book, but I again, it was just. There's just something to me for how how books like that used editorial boxes, used continuity to make you feel like something was important. Um, as a, and and they, they they built it up in such a way that it felt organic. It wasn't just someone saying, this is important. It was, remember that thing and remember this thing, and it all kind of makes sense and comes together. And that's something that I think is lost a little where we're you know, in this, uh, this new era of kind of launching seasons, quote-unquote, where you have you know new books coming out all the time, and continuity isn't what it used to be. It's almost like continuity is a dirty word, and I'm kind of coming from the Mark Gruenwald school of continuity's king. Um, and I think you know, just I, I wish more people cared about it. Uh, I'm mostly talking about the writers. I think uh, uh-huh. readers care a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I think too. If you look, I'm looking at my my whole 
crossover shelf here. I'd say most of the best crossovers come from some buildup from continuity. You look at something like House of M came from, you know, Avengers Disassembled happens, and we have new Avengers, and it's all building up to this, or something like Secret Invasion, where for years they're seeding this story about the scrolls. And, mm-hmm. You know, I think it helps. I think things like, you know, Original Sin's fine, but it kind of just comes out of nowhere, happens, and it's gone. Yep. I actually, I was talking to my, my brother-in-law, Paul, and he said the the one sad part, he, he absolutely loves Jason Aaron. Uh, he never really cared about Thor until Jason Aaron wrote him. I mean, he read JMS's Thor and liked it a lot, but it was not until Jason Aaron wrote him that he was like, I'm in, I love Thor. And he's like, the one thing that makes me so sad is that I have to include Original Sin in this amazing series of Thor stories because he's like, I hate Original Sin, but you you need that moment because that's yep. such an integral moment for everything he does later uh, with Jane Foster that she never would have become Thor if it wasn't for what happened in Original Sin. So it, it burns him up inside that he has to kind of keep that on his on his uh, bookshelf in order to be able to completely read Aaron's run on Thor. Yeah, I think it'd be a little complicated. They just had to do like a Jason Aaron Thor omnibus. It'll be complicated by the fact that one of the biggest moments in his entire run. You're not going to put the entire original Sin story into a Thor omnibus, but you have to address this gigantic moment happening in the book. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know how they're going to handle that someday. I mean, I think, wouldn't you maybe just split into two omnibuses anyway, where you'd have the, you know, the what, Thor God of Thunder, those 25 issues, and then maybe have original Sin in there, just throw it in, and then that's where it ends, and then you have the next omnibus, and it's just Jane Foster as Thor? I think it might make sense. It's probably it's probably easier to market it that way too. You can market that separate Jane Foster Thor book. Yeah, because I mean, and even that book, I mean, it had the first run, and then it ended because of Secret Wars, and then it came back, and then you also have Thor the Unworthy or the Unworthy Thor, I should say. So yeah, mm-hmm. it would be a very complex mapping, although not as complex or as complicated as something like Jonathan Hickman's Avengers: New Avengers. So yeah, <laughs> that's it's that's a whole other beast. Mm, yeah, that's it's a bunch more work to do. I, I, I'm not envious of the mappers because whatever they do, people are going to be mad and angry, and you just it's impossible. Everyone has a different vision of what they view the book, what these books should be, and when it's not exactly that, they get very angry. True. Uh, half the time, I'm just happy I get the material. Um, because I'm again, I'm I, I still remember when we didn't get material. Like um, I did an episode a few years ago where I think I was talking about Marvel's The Companion, and that was a trade that I never thought. First of all, when it got published, I'm like, well, none of this has anything to do with Marvel, so it almost shouldn't be traded marketed like this. And it was basically every book that was spiritually inspired by what Marvels had done in the mid '90s, and it was all like such weird uh, sampling of books. But it included a two issue miniseries that I remember picking up in like '98 or '99, and it was painted, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, the character never showed up anywhere else. It was called Conspiracy. Uh, and it was about the idea that there was this hidden conspiracy in the Marvel Universe behind uh, the creation of all these superheroes and supervillains. And it's never been followed up on. It was a done in one or done in two, I should say. Uh, but they reprinted it in trade. And I never thought that I would ever be able to put my hands on this in trade. So eventually, had, this stuff happens. I had the exact same thing. So I went – also, I know in that book they have the, the Warren Ellis ruins issues. Yep. And I had gone I, – I went and – specifically pick up those single issues so i thought to myself there's zero percent chance they're ever going to reprint this so it's like i'll buy it i'll keep it in my one long box and that's just you know it's the only way i can have it and then so <laughs> they reprinted it 
Yeah, it's it's shocking because I mean, I guess eventually they're going to reprint. You know, not not everything, everything, but like a lot of material. Um, yeah, by the end of the year, we'll have two Clone Saga omnibuses. What were the odds of that? Uh, the minute they put them in Epic Collections, I thought it could happen, to be honest. Um, I And I, I want to buy them, but I can't. Well, I, I didn't have the uh, the Epic Collections, so I went ahead and got the, the omnibuses. Ah, uh, okay. That's, that's not so bad. Yeah, I bought, what, 11 collections? So I'm like, I can't spend more money on this. But I do yeah, I definitely it. have the. Um, you know, I can only have a book in one form. You know, if I even if I upgrade, like if I have the trades by the omnibus, then I sell off the trades. Yeah, that's that's a not a bad way to go. I think one of the few times where I've double dipped and wanted to keep it was um, I think Age of Apocalypse because there's some weird stuff that like some stuff's not in the omnibus or it's in the companion omnibus, but there's a lot of garbage in there I didn't want. So if you have the omnibus, but you also have the epic collections, you have more material, but then you're missing some of the prologue stuff, which is part of uh, Legion Quest, but like the, the pre-issues of X-Factor, and those are in the prelude volume, but that, that has bad paper, and like it's like you, you, you can't actually have everything perfect. And I remember Jeff online on the Marvel Masterworks forum at one point saying, if you can, go back and buy Legion Quest, the original trade from the 90s with the gold foil cover, because it actually has the best reprinting that you're going to get of the issues that were not in the omnibus, but were in the prelude on the bad paper. And it was just like, what? <laughs> like, And I, I still don't understand the, the idea in that prelude to Age of Apocalypse um, trade that it doesn't have the glossy paper that every other collection does. And in fact, if you bought the deluxe editions of the original Legion Quest, you had better printing in the original comics than this trade published 20 years later. Like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. Nope, just one of the things that drives me crazy. Yeah, you could always you know, buy every individual issue and get it all custom-bound exactly the way. Yeah, actually... That's the one nuclear option you always have. You know, you're right, and I did have David Banks on, and now I have a contact that I could reach out to and say, okay, let's get this done, so I guess you're right. I, I can stop my complaining, take those original issues that I can't bear to sell anyway or get rid of, and just have them bind the sucker. Yeah, I mean, they did, They make some really pretty stuff. I had them bind um, the, the, the new X-Men run after Morrison's, along with that Academy X stuff they did, with sort oh, yeah. of like the the new mutants type stuff. And I had all that bound together into a book a while ago. Cause I figured they're never going to reprint that stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's I, the actually, one thing I have. That's pretty cool. That's I'm trying to think like some of the things that I would love to have bound. And the thing I always come back to is, um, some of the cross gen material from the early two thousands, because I mean, they did do some trades and, uh, it's weird that like one of my favorite books from that publisher, uh, I bought the, they, I don't know what happened, but in the, the late 2000s, someone else got the license to do the trades for them, uh, just to kind of complete some of the lines. So I bought mm-hmm. I bought these four trades of, of Negation, which I loved, and it's missing like two issues at the very end of the run. And I'm like, what happened here? Like, I, why did they not include these in these trades, or what happened to the agreements? Like, it was so bizarre, because I looked at it, and I'm like, I don't think this is where the story ends. And I'm right, mm-hmm. it's, it's not. Like, So I would have to do a custom bound, but the thing that has always... 
uh, eaten away at me in, uh, with regards to that is that I'm missing one issue of Negation. It sold out at the time where I was living. Uh, my core store was supposed to get it in Toronto, and they couldn't get it. And then they were like, well, it's been backordered. We'll get it for you. Then the company goes under. Never got the issue. Uh, in this trade, I finally was able to read it. it. It literally changed nothing about the story, but I still don't technically own that issue in single. So if I ever got wanted to do a, a binding, I'd have to hunt this down somewhere online and actually get this to, and add it to my collection. <laughs> It's probably not a bad option for those cross. You know, I know when I've looked at just buying small trades of some of them, it's typically it's one of those things where you know there's there's five trades of a story, and trades one, two, three, and five cost a dollar each, and trade four costs eighty dollars. Yep. <laughs> so you're like, well, I'm not going to buy any of them then because I can't really buy the whole story because I'm not paying eighty dollars for volume four. Speaking of that, so uh, years ago I kept putting off buying the uh, ultimate, sorry, the Amazing Spider-Man by JMS Ultimate Collections. Put it off for years because I was like, oh, I don't need it. I have the singles. I don't. Need, I wasn't fully into the moving it over into the trade format idea. So finally, I wanted to do it, and obviously, trade the fifth trade was way out of print. It was like 150 bucks. No way I'm ever going to buy it. And even the other volumes were starting to go out of print. So then I'm at a used bookstore in Toronto, and I was able to pick up volumes one to four for 15 bucks each. I'm like, this is great. 60 bucks for four volumes. Let's see how bad it is to get volume five. So I think at the time it was like 120 bucks. I'm like, I, I can't do this. And then on the Marvel Masterworks forum, someone put up a link to a, a UK bookseller that was like we're gonna get these back in stock volume five you can buy it and i think it cost me like 55 bucks canadian i'm like all right they have my money but it's supposed to and i would get email updates then they're saying it's gonna come out at the end of june so i guess by the time this episode comes out i will have actually either gotten it or not but they keep saying at the end of, they keep saying at the end of june i'm gonna get this book well a couple of weeks ago i get an email from them i'm like oh we canceled your order i'm like no what happened <laughs> So I emailed them and they're like, oh, this was a, we canceled your order in error. We are going to get this product after June. Would you like to order it again? I'm like, yes. Yes, I would. I don't know why you canceled my order. That's bizarre. So I, because I, 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 I just assumed that they finally realized that they were never going to get this book, but they swear that they're going to have volume five. So I'm, I'm, I'm crossing every finger that at the end of June, they're magically going to get these new copies of volume five, which I don't even know where they would even get them from. And then I'm going to end up with, uh, finally having the complete, uh, JMS ultimate collection for having spent a total of 110 bucks for four volumes or five volumes, which I'm completely okay with. Cause that's a good deal. Yes. Yeah, not bad. I mean, that's a pretty good price. You factor across all of them. Exactly. That, I've got the really old JMS traits, like the, you know, the six issue ones. Oof. Those are old. Yeah. So I, mean, I picked up all those at a, comic-con maybe a decade ago at this point probably nice you're just rifling through the the five dollar bins see it's it's so crazy because like to me that jms run does not feel like it's been a long time but it ended 10 years ago yep like that brand new day started early 2008 uh i think it was earlier than that I'm not, I don't even remember, but I remember like when I graduated university, Civil War One was happening, and uh, and that was what like May 2006. So uh, I guess it wasn't that much longer. So I guess it was 2007, maybe a little bit in 2008. Uh, actually, the more I think about it, the more I think you're right, or it might have been late 2007 because I think Free Comic Book Day 2007 was swing shift, but it was before yeah. we had gotten One More Day, but it was like the first glimpse of One More of. Uh, a brand new day Spider-Man. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's crazy the amount of shit you remember. 
Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure December 2007 was the last issue of One More Day, because that's also when I, I was really big into Spider-Man at the time, but I remember just waiting so long for each issue of One More Day, which I think, I know everyone hates that story, and I, I'm not, you know, I think, I thought it was fine, I liked it. <laughs> you know, it's funny about that, so um, there's a new, so I'm a big fan of the uh, Amazing Spider Talk podcast, I definitely recommend people check it out, and uh, the co-host there, Mark Chinacchio, just wrote a book called uh, hundred things uh, uh, every Spider-Man fan needs to you know, read or do before they die type of thing. Um, so I was reading. Anyways, I, I you know I, I sometimes talk to to him and and to Dan, who's the other uh, podcast host there, uh, about you know what what they do and uh, about Spider Man and stuff. And uh, I thought that maybe he might have quoted one of my interviews with some of the Spider Man creators in the book. So I don't usually do this because I don't usually have such a huge ego. But I went to the back of his book and kind of rifled through. Um, the you know his bibliography to see if anything from any of my podcasts happened to be mentioned, which is totally self-serving. Yeah. Uh, but I was just like, you know, you know, maybe you never know. Um, anyways, I go to it and I do find my name, and I was like, oh, cool. And I'm like, oh, no, I wonder which interview he, uh, he he used. And it was a quote of a review I wrote that I completely forgot about. Uh, that is on the spiderfan.org website about the last chapter of One More Day. <laughs> Uh, so were you pro con? I well, like it? I wasn't necessarily. I mean, yes, I was negative, um, but um, I was. I, I made some kind of blanket statements, uh, which I think were correct um, about how this would end up being, you know, kind of the most um, what's the word uh, notorious issue of Spider-Man ever published, and I think I'm, I still think I'm correct. But it was very interesting to kind of to read this this quote and realize that's me <laughs> from ten yeah. years ago. Like I didn't even think I've been writing reviews that long, or that I've you know kind of been doing stuff. So that was very strange for me to be like, yeah, that that was me. I mean, didn't you? I mean, you wrote a lot of reviews back then too, right? So I mean, it's you're pounding through doing so many. It's hard to remember any particular thing you may or may not have written. Yes, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I. I did a, a, not a lot of reviews for Spider-Fan, but I did work for a, uh, a cycle comic stream, and at my height, I think I was maybe writing like 20 reviews a week, which is ridiculous. Um, yeah. So, yes. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised that I forget things. Okay, I found the quote. Um, this is a quote that was actually used in his book talking about what the reception to the last chapter or to One More Day in general was. Uh, so this is me quoting me from you know 10 years ago. <laughs> Uh, without a doubt, this issue is going to be the most universally reviled, controversial issue of Amazing Spider-Man ever published. I still think that's correct. <laughs> Probably so. I mean, because the only thing I can think that in terms of is talked about as much would be the death of Gwen Stacy. But that's more thought of as a more positive, big, important moment, whereas One More Day is big and controversial, but typically only in a very bad, negative sense. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like uh, you were mostly correct. Uh, the last chapter of One More Day, I believe that has a cover date or maybe a publication date, it's unclear, of November 2007. Ah, uh, close. <laughs> uh, you're, you're pretty pretty bang on, so I, I was definitely wrong. I thought it was earlier in the year by a long shot, but I guess I forget that Civil War had so many tie-ins, and then there was Back in Black, and then you had one more day. So with all that going on, a lot of delays too. It was it took a it took a long time for four issues to come out. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently, I gave uh, that last chapter of one more day half half a spider web. Uh, not eight out of ten. Definitely not eight out of ten. You know, it's, 
it's so interesting because I, I, I did actually reread my review the other day. And I was, and so first of all, in it, I basically said I wanted to give it a zero for story and four for art, uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't give it two webs, so I just gave it the half a web. Um, I was definitely too hard on it. I think it still has some merit as a story. Um, did I like it? No. Um, I also liked what it gave me, though. I'm, I've always been a big proponent of Brand New Day. Uh, as much as I really missed the marriage, I've always liked all the stories that came after it, and I thought that when they went through that publication period of when you had three issues coming out a month, I thought it was some really strong stuff. Uh, it felt like I was, I was uh, Spider-Man had become like a, a weekly television series, uh, especially with the way you had like this writer's room when you had writers cycling in and out of arcs, and same thing with the artists. So as much as I, I hated kind of what it did, um, and I still object to certain things that happen in that arc like most people would, um, it gave us so many good things. No, I agree completely. Yeah, it's exactly. I think once you start on Brand New Day, from then through today, Spider Man's probably. I mean, it's an incredible ten year run. I'd say very, very high quality art and storytelling. Oh, for sure. Um, so it definitely it worked. Whatever they intended to happen, you know, whether the story was good or bad, the outcome turned out very well for them. Yeah. One thing I learned by reading my review over again is that um, not a, not the most professional interview ever or review I ever wrote. Um, it definitely felt like it had more emotion in it than actual structural analysis and criticism. But I can only hope that in the ten years now that I do you know my reviews episodes that I've come a little bit farther than that. Yeah, but I think it's natural too. You know, I'm sure you just read the issue, and of course, with ten years of hindsight, you're bound to be less emotional about things you know and like I said, you'd been reading the character for a decade straight at that point you obviously were invested you cared what happened to this person and i think it's a positive in some sense that you could have a reaction like that to it it means that the in general the story is working and it's a good title so true and i actually one thing i've always said in my reviews episodes is that um i, w- I want to care and if i feel indifferent about your issue in a lot of ways it's almost worse than it being a bad issue yeah, there's there's plenty of comics that are bad. People read because they do. They they care what happens. It's uh, there's a lot of Ultimate comics I read near the end of that run that are pretty bad comics. But I was so invested in the Ultimate universe, so I just kept reading, kept reading. Back when that was a thing. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's, I, I was looking today, so I read all my bookshelves this weekend, and I realized that I now have you know because Ultimate Universe is over, I have the complete Ultimate universe in the bookshelf. You could sit down and read. In order, from beginning to end, everything that ever happened in the Ultimate Universe. Wow. Now, hold on. Do you also have Ultimate Adventures? I do. Ooh, wow. <laughs> That's impressive. I've got I've got things like the Ultimate Spider-Man script book. I've got Ultimate Adventures. I have all the Ultimate Annuals. I got it's all there, good and bad. Incredible. Wow. That is that's dedication to uh, to making it happen. Yeah, and th- those were really when I got back into it, early two thousand one. Like Ultimate X Men, Ultimate Spider Man, those were my books. Like those are the ones that you know I, I just had to read that I was really invested in. And then by the time Ultimatum happened, things like that, I kind of drifted away a little bit. Because plus by then the regular universe had improved so much, and the stories that you know the Ultimate Universe had leaked so much into the other universe by that point that you know 
the old universe had less purpose, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, a lot of people have said that, and I think I've said that too, is that, yeah, when the Ultimate Universe came around, it was it was fresh and it was exciting at a time when uh, the the mainline kind of Marvel books needed to be revitalized, needed to go through something. And eventually they did that, and they kind of got themselves back on a winning track, and then, yeah, then the Ultimate Universe didn't feel like it needed to exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's, it's last five or six years. It was just constantly searching for a reason to be around, and so often they just like they did, especially after Ultimate, they just treated it like, well, we'll just use this universe where we kill everyone all the time, so we'll blow everything up and we'll change things. And then you you push things so far away from the real world, you kind of lose the essential of what Marvel is. And I think by the end of the Ultimate Universe, it so had so little resemblance to anything like it was or like the real world that it was hard to connect with it. For sure, for sure. All right, Tim. Well, thank you so much for uh, for being part of episode 500, and uh, we'll we'll make sure. sure to have you back on in the future. We have some stuff we've talked about, uh, you know, focusing on in a, in a future episode. So hopefully, we'll make that happen uh, somewhere between 500 and 600. Excited to do it. So Thanks. yeah, hopefully everything goes well. You get to your 10 hours and you get um, that 500 episode out. So I'm glad. Hopefully, I mean I. I rambled for a long time, so hopefully I got you some, bought you some time there. <laughs> yeah, I think based on what I've recorded so far, I think we're already up to two and a half hours. So we're we're, we're making our way, and we're only at May thirtieth as we speak. So we've got, yeah. I've got a lot more to a lot more to get to recorded. All right, great. Well, it was great talking with you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being part of it. No problem. Dan, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is your uh, your annual visit uh, by. This is, uh, I guess, your fourth visit. You were on 298, 300, 400, and now 500. There we go. I love doing these anniversary issues. <laughs> I've actually, uh, you would appreciate this, um, I've decided to title the episode Happy Birthday because that's what you do with 500th issue, right? There you go. There you go. Very few people have reached 500, and I'm one of the few people that likes issue 500, and... But we've already discussed that before, so it's it's not even not even worth bringing up again. <laughs> we can check back to your your previous appearances to to find out about that. There you go. There you go. Well, I mean, with five hundredth issues, I didn't have a lot of options for titling something. I could be happy birthday or disassembled, and I didn't really want to disassemble my podcast. So, <laughs> well, happy birthday, Adam. <laughs> Thank you. So I've had people on talking about no some... no one podcasts more than you do. Uh... There's a few, but there are not very many of us. <laughs> <laughs> the 500 Club is a lonely club. <laughs> it, uh, it is indeed. But uh, So we're, we had you on today so you could chat about um, any particular memorable or uh, kind of favorite issue of a Spider-Man comic, or really any comic. And that's what we've been having people come on for other segments to talk about. So what have you got for us today? Well, this was a tough challenge because when you've talked about, like, more than 170 issues of a Spider-Man comics, it's hard to find one that you're like, I got to talk about this because I've never talked about this before. So you gave me a particularly good challenge. Um, and I wanted to talk today about one I've never even brought up on a show before, and uh, which was in evidence by me mentioning it to you and going, you going, I have no idea what this is, uh, <laughs> off, off mic. Uh, it's Spectacular Spider-Man from volume one of that title, Issue 121 um, And 
I don't know many people that have ever talked about this issue. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of people that like this issue, but I love this issue. <laughs> um, it's by it's by Peter David. Um, you know, he's you know acclaimed run on this book. You know, the Gene DeWolf writer, and, and I don't even particularly like the Gene DeWolf story. I love this story. Um, <laughs> it has a rogues gallery of artists: um, Alan Kupperberg, Bob McLeod, John Buscema. Uh, John Romita Sr., Keith Williams, and Mark Texera. Uh, it's it's one of those stories where like everybody gives their different perspective on the same story that's been done a million times in different books. Um, but in this case, Spider-Man gets to do it. And it's kind of this story where Jameson, Mary Jane, and Peter are at this bar, and Jameson is drunk, and Mary Jane and Peter are drinking Cokes like they do. Like they do. And uh, Robbie, yeah, and Robbie is trying to get from them this story that all three of them were a part of, this bank robbery, and what happened. And each person gives their own you know, unique perspective on this story. Um, so, of course, Mary Jane starts off, and she's trying to get Peter... Uh, you know, like a raise at his job. So the whole story is about how hot she is and how great Jameson is uh, and also how awesome she thinks Spider-Man is from her own perspective. And then Jameson tells the story and it's all about how great he is and how he stopped this bank robbery and how Spider-Man is a villain and all. And it's just basically all that how great he is. And then Peter is stuck in this, you know, can't win scenario, which is typical for Spider-Man. Where, you know, uh, if he tells the real story, Jameson's going to look bad, Spider-Man's going to look good, and he's not going to get a raise. <laughs> uh, or if he tells the Jameson story, then Spider-Man's going to get trashed in the press, so he can't really win. It's so much fun. Uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. Now, when did you first read this, or when did you come across it? Because, I mean, obviously you're well-known, obviously, on the Amazing Spider-Talk podcast for having, you know searched out all the issues of Amazing Spider-Man. So, and you don't got you guys don't talk as much about Spectacular. So, when did you kind of come across this title? Yeah, well, I mean, I was born in July 1986 and this was December 1986. So, I read it when it came out. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I um I read it a couple of years ago when I was doing my first Spectacular Spider-Man read through. So maybe like a decade ago. And, you know, I remembered it. But I didn't really write down the number it was. And then I did another kind of read through of Spectacular Spider-Man a few years back and like rediscovered it and was like, oh, this is really great. This is one I love. And I always have kind of kept it in the back of my mind. I went out and I sought it out at a bunch of comic conventions and managed to pick it up. Um, so I don't have a full run of Spectacular Spider-Man. I have probably like 50 issues from that run, and this is one of them. And I always return to it because I think it's a perfect distillation of all the characters, not to mention its rogues gallery of amazing artists, each who kind of lend their own take on the different retellings of this story. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a perfect issue of like what made Spectacular such a great run of stories now continuity wise i guess is this before the wedding uh i believe so uh i'm not entirely sure actually that's a great question because i Uh, i I feel like well hold on when did uh 
Craven's Last Hunt covered through Spectacular. I'm trying to remember what issues it did. Because that would have been right after the wedding at that point. Yeah, um, hold on. I can tell you exactly when it was released. Uh, yeah, this is before the wedding. The okay. wedding was in 1987. Okay. So Peter and Mary Jane were still like dating at the time or whatever they were doing. Well, yeah, cause uh, I'm always curious uh, about the continuity of the other books because obviously in Amazing, they weren't dating and then suddenly like they really quickly were because they had to get them married. And I was always curious how the other books handled it at the same time because I, I know I've read them, but now I can't remember how they were being approached. But there was a period of time where they were dating and then he proposed and then she peaced out. So, you know, like, I, I don't know, I, having not read it, like, in when it was coming out, I'm never really sure how to, like, follow those stories and the continuity there, because I wasn't reading it when it was coming out, and I don't even think even the editors could follow it terribly well. So, <laughs> like, I have a really hard time piecing it all together, but, uh, yeah, they may or may not have been dating, but they kind of act like they're dating in this story, so I'm just going to presume that they were... Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's this is kind of one of those evergreen stories you could read at any point, and it doesn't really alter the story one way or the other. It's interesting to hear you talk about it, only because uh, for fans of your podcast, you've gone through, you went through an exhaustive list of essentials, and you're making this sound like an essential Spider-Man issue. You know, I think there's a good case for it, and I'm kind of upset with myself. I didn't included in that list it, i think the reason it maybe is isn't an essential for me is because we've gotten this kind of story hmm. from a million other writers and a million other characters like i even own a batman dvd that like uh that that animated uh anthology series they put out between the two batman movies oh, yeah. back in the day uh that has a st- something like this um this is just Spider-Man's version of it, and I find it really fun, uh, mainly because I like Spider-Man's supporting cast. So I think there's a good case for it to be made as an essential, but um, it's really just a great tale more than anything else. No, the, the cover by Rich Buckler is uh, particularly arresting because uh, you don't usually see uh, Jameson holding a gun. Yes, that is true. Um, but it's also very reflective of like how the characters see themselves. Like Mary Jane sees herself in the story as like hotter than all hot, and Jameson sees himself as like the action hero. But yeah, before you open the book, that cover like would sell you on a very strange tale. Um, so there you go. Jameson is holding a and firing a gun on the cover. <laughs> I mean, there are uh, there is a good history of kind of funny Jameson covers. I mean, there's what another issue. I think a spectacular during Inferno with him with a, a bat. Um, like there's a bunch of ones with him getting more physical on covers, but this definitely takes it to the next degree. Yeah, he's like a, like a character from Contra. <laughs> exactly. It's it's funny with Jameson. Um, it reminds me, obviously, very different, but uh, from the uh, '90s Spider-Man animated series when he had the whole episode where he was Jigsaw Jameson. Yeah, there is that too. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's funny. It's it's interesting to see Jameson in a different way. Although it's even funnier in the TV show because like he's the head of a communications company there, not just a newspaper, and he's like walking around like people aren't going to know who he is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's. I love any issue that really delves into Jameson and his kind of like twisted perspective 
on the world, like, or how he sees himself. Like, there's that uh, great story, the I Cover the Waterfront mm-hmm. story. I don't know if you've read that. Yep. Um, it's, like, all about him busting a crime, but, like, secretly Spider-Man is, like, operating behind him the whole time, making it so he's successful. I love seeing Jameson's own twisted worldview, and then Peter's kind of, like, uh... uh Shades of guilt, uh, where he feels like I have to help this guy or else he's going to hurt himself. <laughs> but like in the essence, Peter ends up hurting him, his own self. You wonder like what Jameson's life was like before Peter came into it because he was probably getting himself in loads of trouble that he couldn't get out of. True. Although it was interesting that when we see Jameson in non-Spider-Man books, he always seems a lot more credible, a lot more interesting, well, not interesting, but a lot more credible and a lot more down-to-earth and a lot more like a real person. And then we see this weird cartoonish version of him whenever Spider-Man's around. Yeah, they both bring out the worst in each other. Absolutely. Well, I mean, in some ways, it almost reminds me of um, uh, that uh, Fantastic Four issue where they lost their second child where they have uh, Dr. Octopus and they try to get through to him to be like, we need your help. And he's totally on board until he sees a, a poster of Spider-Man and then he just breaks it. Like that's, you know, that that's his trigger. And yeah. He loses all sense of who he is once he sees Spider-Man and kind of, Jameson's kind of the same way, but he's not an actual outright villain. Yeah. All of Spider-Man's best villains. And I would consider Jameson one of his best villains, uh, like have a special place in their heart for Spider-Man, I, I always think about like Norman Osborn during the like uh, when he was like running Shield, mm-hmm. where he would keep the spider mannequins in his basement and just destroy them. <laughs> uh, like everybody's got their own twisted like uh, uh, relationship to the Wall Crawler. Absolutely. Um, so that was that was this issue. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's nice to have kind of a, a Dan Gavazdan exclusive, something you haven't talked about before. <laughs> They come around every now and again. I'm hoping with our new format on the show, we kind of are able to dive into some more like of our, our personal favorites and 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 weird corners of Spider fandom. Now, speaking of your own show, how has the reaction been to uh, the reformatting of Amazing Spider Talk? It's been uh, really positive. I mean, some of the new episodes have had the most downloads we've ever had before. Um, You know, I expected some kind of uh, um, uh, people who would be upset about us moving away from modern reviews and going to a more historical format. But um, we're still kind of doing both with our Patreon. So uh, people who want that are still getting it. And um, I think people are going to be really pleased with the show as it moves forward, we have a lot of surprises in store, and um, we've really kind of yet to lay out all of our cards about the new format. So I'm very pleased with it. I hope people really stick with us and listen to all the episodes. I don't know. I'm kind of more curious about what you think of the new format. I like it. I mean, it's, I like the historical kind of perspective on it. Um, I I do I like the old format as well because I like getting you your thoughts on current stuff but there is something about kind of going back and what I appreciate about the way you've tackled it because when you when you first announced it I was kind of curious how you'd be moving forward in terms of a progression but what I like is that you guys aren't necessarily just going linear by issues but using it to tackle the overall themes of who the character is um, you know the powers and abilities that kind of thing and and using that as a springboard and not just strictly going kind of issue by issue and I think that was a an interesting choice that I may not have even thought of in my own, but has actually worked out really, really well. 
Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people have done things like that, and mm. I think it's kind of the, like, obvious way to do it. Um, but we always wanted the show to remain a sh- conversational show. Mm-hmm. And really just talking about an issue, like... There's not – I mean there's always going to be conversations between Mark and I, but we really wanted to address these topics and, and bring an interesting guest to talk about like controversial topics and things like that. And um, I think it's going to be more interesting this way. Like uh, like if you really want to you know, uh, go through issue by issue, just go and read them, you know, and, 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 and I, I think we're going to offer you that opportunity. But like hopefully you can read alongside us or – what, or even if you haven't read it, don't have access to it, you can join us for a conversation that will illuminate things for you. Um, I just – these inventory podcasts are great, but like I feel like they've kind of been done to death. And um, so I'm hoping we can illuminate some new things. And, and there's going to be some twists coming down the road that I think people are really going to dig um, that, that make it a very unique show and also this way allows us to kind of move a little quicker oh, for sure. through things like if we were to do an inventory show even if we did one a week it would still take us like what 16 years to catch up <laughs> to where we are now um, we're doing like 12 episodes for every like 50 comics like it's going to be like kind of broken down into creator runs okay and um It'll still take us like seven years to catch up. Oh, for sure. To where we are now. <laughs> um, that's if we're even podcasting in seven years. Like, I don't know if I want to be here in seven years. So uh, I, I'm not. I'm not doing 500 episodes like you. Uh, <laughs> well, I cheated. I was doing. I was doing two a week. It's a little bit of a cheat. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, and this way it allows us to do a ton of research and really find all kinds of hidden gems. So um, that's the all-new Amazing Spider Talk for those of you out there who want to check us out. Uh, we're going through the Stan Lee-Steve Dicko run right now, and it's a blast. Um, our next episode is going to be about all of the, uh, the tropes that appear in uh, Spider-Man comics that were born in the Stan Lee Steve Ditko run, so we're going to talk about lifting a bunch of stuff <laughs> over your head, and the Parker luck, and quitting being Spider-Man, and all those old chestnuts that every time you read it, you're like, haven't we done this before? As <laughs> uh, much as things change in Spider-Man, things never change in Spider-Man. So, uh, hopefully that'll be a fun conversation. And um, we got a bunch of surprise guests coming on um, to talk about the Stan Lee, Steve Dicko controversies that aren't Stan Lee and Steve Dicko. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun, I, I think. I'm, I'm glad you're on board. But, you know, Adam, you can still get those reviews if you join our Patreon. <laughs> I felt that coming on. <laughs> I'm, I am a shill, but uh, really, it's an awesome place to be. So, uh, uh, you know, I guess if you, if you want that kind of stuff, it's there. Or you can just wait, and it'll eventually appear in the feed. Mm-hmm. Um, when, uh, to reiterate what something I said earlier is that so we just mentioned about that you're going to have an episode just talking about the Spider-Man tropes. That's what I mean by how I really like how you've used the format in an in a interesting way to get away from just, as you said, doing inventory stuff, where you're actually able to you know, use the Steve, uh, 
the Stanley Steve Dicko run to do a, long, a, a larger conversation that still kind of keeps it current because obviously the tropes continue to this day and kind of analyzing where they come from. And I like that kind of approach that you guys have kind of taken these core themes and concepts, blown them up into their own episodes, and then used the backdrop of the original, you know, what, 38 issues to really explore them. Yeah, you're going to love our Ayn Rand episode. Are you seriously doing one? We are seriously doing one. See that? I'm excited about it. Very much so. <laughs> That's awesome. You see, you see how I used your 500th episode to be a plug <laughs> for my podcast? I, this I, is not fair. Uh, no, I, I, I love it. It's great. <laughs> well, you are a very generous soul. I love your show. I still listen to as many episodes as I can, although you put them out faster than any human being can dare listen, uh, which is great because it allows me to pick and choose what, I, uh, what I'm interested in. And more often than not, you surprise with some great interviews. I mean, nobody is interviewing creators like you. You are the podcasting man. <laughs> I definitely try. If I- you're listening to this... If you're listening to this, subscribe twice to this podcast. <laughs> well, you're far too kind, but thank you. Well, thank Don't you. Don't hit the subscribe button twice, though, because no. that might unsubscribe you. Yeah, that, that's bad. <laughs> Don't do that. Just well, forget everything I've said. If you want to hit the subscribe button twice, hit it once for my podcast and once for Dan's. Uh, that's fair. I'll take that. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us for episode 500. We'll, uh, we'll probably have you on again in another 100 episodes. I look forward to it. These are always a blast. Excellent. Thanks so much, Dan. Southern nights. Have you ever felt a southern night? Nate, welcome back to Comic Shenanigans. It has been far too long. How long has it been? Uh, I don't have that uh, immediately on my fingertips. Thanks for uh, making me feel like I'm an amateur. It's good to be back. <laughs> it's been, well, I mean, because we, we used to do these episodes all the time, so it feels like, yeah, it's uh, once you move away, it's harder to do these things. Yeah, when you live with someone. Yes. You just, like, hold them aside and have a podcast anytime. Yeah, it's true. It's much easier back in the day. Although, when I started the podcast, you didn't live with me. Really? Is that so? I thought we I thought we were doing it when it was... Okay. Either way, I was living closer. You were far closer, not, yeah. This is, the, this is the least interesting part, isn't it, of this podcast? It always is. Well, so the last episode you were on was actually 56 episodes ago. It was our flashback to X-Men Age of Apocalypse. Just to, oh, yeah. Just to orient yourself. Mm-hmm. So today we've been talking with people about kind of memorable comics or favorite comics. What did you bring to the table? <sighs> wow. Um, did not expect to be first right off the bat like that um well i have sitting here with me like i don't know i just like walked around my my house and i'm just like overwhelmed by the task like i keep hearing favorite comics uh, and i know that you said it can be memorable as well um and we always get stuck with this kind of like what is my favorite blank um and and so i have like a collection of just like (laughs) i'm not supposed to bring a collection of these but i have like several trades that are like semi-recent like in the last 10 years that i really really enjoyed but i'm not going to talk about them in any detail just like like great, I have like a great Pacific here um, by Joe Harris and Martin Morazzo, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with Great Pacific. Uh, vaguely, um, so it's an image comic all about uh, a, a 
<laughs> a millionaire. I guess he's a millionaire son. He's he's an entitled uh, uh, child who I guess he's in his like maybe uh, early twenties, and um, he decides he's going to create his own country by going to like the Great Pacific Reef, uh, where they have apparently this you know island of junk, which is reported to be out there somewhere, and uh, he's going to settle there and create his own nation and get it, try to get it recognized by the United Nations, which I thought was pretty cool premise. So that's like something that I thought was really cool. I'm really enjoying Old Man Logan. Um, I love Wolverine. He's like one of my favorite characters. I've got the Vision uh, vision trade here, uh, you know, from uh, King and Walta working on the, the Vision creating his own family, which I know you love. Um, Moon Knight by Warren Ellis, Volume 1, which has one of my favorite issues ever where Moon Knight uh, has to kill these, uh, these punk ghosts. So he puts on this priest outfit from Khonshu and then goes through the streets punching ghosts' faces like it's unbelievably good and then he of course discovers in the end much like a Twilight Zone episode or something like that um, that you know their bodies have been um, uh, summoned I guess their ghosts have been summoned by this kind of unholy ritual and so he just he destabilizes the ritual and sends the ghosts sets the ghosts free and so that, that's in the pile I got Paper Girls here by um, uh, Vaughn Ryan K. Vaughn, which I'm really enjoying, and The Underwater Welder by Jeff Lemire. So, like, this is just, like, tons of stuff, and uh, I, I, they're off to the side now. And in my hands, I held a copy of the trade collection of Green Goblin, A Lighter Shade of Green. Okay. Very nice. And, uh, like, nowadays... I remember when Wizard in the 90s was always highlighting indie comics, and uh, I was always, like, skip pass... Like, why would anyone waste their money on indie comics? Um, <laughs> and now with the resurgence of Image uh, being what it is, I think about half of the comics I'm reading are, you know, indie comics or Image comics uh, most of the time. And uh, it, it, it's a great time to be a comic reader. But really, uh, my love started with superhero stuff. So I kind of want to talk about, you know, Greek Goblin and superhero stuff. Now, when you, when you, so obviously you picked up the trade because they finally released the entire collection about six years ago. But prior to that, do, how did you first come across this this book? Was it at the time? Was it later? Uh, it was issue one on a on a new stand or uh, it was a convenience store stand. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Well, it had a just shiny cover. It, of course, it did. <laughs> And uh, it really compelling art, right? I just was amazed by Scott McDaniel's um, angular features of, of the goblin face. And I had known of the goblin in passing from, you know, the old Spider-Man cartoon. And I don't even think I had a single Spider-Man issue with him in it at the time. I had had, like, comics given to me at birthday parties. So I had, like, some a Maximum Carnage issue and just, this, you know, little pieces here and there. I think I had a Marvel Masterworks single issue I don't know if it was even called Masterworks you know the one with the silver um, border around it those that line of, of yeah, that's, single that, issues that's the Masterworks yeah it was yeah so I had um, Fantastic Four meets Spider-Man and I think there was also a reprinting of Amazing Fantasy um, in there as well oh so I you know first... oh I forgot about those those are the, the Milestone editions um, Milestone yeah and it was an M absolutely I remember those and they look like masterworks in terms of the, the silver border, but yeah, I think they were called something different. Um, so, but but Goblin, you know, wasn't on my radar. And when I learned that it was about you know a kid Phil Urich, um, who you know, he's in his early twenties. I was about like twelve or thirteen, so I thought of him as somewhat close to my age. Um, and uh, yeah, I just got hooked. Like I, I had my money, I saved up the money for the first issue, and then I just had to get each issue as it came out. And I soon realized that the newsstand or the um, the convenience store wouldn't 
necessarily have each issue in, in stock. Like, they got the first three, and then they're like, oh, we're not, we're not getting that anymore. And I was freaking out, and my, my dad had to use the yellow pages to find a comic book store. <laughs> That's such a great old-school, like, comic book buying story. Like, you can't find it on the newsstand. you got to find a comic book store. How are you going to find it? There's no internet. you got to find the, you know, to get out the phone book. Like, that's such a, that's, that's, that's very charming. I didn't know that comic book stores existed, like, at least not in Canada or, like, I, I you know, I live in Toronto, like, one of the biggest city in, in, in Canada, one of the biggest cities in North America. I should have thought that through and gone, of course you must have these things, but I'd only heard of comic book stores or maybe seen one, like, maybe in a cartoon. Um, <laughs> it's, it, you know, I wasn't aware of the news, like, in the early 90s, I wasn't aware too much of um, Spawn and um, the Image Guys and how big comics had become at that time. Um, and how comic book stores, because of the speculator market, had been opening all over the place, right? Like, the early 90s, there was a huge boom for comic book store opening, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember talking years later to my comic book guy about that. He's like, yeah, I opened 89.90 when I realized there were suddenly millions of issues of X-Force and Spider-Man and stuff like that. Um, and so that's where he started his business. And uh, he eventually closed the store. It's been closed for, I guess, like six or seven years now. Um, and he's like, look, um, you know, I, I need to get out of this business. But at the time, he said we were doing very well, and there were lots of stores all over the place. And now, you know, if you look at the anything outside of the downtown core of Toronto, there's there's not a lot of comic book stores around. No, there's not a lot of readership. I mean, you see that the top ranked books these days usually under a hundred thousand copies. Which back back in the day, that was that was you would be canceled if you're at that that at that low. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you say uh, fewer, you said, I think you said fewer readers. Is it, like, I don't know, when they were selling millions of copies, were they really being read, though? Or was that, like, speculative market, I'm going to buy this for my kid's college fund? Uh, that's a good point. Um, I guess in the the height of the speculative boom, well, I, st- I still think there was more people. Because there was just also less avenues of entertainment uh, at, at, that were easily accessible to people. And uh, the comic book prices weren't that outrageous at the time compared to uh, the type of entertainment people wanted. It's incredibly sad to think that more people will have read Youngblood than will have read Vision or Saga. It's very true, though. It is very heartbreaking, but yeah. So, um, I mean, and this this series, this Green Goblin series, isn't a masterpiece by any, by any stretch, but I kind of wanted to make my case here and make a point, a, a larger point, seeing how this is um, a milestone in your podcast and talking about comics. Um, about a lot of things I've been thinking about about superheroes and why I like them and why I still think this comic has value and in that larger context of the value of superhero comics specifically Hmm. Um, but I don't necessarily want to bogart your whole conversation talking about what I wanted to talk about like do you want to go and kind of share what comic you chose or should we just do this first and then we'll switch over to you what would you like to do oh I'm I'm, I've I've I've, uh... Earlier in the podcast, I talked about some other memorable comics for me, so I'm, I'm squarely on you right now. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, absolutely. It's a modular podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you can't use the word modular without me thinking about Iron Man, but yeah. Shoutouts to everybody in the listening to the podcast now who thought about the modular armor for Iron Man. <laughs> I hope there was at least a few, because that's, that's a sweet armor. That is my favorite armor. Is that your favorite armor? It's my favorite armor. Or is mm. yours still the Chen armor? Uh, Chen's not my favorite. As stupid as it is, I love Heroes Reborn. Which yeah, I remember you talking about that that you love it. You still like it more than the modular. I think so. Wow. 
But I think a big part of that for me is that I became like I knew about Iron Man before I'd watched the the TV series and obviously had the kind of the modular look there. But I really didn't become a fan of Iron Man and actually reading the comics on a regular basis until Heroes Reborn. And then Sean Chen did um, his version of Iron Man. And I love that armor, too. But there's a few things about it where I'm like, eh, like if it wasn't Chen, I don't know if anyone else could do certain elements of that armor right. And that was definitely part of it. Zerker definitely did those. Zerker, I thought, did a, you know, an amazing job. He did. Well, yeah, Zerker was such an interesting artist at that time because he would come on the books and he was basically aping that. It's hard to know what his style is because if you look at his work on Thunderbolts, he was trying to be Mark Bagley. He was trying to have a consistent approach in that you didn't really feel like you were taken out of the art because the art still looked very similar to when Bagley was doing the book. I think the same thing is true when he did Iron Man. He kept it close enough to Chen that you weren't like, well, this isn't Ch- this is a totally different guy. It was still very similar. So I feel like he was a chameleon at the time, uh, kind of working where he needed to. So it's hard to know what Zerker's actual style is, uh, especially in that era, because he was just kind of doing fill-ins and taking over for other people, and he was just kind of aping their style. It's interesting you said that. I've never thought about him that way at all. Like, looking at uh, Cable Deadpool... Um, you know, that art, I feel, is very consistent. Like, I never got the sense... I actually was upset when he came in to fill in for Bagley because I thought he was so dissimilar, like, especially when he drew... Uh, gosh, what was that stupid villain uh, name? The the Earth-based villain that was from, like, a design-your-own-character uh, like contest? Homo, homo sapien or something. A homo sapien or something like that? Yeah, I was just like, wow, his hair is all kind of wonky and weird. Like, the way he does hair is actually more, got more in common with Scott McDaniel, I thought. Hmm. Or, um and so I was – not that I dislike Scott McDaniel. So it's interesting you say that because I've always thought like I love Zerker because of the style that I, I feel he has, which is kind of almost like McDaniel mixed with Joe Bennett if they had a baby. That's an interesting combination. <laughs> um, but so what, Will Sportaccio, doesn't, isn't he the one who designed that Iron Man costume you like, the armor you like? He, he might be, yeah. Like, and yeah. I'm the first one to, to admit that that book is not great. Um, the art is obviously very much of the time. It's over-inked. Um, it's it's not great, but uh, yeah, that armor. I don't know why it, it was the first armor I really knew the character in, and I fell in love with it. And I know it's ridiculous because of those giant weird like vents in the back or weird you stuff. Have, you love smokestacks. Yeah, that's what it, it is. Like it's so dumb, but it's like there's certain shots, especially in the first couple issues, where yeah, he'll he'll be standing there and there's smoke coming out of it, and he just looks badass. And I'm like, that's <laughs> Iron Man. But it's like, but why is he like steam powered? Like. What? What's going on there? Is this like a steampunk version of Iron Man? Like, yeah, it, it was. I, I don't. I don't hate the costume because you know. Again, I, I read a lot of comics that era. I actually really liked the first two issues of that uh, of the Wells Portasio Iron Man. Um, I, I like how they integrate Banner and Tony Stark's origin together with each other. Oh, absolutely! Um, I, that, I love that. Like, I if we'd ever seen that in a movie, I would have been okay with it. Like, that's such an interesting way of bringing those characters together and not having everything be its own kind of siloed origin. And I, I even like how Warren Ellis kind of does the same thing with Ultimate Hulk, Ultimate Iron Man crossover, where they're very entangled in each other's mythos. And uh, I, I like Protasio's over I, I, those heavy inks. I mean, I like them a lot. I actually think I enjoy this kind of almost spy drama with with Hydra being immediately introduced into the um, the heroes return universe. Here's a born. Here's a born universe, and uh, you know, so it's got this kind of spy idea, and um, you know, sabotage, and those those events, and darkness, and then the Hulk is also kind of in the tradition of this like Frankenstein's monster kind of thing, and so you know, when he would originally be gray and come only out at night, and it was this more terrifying thing, and so he's he's draped in shadow, and of course you need the shadow to hide his junk because he has no pants. Um, <laughs> I, I I think that's one of the most stylistically pleasing or interesting 
directions they took those characters. And even though it didn't pan out, like after two or three issues, it was kind of like, I don't know, this is meandering. But Jim Lee was the most pleasant just because Jim Lee is, you know, he's kind of, he's a pleasant artist to look at. But the, the Fantastic Four, I don't feel, was saying anything. And Captain America was drawn horribly and I, I had a hard time, like, even paying attention to what was going on. Hmm. So I thought, I thought Iron Man was maybe the best of the group. I, I, I think he's the best of the bunch. I, I would absolutely agree. I think it was the shining light of that of those four books. <laughs> shining light? Okay, a, li- a pen light. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, it's a pen light. It's a pen light uh, in the middle of the garbage. But yeah. <laughs> um, although I gotta say, like as much as the uh, the Avengers book wasn't great, but it had some good fun stuff. It did, and I really like um, the issue where the Hulk tries to pick up Thor's hammer mm. um, and succeeds, doesn't he? I can't remember. I, is this, I feel like this is the first ish, uh, version of Hulk where he's able to do it. I can't quite remember. I remember it being quite dramatic and like the, the floor sinking in, which may or I, I doubt that Joss Whedon used this as his inspiration for when the Hulk has to pick up Thor's hammer in the Avengers movie. And the, Thor, the, you know, the, the floor of the uh, helicarrier starts cracking and, and sinking in. But I, I just remember it being very neat. And yeah, they, they did some fun things. And um, yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. Anyway, would this piece become the Heroes Reborn podcast? Uh, that's going to be another one someday. I think we've just done we've gone through all the material just now. Yeah, that's about what it deserves, I guess. <laughs> so it's interesting. So you picked up the Green Goblin, not knowing what's going on at Spider Man at the time. Like, obviously, it's interesting to go back because they originally introduced the character in the Amazing Spider Man books, or sorry, Web of Spider Man and Spectacular Spider Man is where we first saw this new version of the Green Goblin. At the time, it was kind of foreshadowed that you know this character had an uncle who worked at the Bugle, but we didn't know who it was. And then a few months later, we got his own book. Right, um, and it, I don't know. Like, there, there's a few things. There's a whole zeitgeist around this thing, man. Like, Scarlet Spider is heavily like he's introduced when I think Ben Riley is. Yeah, Ben Ben is a Scarlet Spider, and he's introduced in that issue of uh, is it Web or Amazing? It must be Web. Let's see. Yeah, it's Web. Web, and uh, you know Peter's out of the costume, and like Ben is swinging around being Ben. No, no, no. Actually, in Web of Spider Man, that is not Ben. That is Peter Parker in Ben Riley's costume. <laughs> Um, okay. Because Ben Riley, Ben Riley was in prison, and so he, him and uh, Peter had swapped, sorry, Peter was in prison, then they swapped places. I don't places. know what the point is of him swapping out. I, you know, I actually have this issue, 125, and uh, haven't read it in years and years and years, so I don't remember all those particulars, but um, I have this issue, I have this single issue somewhere. Anyway, it doesn't matter, because this is not that great of an issue, um, with the fake... Gwen clone thing going on. Yeah, but it does um, have that classic moment of Peter, you know, having to relive... You know, Gwen being uh-huh. falling off something and him having to save her and, you know, do different things differently. And it's a very common trope, but I feel like at the time it wasn't as common. Uh, so, Scarlet Spider stylistically really appealed to me at the time. I think I had picked up um, an issue with him and Venom uh, again at like a, a grocery store or something like that. So, I was, you know, the costume design really struck me. And so the fact that. Scarlet Spider actually comes in in issue three of the Green Goblin series, and um, uh, you know he, he's, he's he's introduced in a, in, a, in a comic where the Scarlet Spider's costume is used um, is is part of this whole style over substance thing. I know that was a big problem in the nineties, uh, and I think the style attracted me to this comic. But as I read it, it is a story about a guy who I thought of as young, having a kind of a hard knock life. He's living alone. He's trying to kind of make it and his parents keep complaining that he doesn't have any direction. He's not going to college. I think he like takes some journalist courses or something like that in the university and is like a dropout. 
and he's working with his uh, as an intern at the Daily Bugle because his uncle is like, yeah, let's get this kid some kind of a job. So he's directionless. So he kind of enca- he really encapsulates this kind of whole Gen X um, demographic and and what the issues that we're seeing of, of the Gen X. You know, they don't want to work or they don't have any direction. They don't uh, this and that. Um, and so I felt that zeitgeist. But as I was reading it, you know. I felt like this would be this could be me. Like I felt I kind of imbued myself into his his world. He kept asking the question, like you know, most of the comics start with, "So what the heck am I supposed to do now?" You know, Tom, uh, Tom DeFalco keeping the heck in there instead of hell because you know, <laughs> comics were, <laughs> you know, that the comics code authority still on here. But um, th- th- yeah, it's it's an interesting question for that generation. What am I supposed to do? And me is like a, that's a twelve, thirteen year old, almost fourteen year old. Um, to me, this is I, I'm, a, I'm a teenager, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And so, you know, all those things are going on. But in, in issue two specifically, and I've talked about this before with you, I think. I don't know if it's ever been on a podcast. But there's this great sequence where um, Phil is, is leaving um, – he, he leaves the Daily Bugle, and he goes uh, um, up for a subway tunnel, um, and climbs up the stairs that's in the main street. And as he's leaving – um, the Human Torch comes shooting out of the subway, which I guess he was on a train and got a message. And so everyone around him goes, that's Johnny Storm, the freaking Human Torch. He must be responding to some kind of emergency. Um, first of all, McDaniel does an incredible job. I, like, I, I wish McDaniel would draw the Fantastic Four. Like, I, I love this version of Johnny Storm. I love the fire around him. Oh, yeah. Um, Whoever is on colors does a great job here. Let me see who's on colors. Um, Greg, uh, Gregory Wright. So good job, Greg. Um, <laughs> and, and it was just very much this man in the street view of the superheroes. And, you know, later uh, Marvels uh, by Alex Ross would try to capture that, right? It was all about the man in the street. It's about the, the view looking up at these kind of gods, these titans. Um, and then these ladies are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I actually saw him. I'm so jealous. And, you know, they, they're. They're excited that they saw him, and so then he, you know, Phil realizes, hey, there's an upside to kind of having this suit and trying to be a superhero. Uh, for those of you who don't familiar with the series, Phil Urich finds an empty cache or cache of Norman Osborn or Harry. It's not really made clear, and uh, uh, no, modified they, they, version they, of the suit. They, they do make clear it was Harry's stash. Yeah, but it doesn't matter right now because I'm just talking. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm I'm a, I'm a picker. I gotta pick on well, things. If I had reread this, I would be picky. But none of that really matters to my point. I think it, I, no. I, I I'm not disagreeing with you I, as you say. That I, I agree with you. You it is for it is Harry Stash, and it's it's a modification, right? So they have like this goblin juice, this goblin gunk that he gets covered in to kind of augment him, and then it is compatible with these. Now this is all again me going from memory. I haven't read this in a while, but correct me if I keep getting it wrong because I don't want to sound like a fool. So thank you for that. Um, and, and I think it, it, it goes after he gets augmented, it like helps his body talk to the suit cybernetics better. Is that right? yeah, yeah, and like basically because of the goblin juice and everything, and then when he puts on the on the mask, it like activates whatever's in the juice and gives it like without the mask, basically he can't access the super strength. Um, yeah, like, like it activates in him, and I think that I think you could infer then if someone else were to take his costume without the without the juice, it probably might not work for them or may not work as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of like there's this idea that there's this kind of symbiosis between the the biological augmentation and the cybernetic. Which, you know, is in a way very much, you know, how the later Green Goblin would active, you know, operate, right? He had his augmentation biologically and then he has technology. Iron Man's the same way, right? He is a cyborg. He gets augmented by having a fake heart to help him breathe and or, or to live. <laughs> your heart doesn't help you, help you breathe. Uh, to, to pump your blood and then he uses technology around that, right? Absolutely. Um, so... Um, the one thing I would say, it's not only that he finds this stuff, it's the fact that, you know, he 
he's trying to ends up trying to save his uncle because like his uncle is in the same place where this stash basically is. Uh, he acts. He's kind of running away from these goons. Ends up finding the stuff and then kind of puts on the costume as a way of protecting his uncle. Um, he very reluctant. Like he's not meaning to be a superhero at all. As you said, he's doesn't really know what to do with his life at all but kind of lucks into finding this stuff and very much has to go into action to protect his uncle and to save his life and that's that's really how this heroic green goblin starts and in this the, the tradition of spider-man teen it's not really teen but teen-esque heroes um he's bumbling through it like he doesn't know what he's doing they like smashing into boxes or crates um which you know it makes it fun. You see him trying to grow, and the series never lets him really grow too much. Like he, I think it's thirteen issues or something like that. It does. He gets cut off in his prime. That's not the right term at all. He's not at his prime. He gets cut off um, during the onslaught uh, uh, whole storyline crossover. Uh, he, obviously, the book had not got strong sales. Not the strongest sales to continue. Um, I was still really into it, but you know, just like a lot of these books where they try something new, it, it fades. Um, but this idea of what caught me up in this and why I'm super into this um, you know the Marvel Universe and the superheroes I really do feel like when I look back it started here hmm. and uh, you know a, a year or two ago I was teaching a class and a student said um, I was talking with another student he, this other student was really into DC Comics and so he was he was very happy that I was into comics at all um, you know Marvel he was like okay I guess I'm fine with you you know Marvel but DC's better I was like yeah well, Marvel's a little better you know, it's just silly stuff like that that doesn't mean anything. Um, and uh, but I know I know things about DC. Like I keep up enough with the characters and some of their more large, you know, the larger adventures. Uh, and so for fun, sometimes on a test, um, if he finished early, I'd take my phone out and I'd give him like a little quiz, and I'd be like, okay, um, name three Green Lanterns, and I'd, I'd turn my phone to him, and he would just like smile and he would type back the three that he would know. Like we would just as I'm walking around the room, you know, it's give me something to do. It give a huge smile on his face. And so we're talking, and then one of his friends one day in the middle of class, uh, they're working on something, says, like, I don't know why you guys are so into these stupid comics. Um, sir, especially you, like, you're an adult, like, these are things for kids, and they're, they're, they're moronic. And, of course, his, his friend starts defending them, saying, like, no, they're not like that. That doesn't make, you know. And so we get into this conversation. This, this one student who was kind of anti-comic thinks of himself as, you know, very much an intellectual, and, and, and to an extent, yeah, he, he is, and he's like, well, I'm going to read War and Peace, like, I want to read things that matter, and I'm like, okay, well, you want to read War and Peace, first of all, you know, that's, you're going to be reading that for the next five years, <laughs> it's a gigantic book, and, uh, you know, it, it does matter, and you should read literature, but I, I like to read lots of things, I like to watch lots of different things, and comic books give me something that other things don't, and he's like, what could they possibly give you, a bunch of people in tights punching each other, and I'm like, well, that's not all that it is, I can see how you think that, but I, I want to say two things about that. First of all, not all comic books are superhero comics, just most of them are, and uh, there, you know, those that are about superheroes right now in, in the 2000-somethings, it's come a long way. It's not the same kind of just like pulpy, um, done-in-one they're making this just to make a buck to sell the kids, and they're going to punch a few people in the streets. There's a lot of like, complex storylines and you know complex dramatic and Shakespearean themes of tragedy and love and betrayal and you know so it's about humanity and he just kind of wasn't buying it and um, I thought that was you know interesting conversation and, and, and it comes to mind sometimes so I you know I have thought really for the last twenty years ten years I'm an old man now why it is I love comics so much I used to just kind of when I first started collecting and people would ask me my response usually would be this is our mythology right this is our modern day mythology these are the myths that we're making 
um, like Hercules, like like Odin, um, these ancient cultures would talk about these characters, these fictitious characters, and and to them it was a theology actually, right? These their gods, and they explained the world around them. They they used these gods to explain the world around them, and then they also gave imbued these gods with stories, and they could tell these stories around the campfire. And some of these stories would tell us and tell people like how to understand life. That sometimes life is not fair. That sometimes you need to put faith in you know. A greater being, or at least the greater, you know, uh, human um, entity, to, to 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 get through the day, and, and and this and that, and like you know where life comes from, like all this stuff is you know explained in that. And I, I I thought more recently in the last decade or so, like it's not just that we read superior comics to ex- we're not doing it to ex- understand the world around us in the same way that the ancient cultures were. Fiction often is a reaction or a reflection of social dynamics or social anxieties of the people that write them and the people that read them. So, you know, and you're very familiar with all this. This is None of this is for you, Adam. Like, you know all this stuff. I'm just kind of talking, and maybe some listeners haven't heard or thought about these things before. Um, so, you know, you can ch- chime in when you want, obviously. Um, so, you know, Superman, the first one um, created in the um, late 1930s, 38, right? I believe so. Um, and uh, this is the looming World War uh, II, um, the uh, attacks against Jewish communities have already happened in, in, in Nazi Germany, um, and Nuremberg laws I, I think are enacted, I can't remember the year, is it 37 or something like that? I, I, I have the number somewhere, but the idea is that the, the Jews in Europe are already under attack, and um, refugees have already attempted to come across to other countries and seek refuge in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States, and often they're turned back. Um, so, you know, Siegel and Schuster, they, they, no, not Siegel and Schuster, Siegel and... No, you're right. The other crit- Siegel and Schuster? Um, they, they create this Jewish, very, very, I mean, it's, it's easy to see that he's kind of this Jewish um, created, Jewish superhero who is uh, an alien from another world who comes from a destroyed world to our world, and they find that he is not special in his world, but he's special in our world. And originally, uh, I believe it's because their gravity was really intense, right? And so he had more muscle because of their had strong gravity. And later on, I think it's retconned to be the solar rays. Is that right? That's basically correct. Uh, and so he's this champion of social justice. He finds that you know he can do good with his powers, these secret powers that are part of his ethnicity. Like he is an alien, and his powers come from his ethnicity. Um, and so this idea being that it's a reflection of maybe Jewish immigrants or Jewish refugees who are coming to this new world, and they can use their special talents and abilities, um, even if they might feel they have to be secret about it, surreptitious about their their Jewishness. A lot of Jewish immigrants actually change their names, like Stanley Lieber. Yep. Right. And Jack Kerbowitz? I believe so. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, Batman, right, is, is, a, is a billionaire or millionaire, and so he's going to use his wealth. The difference between Superman and Batman, of course, is that Superman is what we would call a transhuman or a metahuman, and Batman is just a rich guy, right? It isn't until later that Batman starts making armored suits and starts augmenting himself, like, cybernetically, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Not too much so much I, I, I'm very interested in this transhuman movement, metahuman movement, because 
I see, we see it more and more now with the you know the idea that now we're getting to the point where we can design babies in utero to have greater resistance to disease. We might be able to do the same thing with increasing their muscle their their muscle capacity or their brain capacity. Like designer babies, this thing that's being debated right now, how ethical it is or isn't. Um, you know, there's interesting articles. I think it's a book uh, with the same title called "We Are." Uh, I think it's an article actually. We are all cyborgs. The idea that. We are constantly inserting things in our bodies, anything from vaccines to um, you know, pacemakers uh, to make our, our lives better or to enhance ourselves. And so this is technology being used with us, inside of us, to help us become better or live long, longer lived. So we, in a way, are all becoming this, this transhuman or the cyborg. Um, and our future looks like it will only continue to accelerate. In the 30s, you know, the metahuman, the transhuman, is very much. This, uh, I'm an immigrant, but as the nuclear era under undergo, under, you know, uh, continues after you know during the war when those nuclear bombs are dropped, there's all this anxiety about radiation, right? In the 1950s, 1960s. So when Stan Lee is writing Fantastic Four, it's these cosmic rays change them. Spider-Man is changed by a radioactive spider. The Hulk is created by gamma radiation. Who am I leaving out? That is, oh, the X-Men are children of the atom, right? It is heavily. I don't think it's not even implied. They say right out. At one point, that you know, all this nuclear testing and these explosions have put have changed our world and have in, in the, have irradiated the human race. Like the atom is everywhere, and so the the mutants are from even even Krakoa, the mutant island. It says they tested nukes near the island, and it created a mutant island. So the mutant race is from nuclear radiation. Who else is a character that is created by radiation, Adam? That I'm forgetting. Besides Spider Man. Yeah, right, yeah, right after Spider. Anyone else? We got uh, Hulk, Fantastic Four, X Men, Spider Man. Is that pretty solid? Yeah. Oh, oh, Captain America is created using Vita rays. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and Cap is created because you know the the horrors of war. Like people saw, or they cut and realized as journalism became better, the horrors of World War One, right? And in World War Two, they actually had cameras a lot on the battlefield, and people were recording. Like D Day has recordings on it, so more and more people are seeing and hearing and reading about the horrors of war. And so naturally, you know, Joe Simon, Jack Kirby, they create this metahuman, this transhuman, who's a stronger human, someone who could maybe not go onto the battlefield and just get cut down by these super weapons and so the idea of making humans to rival technology technology you know with this atom bomb it's like technology had spiraled out of control and we have no way to stop it if anyone were to get hit with an atom bomb we would all die um and and to some degree i think that maybe iron man comes from this that iron man is a man in an armored suit who could withstand a blast like that um, and maybe not so much Iron Man, but certainly the, the anxiety is from Iron Man. He's in um, uh, with the original war where he gets hit. Yeah, he's in Vietnam. He was in Vietnam. He's in Vietnam. I thought he was created early six. No, he's not early sixties. That's Fantastic Four. So yeah, I guess he's yeah he's Vietnam. That's where he originally and and um, it's shrapnel, right? From a bomb, I guess, or a, a mine, mine or something. Or something? Yeah. yeah. So it's this kind of a protective shell for war and for war technology. Um, and, you know, I connect this as well to um, Japanese anime. There's this obsession with mechs. You know about this whole thing with, like, people yep. in mech suits all the time? All the time. Think, everywhere. All the time, right? And, and I think 
I, I thought that you know it's likely that this is from this social anxiety, from this collective unconscious of the Japanese. They're the only nation who's had nuclear bombs dropped on civilian targets. If there's any country that could be more you know, you know obsessed with mechanized suits that are protective armor that could protect you from huge explosions, you've got to think. Of course, the Japanese would be obsessed with that, even if they're not really consciously aware. Why wouldn't you want to have access to something like that would protect you? So, in, sorry, go ahead. No, um, yeah, keep going. <laughs> so in many cases, I think Iron Man's the same way. So like, what I'm trying to paint this picture here is like, I don't just think that comic books and superheroes are the same simplistic answer I used to give. I think that they are a very important um, blends to understand how we as humans fear and hope and dread and are excited about our, our future and uh, what our relationship is with technology. Because um, even the mutants, even the quote-unquote natural metahumans or transhumans of this world, of the Marvel Universe, um, and the DC Universe to some extent, because uh, they have their own biological and technological characters, is mostly from technology. Like, it's, it's the atom bombs that created the mutants. And so when I read Green Goblin and I see a street-level shot of a kid who has been modified biologically, and he also has a technological suit. So he's a cyborg and a metahuman, both. Um, looking up and seeing this guy this, who was irradiated to have fire powers thunder out of a, a subway tunnel, and people going like, oh my gosh, it's a freaking human torch, and they're so excited. They're like, go on, Johnny, go get him, boy. We're, we're rooting for you. We're counting on you. You see the very positive side of this transhuman, metahuman kind of future, where... Um, you have our heroes. You have people who are imbued with these powers um, that want to use them for good, and then you have the people who you know are imbued with these powers who want to use them for for, for selfish or unethical purposes. And then you have the people in between, people like to an extent Peter Parker, because Peter Parker starts off as this kind of he, no, kind of he's selfish with his powers, and he learns a lesson because of it. And Phil Urich, in much the same way, doesn't know at first what he wants to do. He saves, like you said, he saves his uncle in the first issue, but then he's like, so what the heck am I supposed to do now? Like, what do I do with this suit? If I break it, I can't fix it. If I get hurt, I don't know where I'll go. Do I just become a superhero or do you use it to get chicks? Like, he doesn't know. He's he's in that in-between, right? Absolutely. And I think that that in-between is a very interesting space um, to consider. Like, as we go into the future and you get, you know, I'm sorry to be heavy here, but like if someone, if a doctor were to come to me and say, "Look, um, we we've checked out the the uh, the fetus, uh, and uh, we we want to tell you that it looks like that this child might be um, prone to certain cancers in the future unless we go and make modifications." Most parents, I think, would be like, "Look, if I have the money to do that, I would happily have you go in there and do an operation if I thought it was safe." Um, before the baby's really grown, to make changes to the genetic code to root out that cancer. But the ethics of, look, while I'm in there, we can go in there and we can make changes to the embryo to make this kid faster. We can make them have increased, you know, cellular regeneration, and we can change the eye color and hair color to whatever you'd like. That's whole other, you know, thorny bed of roses there, and, and the ethical discussions of that are, in, are quite interesting. But where comic books, I really believe, reflect that anxiety and interest and excitement of a world where we will have and continue to have trans and metahumans. Mm -hmm. And um, that is very compelling to me. So in previous podcasts, I've talked about how I love, you know, this, the talking on a rooftop. Yep. That's because of 
transhuman metahuman society. Like to me, that represents a meeting on the rooftops. These are people who are like gods above the city, like Mount Olympus, meeting and talking about what they need to do with their own. Like they you know, Spider Man talks about how he has to get a grocery list for his Aunt May before he gets home. But a lot of the other characters, a lot of the heroes, like Captain America and Hank Pym and you know, Mister Fantastic, they're talking about. There is a, a you know onslaught is in the city. He's going to wipe out all existence. We need to save existence. Like we're going to do something for humanity. You know, uh, Jonathan Hickman I think has a great vision of this whole idea of the importance of exploring trans and metahumans in complex. Like he said, so many of them, especially for Image, looking at um, the ramifications of this. But even his Reed Richards and his Fantastic Four run, which I haven't read as much as you have, and I wish I, I, I should pick that up. Yes, you should. Um, he's all about let's help humanity. Like, let's elevate humanity. Um, and to an extent with the Illuminati and with Tony Stark, there's this idea that we need to help humanity survive well, the future future incursions. Sorry, his, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, his, uh, his his whole run on on Mr. On Fantastic Four, but really Mr. Fantastic, was all about, you know, how do you solve everything? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I read the first few issues, and I think they, they mentioned that in the first few issues, which is why it came to me. Um, unfortunately, uh, uh, we're going to have to uh, cut you off, though, Nate. Um, this has been a really interesting conversation on uh, a lot of deeper themes, but uh, my son has told me it's uh, it's time for no more podcasting. It's time for episode 500 to end. Does he actually say no more podcasting? Uh, I don't know. Zach, can you say no more podcasting? No more podcasting, then. Uh, I don't think he can really say podcasting all that well, but... It's so, a tough thing to say. No more podcasting? No? We're all done? What? <laughs> what? Uh, but, Nate, thank you for being part of episode 500. And, Zach, thank you for being part of episode 500. You have no idea what's happening. No, he doesn't. Okay. I'm, I'm waiting for him to say something. Okay. But it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for letting me uh, talk, about my, talk my way through this and why I love... Uh, Green Goblin and I have great memories of it. I, I don't know that I can recommend it to any of your listeners to read. I, what do you think, Adam? Uh, it's it's a fun story. I mean, like it's it's interesting. It's kind of has a sad ending, but a sadder ending if you know what happens to Phil Yurik later. But uh, yeah, you want to say hi, Zach? Okay, say hi. Hi. <laughs> That's the softest hi I've ever heard, Zach. What what, t- what TV show did you watch this morning, Zach? Reboot. Reboot. That's right. <laughs> That's a great show for those who I hope your listeners know that show. That's a classic from the nineties. Yeah, and I don't know if a lot of people know that Dan DiDio, the you know head guy at DC, used to be a writer on the reboot. I don't know that I can either recommend that either for like modern day viewers. I don't know that it might be a little slow for them. Uh, you know what, Zach? Zach has really enjoyed reboot. Uh, you know, when, when when Bob got sent into the into the web, he was very sad that that Bob was sent into the sky and he didn't come back. And when they finally found Bob, he was extremely excited. It's like they found Bob. Like so, I mean, he's he's very young and he's only almost four years old, but he's already kind of getting into the characters, into the what's going on on the screen, and it's not that slow. That's very heartwarming to hear that he's doing. That's great. It makes me very happy, and that the fact that he loved it, he went over to his uncle Paul and uh, uh, tapped his chest and just said "reboot," and I was like, "That's amazing." <laughs> Anyways, all right, we're gonna sign off. Zach, can you say goodbye? Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, thanks for listening to episode five hundred, and hopefully, we'll have God five hundred more of these. <laughs>